Bonjour, and welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. <laughs> I'm Scott Nye. You got me. You got you me with that. that the last second. Yeah. Um, yeah, quel surprise. Yeah, I'm David Bax. Um, Tyler Smith is still not here. He is uh, uh, still still ailing. You can find out what's going on with him and his medical condition. Uh, is on and ongoing medical complications at caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. There are um, somewhat regular updates posted by the Smith family and their um, closest confidants um, there. Again, again, that's caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. There's also a place there where you can donate to a GoFundMe for Tyler and his family because the longer that things drag on, the more expensive this gets for them. Um, and so that could really, anything you could, you could throw their way would help. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, no, it is <laughs> always well worth mentioning at the top of the show. And I appreciate that you do. I'm sure the listeners do as well. Um, oh, well, hopefully the listeners show their appreciation over at the uh, GoFundMe. That's what I want. Uh, Laying it on the line. Yeah. Uh, we didn't, you know, we just sort of jumped in and hit record and we didn't talk about like, uh, what are we going to do for like a top of the show mini topic? Um, cause the obvious choice would be the sight and sound list, which was published today, the day we're recording a few days ago, by the time you're hearing this or, you know, years ago, by the time you, I don't know what the fuck you're listening <laughs> to this. Um, uh, but we've also, we've decided, uh, Spoiler alert, we're going to do a whole episode next week <laughs> on the sight and sound yeah. list. So um, did anything else happen in movies today? Oh, I know what happened. Okay. Uh, um, something I, I'm so checked out of like franchise type stuff um, as evidenced by the fact that what was it? Uh, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago when I... Um, I guess, yeah, it was last week when I had no idea about the Lady Gaga being Harley Quinn thing right. until Julie right. mentioned it. Because I'm just like, I checked out of that kind of stuff. But I know something happened with Indiana Jones today. A new trailer was released and the title was revealed uh, for the new Indiana Jones movie. Um, you would never in a million years guess the title of the Indiana Jones um, movie, nor would you, upon hearing it, guess that it is the title of an Indiana Jones oh, movie. No. God's frozen. Um, missed most of that. I think, uh, I don't know. Hopefully that's just your connection. and Or is it my connection? I don't know. I seem fine. You seem fine. Uh, uh, we, just, don't, uh, don't do this to me now. <laughs> well, just to recap, and I'll turn off some Wi-Fi on some other devices, and hopefully that'll even out. Um, okay. The, yes, the trailer and title for the new Indiana Jones movie re revealed. Um, the title you would never guess is the title of an Indiana Jones movie if you heard it separately from its Indiana Jones component. Um, it is uh, the Dial of Destiny. Okay. Um, um, and then this, this is how I found, this is how I like roundabout found out that this was a, an Indiana Jones thing. You tweeted Dial D for Destiny. As you have to. And I didn't know what that meant because I didn't know what this is in reference to. And I was like, 
I was like, I'm assuming this has something to do with the sight and sound list. Everyone that I follow <laughs> on Twitter, on, on, on film Twitter, is just talking about the sight and sound list. So I'm like looking at the sight and sound list, like, what could this be in reference to? And I couldn't figure out. And then like, I was like, oh, well, I give up trying to figure out what uh, Scott's uh, uh, obscure reference was. Uh, and then like later, I saw some another tweet that said, yeah, the dial of destiny. There you go. Uh, yeah, I watched the trailer just for, you know trying to keep up with the world i try to stay plugged in david uh you know i know you're tuned out of blockbuster land but someone's got a got to pay attention to the world um it looks fine <laughs> like thing was like uh if everyone's complaint with crystal skull was that it was had too much weird cgi stuff in it this has like loads of weird CGI stuff in it. And like, you can tell they just like pasted Ford's face onto like random stunt guys to make him uh-huh. seem a little more agile. Um, and these are just like quick snippets in the trailer. And I'm sure it's like, there's some unfinished VFX work and whatever else, but at the same time, sure. I don't know. It doesn't look very promising. Is that the, uh, so I never saw crystal skull. Is that the main complaint with crystal skull? Cause the literally the only complaint that I have ever registered about crystal skull has something to do with a refrigerator. Yeah. Um, uh, that's like no, the only thing that I ever like has bubbled up in my, like, I don't care about this uh, bubble. Hmm, yeah. Bubble as twice. with most franchise movies that people then will be like, that one doesn't exist. And you know, they'll be like, there's only really three Indiana Jones movies or whatever. Um, there's multitude issues people have. Uh, the fridge thing is an instance early in the film where Indiana Jones has to like rescue something from what he quickly serves as a nuclear testing site. And then he just like jumps in a fridge and closes the door and the like bomb goes off where they're testing it or whatever. And the fridge goes like flying, like, I don't know, five miles or whatever. And just like <laughs> lands in front of the camera, five miles away from the testing site. And then he just like hops out of the fridge and he's fine. Um, so like, that's what people complain about with the fridge. Um, yeah, Shia LaBeouf's fun. character is also kind of like kind of a nothing. Okay. There's a lot of issues people have with it. I mean, I saw it once in theater, so I've kind of forgotten a lot of this, but I do remember people complaining about like, there's a big long chase scene where they're like swinging on vines and stuff like that. And it all looks very like CGI and fakey. And I remember people complaining about that. And so thinking about that with the new trailer and people like being hyped for it, I was like, isn't this just like more of the same thing we've been whining about, but people sure do love seeing, uh, Indiana Harrison Ford and that uh, the hat and whip and so forth. So I suspect well, yeah, that'll be enough. Look. It's a good look. Sure. Um, oh, sorry. I'm just looking it up on IMDb and realizing that it's not a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. That's the other thing people that. continue to be reminded of. Um, I mean, I like James Mangold pretty well. So as far as this sort of thing goes, but people were like angry at Spielberg when he announced he wasn't going to do it. And I was like, the man is like almost 80. He's got to think about like what the final stage of his life looks like. And does he want to make a fifth Indiana Jones movie? <laughs> I get it. <laughs> All right. So uh, we fulfilled our contractual duty to have a top of show topic Perfect. by mentioning the Indiana Jones five uh, 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 trailer. Um, now for somebody who hated Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, yeah. I wanted to say something real quick that I feel like. OK, a. Uh, I, I don't want to give away too many names and this. This would be hard for anyone to look up anyway, so this won't spoil anything. But at one point, a years ago, a very prominent culture writer 
uh, wrote a list of like film podcasts that they were recommending. Okay. It did not include Battleship Pretension. This is what always, here's what always happens with Battleship Pretension. Here's the level we're at. Whenever there's a list like that, it doesn't include Battleship Pretension, but there will always be multiple people in the comments saying, how could you forget Battleship Pretension? That's exactly our level. That's a good cred. Um, Yeah. Um, So this person, um, uh, a person I very much like, by the way, um, didn't include Battleship Pretension. And when people in the comments, someone in the comments was like, why why didn't you put Battleship Pretension in this list? They, this person replied and said, I listened to them early on, but I decided to, you know, cut them from the rotation because they weren't pretentious enough. And I think because this person is someone I very much respect. I think that was probably true back then. Hmm. Um, how long ago was this? Uh, well, I don't know how long ago this person stopped listening. Well, I'm sure I, that, that's yeah. true. I, I guess the timeline really is. I guess yeah. I was curious when the list posted, but that might not tell you any much. Yeah, the list was posted. I don't know. I'm going to say like maybe seven years ago, eight years ago. I don't know. Um, yeah. But. Uh, um, yeah, uh, so but but I, I do I, I do think that I have started to over time live up <laughs> to, to the to the title. And I think. Um, this isn't me, uh, making any comment about you, Scott, but I do worry that Tyler's prolonged absence from the podcast is going to make it even more pretentious. Like Tyler was a, a balancing force. I shouldn't be talking about Tyler in the past sense. He's going to come back someday, but, uh, uh, Tyler has always been like a balancing force to my increasing pretentiousness and lack of interest in the things that most people who I I guess tune in or who go to the movies care about. Um, I mean, I guess the good news there is I still watch those movies. I just don't like them. So is it better to engage with them, but be hostile towards them or not engage with them at all, which is more pretentious? Yeah. I think it's probably more pretentious for me to like, not even know what's what's going on. Like, sure. I don't have a contrarian opinion. My like, that's like, in in Twitter terms, like being a contrarian about popular things is tired. Wired is not even caring enough about popular things to have an opinion <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, sure, sure. But that could come back to bite me, you know, because I think with like music, I've now that I'm an old man, like twenty years ago when I was in college, right? I was vaguely aware that there was a kind of scene going on with bands like my chemical romance. I didn't have any dislike for my chemical romance. It was just like, so immaterial to me that, that, that this like new emo scene was happening, that I didn't right. even bother having an opinion. And now fast forward 20 years and that kind of emo and my chemical romance in particular have turned out to be massively influential and like they're like reunion tours are a big deal. And, and like you hear, um, you hear that, that, that era of emo popping up in other kinds of music that it's taken very seriously. And I, and, and like, so it kind of came back to bite me that I only like in the past, like three or four years, like started listening to my chemical romance. I'm still not entirely sold on them. I have to say, but, um, 
but that could, well, you know, what if, um, I don't know, like what if things shake out that the Russo brothers are the future of cinema? Right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of part of what we got to a couple of weeks ago with like the dorm room wall posters thing and the idea right. of like taste turning over and stuff, which is why, I mean, I, I think I genuinely am just more into those kind of movies than some of our most pretentious brethren. But it's also mm-hmm. why I try not to be too dismissive of them, because I can tell that it's plugging into something with a certain crowd that's a little younger than we are that... um will have an influence on popular taste in a decade or so. And so is worth taking seriously. Um, I mean, I don't have the time or interest to apply that to music or most other arts, but as movies are my jam, yeah, you gotta pick. Yeah. I gotta, I, I gotta at least keep up. Um, as for, but it's, there's like so little in the aesthetics of like Marvel films that it's hard to imagine how that will take purchase. I think maybe, maybe like a sense of humor will maybe the like franchise building thing will someone else will actually do it successfully as opposed to like the dozen companies that tried to do it unsuccessfully in the past 10 years. Um, Maybe someone else will do it well. Um, But the aesthetics of it, I I can't imagine sticking. There's so little there to like latch onto. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see, we we will see we we will see but um uh I have always been impressed that by the uh, the fact that you keep up to some extent there are things you like did you see Uncharted No I mean I was curious about Uncharted it came out I think at a time when I just wasn't seeing as much theatrically okay and I heard it wasn't very good but I was curious about it before it came out Did you see the Sonic the Hedgehog movie no, that I like actively resist. I, I friends invited me to go see it, and I was like, "No, a bridge too okay. far." Yeah, there's a yeah, you, there is a limit. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I want to quickly tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day. Um, I mean, I don't actually know if Tyler's using them right now, um, uh, but. Uh, today I was on my tweaked audio.com earbuds. I was listening to, uh, speaking of me being an old man, the, uh, for the most part, the music of the cure, which I love great band, one of the greats. Um, but most of the songs you think of when you think of, of, as when you think of the cure came out just slightly before the time that I was like really cognizant sure, yeah. of what was on the radio. I, I came to it later, but the first cure single that I was old enough to like be listening to the radio and, and know like, Oh, that's the cure would have been Friday. I'm in love. Hmm. And now that album wish is 30 years old and there's a new remastered extended edition with a bunch of like demos and instrumental versions and, and live versions of all these songs. And I've been listening to it uh, all day and I, 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 I mention all that because like, I think I subconsciously always thought of wish as like, not as good as the classic cure, just because uh, it, it felt like it was like at the tail end of, of their like heyday. So I've always thought sure. of wish and, it, and it's probably partially because Friday I'm in love. It's a perfectly catchy song, but it's like, as far as cure singles go, it's never been, you know, a, 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 a big one for me. It's, it's just kind of a, um a, a slight poppy song but uh, also it always like, has been big for me so we yeah. have different pages 
Well, but this going back and listening to Wish front to back multiple times, I realized like Friday I'm in Love is like an outlier for sure. the the sonic texture of of that album. It has these like sprawling songs like end and and from the edge of the deep green sea and stuff. And uh it's and especially this new remaster, which Robert Smith oversaw. And he talked about in an interview, like he's always loved the songs from Wish, but he was like touring when they were mastering the album. It never got he's always like always unhappy with like how it got mixed. And mm. so this is like his chance to go back. And so it looks it I mean, it looks still movie movie guy. Uh it's <laughs> it sounds great. And like I feel like it's a it's a it's a much better cure album than I ever gave it credit for because of my like weird bias of like they were better before like in the eighties and this is a nineties cure album. Therefore mm. it's not as good. Um, but it's great. And it sounded great in my tweaked audio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweaked audio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweaked and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Scott, we're back. David, let's get into it, shall we? It let's. is the episode number is eight hundred and twenty. That is a number that is that is roundly divisible by ten, but not roundly divisible by fifty. Which means you guessed it, listeners, longtime loyal listeners. There are the few who are hanging on, who are hanging out in comment sections, standing up for us when we're not on lists. You know what the fuck is up. You know that it's a profile episode, it, which which we should be calling. It's been years that we've been doing them as tribute episodes as well uh, uh, to people who have have passed away. And um, uh, we're doing a big one, one of the biggest names in the history of cinema um what is that name scott uh that name is uh one that i will probably uh use multiple pronunciations for throughout the course of this episode but it is jean-luc godard uh the french of course are much better at like kind of pronouncing the last consonant in words and americans always sound very affected when they do that but you're like you're not really supposed to pronounce the d but you like you kind of pronounce the d at the end there like you swallow it a little bit yeah yeah uh you kind of imply it um it makes more sense when you have a french accent so i will surely do either a bad american attempt at that or just pronounce the d outright as most americans do um yeah i'm gonna be pronouncing the d or maybe i'll just go with jlg yeah which Um, is how he credited himself many times yeah, but it always uh, makes me think of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which is JGL. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, sad they never worked together. Sure. Is it? Uh, it also makes me think of those tractors you sometimes see around. That <laughs> you ever see those that are just labeled JLG? No. And I'm like, I don't know what that stands for. But it always <laughs> makes me think of a guitar. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, um, yeah, so but there passed- was like, I mean, I'm jumping. We're going to go. Listeners know how we do this. We do yeah. this this chronologically. But I know like. I didn't get a chance to see. Um, uh, I, I watched a bunch of movies in preparation for this. I didn't watch King Lear, hmm. um, uh, but that's one that has like 
stars in it like yeah. at least in small like I, I don't know i don't know how big part the parts of like molly ringwald and and peter sellers are but like i know he'd gone on to well you've got it broken down into into eras that we'll get into um but it would have been interesting to see a, like a younger crop of 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 movie stars uh appear in <laughs> in in modern day godard films so, such someone like a joseph gordon levitt yeah i mean he he made several attempts over the course of his career to work with more American stars. Um, it just kind of never came together partially because, and we'll see this crop up many times, he was incredibly self-destructive. And so he <laughs> would have that idea, but then kind of sabotage any efforts to actually see it come to fruition. King Lear is very much an outlier in that regard, but even up till uh, goodbye to language, he wanted to make that not with like huge American stars, but he wanted to make it with Vince Cassell, who's a pretty big name in French cinema. Um, and, he kind of like always had this idea that he would make a great kind of ordinary classical film. Um, Richard Brody, whose biography will inform a lot of what I'll be pulling from for this episode, uh, interviewed Godard in 2000 and noted that even then he, he was like, maybe I'll finally make a film, you know, like I can't remember the director he compared to that he wanted to kind of emulate, but like kind of a classical melodrama like they made in the forties. Mm-hmm. And throughout his career, he was always trying to make a movie like, the ones he kind of came of age on. Um, I pulled a quote from him that I figured would be worth mentioning at the top of the episode, which is, I have always detested America and adored the American cinema, um, which very much pervades his career, this sense of movie mania that he became infected with in his fairly late uh, age. He didn't really start to get into movies until his late teens, early 20s. Um, He talks about this in one of his movies about not having that kind of like aha moment when he was five or whatever, going to see uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or something. Although when he was five, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs hadn't come out yet, which is strange to think about um, because he was born in 1930. When I was was five, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs celebrated its 50th anniversary and was re-released in theaters and is the first movie that I remember seeing in the theater. It is for me as well, actually. Um, I think it was some kind of similar re-release pattern. Um, but yeah, so he never, he only saw, started to see films later. So I think he started to kind of see them from a different perspective. He didn't have kind of, well, he did have the pure love of cinema, but he saw them more as art objects, um, which was the big kind of delineation that he and the other Kaede cinema crowd had, um, when they kind of reinvented the way we see movies. Um, but yeah, he passed away almost three months ago at this point, I think it was September 12th, um, and passed away is maybe not the right word to use considering he, uh, enacted his own death, uh, via assisted suicide in Switzerland where he's lived for the past or where he lived for the past 40, no, almost 50 years. Um, and I was, uh, surprisingly sad to hear that he had died, um, he was getting up there in age. I figured, you know, at some well, point, yeah, why surprising though? That's well, because he had been, he was old and because I had kind of in the back of my head figured we would do one of these episodes at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when Alain Rene passed away and Alain Rene means more to me, I would say than Godard does. Um, but he was old and he was going to die at some point. And so I, I kind of like with each new Alain Rene film, I was like, this could be the last, you know, this would probably be the end of his career or whatever else. And so like a decade of building up that sense of like things coming to an end, but Godard was still, I mean, Rene was too, but 
there were two films that he was supposedly working on up to when he was dying that were rumored for can earlier this year. Like, yeah, it seemed that. like he was still very much in it. And I know his, I knew his health was flail, failing because there were interviews with his recent cinematographer, um, whose name I have written down somewhere in these notes, but, um, and who I'll get to later. Um, but he had noted that, uh, Godard's hands weren't quite what they used to be. And so editing was taking longer than it used to. And Godard himself had been saying that he really only made movies at this point because he needed income to live. Um, And so I I knew he was declining, but at the same time for his life to end, not only at all, but I guess so suddenly and and by his own decision was kind of shocking. And I I think just more largely, I hadn't realized how much I invested in the idea of him as like, one of the last great titans of cinema and to my mind the last great titan of cinema i don't think there's anyone alive who has contributed as much to the art form and had as wide an impact as he did um when i tweeted this when he died you know several people suggested well there's still spielberg and scorsese but i think as much as i love them i don't think they're appreciating how immense godard's impact on movies was and um, how much he really changed things and how much he bent the film to bent the form to his whims in terms of personal expression. You know, Spielberg and Scorsese are incredibly talented, insightful and brilliant directors, but they're essentially using forms that they know will work. And I think in Spielberg's case in particular, his expertise at storytelling has now become so great that people now view him as like vaguely avant-garde because um, people will complain about like him having too many endings or something like that. It's like, no, (laughs) he knows what he's doing and there's definite purpose with them. It's just that it doesn't fit into the most common structure. Um, But they are essentially like incredibly talented storytellers. Godard was constantly challenging what the form could do and not just as a means of challenging the form. I mean, he had moments of that as well, but they were to an ends of personal expression and to try to find a better way to express himself. And that kind of artist is still around, but not in the sense that they can have the kind of impact that he did. And it's really, and that's just partially the kind of cinema, you know, cinema has gotten to a point where it's not as popular in art form as it was when Breathless came out. And so the effect a film can have on the culture at large is so much smaller and the commercial risks of really derailing what we assume films can do or are capable of um, are too great for anyone to really make that mark anymore. So it's just, it's, it's strange to reconcile and it's strange to think in some ways that we were still in an era where um, someone as um, influential and massive as Godard was still alive, but um, his passing really did, I think in, to me anyway, end that. Um, <clears throat> you talked about like personal expression and obviously that's what, you know, um, it's, it really helps to, uh, you know, I'd seen, probably a dozen Godard films before he died. And I watched like 10 more over mm-hmm. the past few weeks. And I really like, even though that second number is lower, I feel like I got to know him better by watching a bunch in short succession. Big time. Um, because I think I had often thought of him. In fact, don't, don't do this Scott or listeners. Um, <laughs> I have over the years, through Blu-ray releases and, and, and restorations and stuff 
written a number of reviews of Godard films. Going back through them after he died, I like am embarrassed by most of what I've written. And um, I think before this, before he died, and I watched a bunch of his movies, I did think of him as uh, often thought of him as more of a cerebral director than an emotional one hmm. and watch but 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 really like steeping myself in his films has i've done a 180 on that i, th- I think um there's there's something about and i i kind of tweeted about this when i because i tweeted about how bad most of my writing on godard has been <laughs> um and it's because his movies resist the framework the rubric of analysis that we fall back on when we talk about movies sure. a lot of the times and so it's it that's i think that's why i've often had i'm admitting my own shortcomings as a writer and critic here but i've often had difficulty writing about him because i can't go to my bag of tricks <laughs> you, you yeah. know um and um but but i could say the 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 cure for that or i don't know if it's the cure but the the remedy to some extent for that is to do what i did and just like dive in and watch a bunch of movies because you you really do start to see um a very personal and an emotional worldview in addition to um i i do still think there's a lot of intellectual stuff and i do think that like i i still think that a a lot of what you, you know I can't remember what term you used, like upending or challenging um, standards and norms or, or the expectations of cinema. A lot of that still does feel very intentional with him, I think, um, especially in like some of the later films that that feel to me almost like intentionally antagonistic toward the audience. Sure. You know, I have there's a couple of films that I have a love hate relationship with um, that we'll get to uh uh later but um um yeah i guess this is all just to 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 say that i i feel like i cracked open a new point of view on godard's films just by watching a bunch in a short period of time yeah uh i mean a few caveats i'll mention up front one is the sheer breadth of his work and i think his work does benefit from being seen on the whole in a way that a lot of filmmakers don't i mean there are several films that would work perfectly well individually, but most of them are so much better when viewed collectively. That said, there are a <laughs> lot. Uh, I kind of tweeted jokingly that I finally fi- watched my final Godard feature film, and it was only like 44% of the total work he had done. He yeah. did somewhere, I, the exact math on this is very hard to figure out because he didn't credit himself on a lot of the things he did in the late sixties and early seventies. So it's not exact, but there's about 131 various works of varying lengths that he embarked on. Um, I saw something in the neighborhood of 50, 55. So um, it's, it's a lot to tackle. Uh, The other caveat I'll mention is that um, as we'll suggest with his breadth of work, he was a very he was very much engaged with the media as well. And so there's a lot of things that have been written about him, interviews with him. And mm-hmm. so I didn't do as wide of research as I maybe would have liked. I tweeted right before we started recording that I could have done this for a year. It was so much fun to dive into and so endlessly fascinating to dive into every corner of his career. 
but I, like I said, I didn't mainly re- rely on Richard Brody's biography, which is fantastic and is unbelievably well done. Um, as well as the, all the various criterion discs I have their booklets, their supplements, et cetera. And well, not just criterion Kino yeah. and, um, Cohen cinema group and arrow all put out immensely great and very helpful editions of his work that really kind of helped illuminate a lot of what I loved about them. Um, and so those were made, made of rocks of research, but it's impossible. I mean, it would be very hard to really get a full sense of things. Uh, the last ca- caveat I wanted to mention is that um, we've talked a lot about the idea of like problematic directors on the show. And Godard is always someone that I've referenced as particularly difficult for me to reconcile because I, I don't think I'm like necessarily I separate the art from the artist type um, because I don't really see there being a, a contradiction between loving a film and disliking the person who made it. I don't like mm-hmm. that's not even in my like mental wheelhouse. Maybe it's like the Catholic in me, but wrestling with kind of our collective uh, nature as sinners is just a, a, something I go out into the world with. I, my assumption is that most people are kind of fucked up in some way. And the place of art isn't to like posit itself morally, but to unveil some sort of like honesty and truth. And to whatever degree one finds it valuable, Godard certainly told his truth consistently throughout his career, often to his own detriment. Um, so I expect in this episode, we'll discuss a lot of misogyny, racism, anti-Semitism, general rage and self-destructive behavior, and even some stuff that borders on pedophilia. And if there's any reason that should discount his films for anyone listening, so be it. Um, just know that either this episode will greatly appeal to you or um, because maybe it's not engaging with the sense of the artist is a great man or exceptionally not appeal to you because of that reason. <laughs> um, but by the same token, all of his films are about holding a lot of ideas together in your head and dealing with the contradictory nature of yourself and the world. And so um, that's just a necessary part of diving in. A um, couple things. I was going to ask you really when you're talking about giants, I know these people, not, not every new wave director is giant is a giant, but who I, I, and I know you, you are, have more, you're more aware of, or have more of breadth of knowledge on the new wave um, French new wave. Than, than I do. Who's left? Who's still alive? I know Claude Lelouch. Who else is still alive from the new wave? I don't know if I would consider Claude Lelouch part of the new wave. Really? See, see, I thought you had the most liberal definition of the, the new wave, but... No, I actually have a fairly... Um, well, maybe I would consider him. Let's see. The first film he made was in 1960. Um, weirdly, my definitions are more chronological than anything um i should probably dive into some of lelouch's earlier films to get a better sense of things of how well they fit into the new wave but um my feeling is tends to be that if you didn't make your first film before like 1962 it doesn't count and so um there's a lot of people who get shunt out of that pretty quickly because of that and like even that's like should be pretty generous the new wave is much broader than i think people give it credit for something like 130 people made their first film in France between 1958 and 1962 or something like that. It was a massive movement that I think is sometimes too uh, narrow, too narrowly defined um, in terms of like just focusing on the Cahiers du Cinema crowd. But um, in terms of the people who really defined the new wave, which you think of Godard Truffaut, Romare, 
um, Chabral, uh, Rivette, Varda, Renee, Chris Marker to a certain extent. Now, Godard was the last of them. So in terms of like the big stalwarts of the French New Wave, that's that chapter is definitely closed. All right. A um, couple other notes. Um, I have, you said you have 50 something. I think I've got based, okay. Based on your list, I have 22. But I did watch, and you don't have it on your list, um, a 2001 short from what's the 10 minutes older of the cello is the anthology film. And there's a short hmm. in it called In the Darkness of Time, which, um, uh, got, I, some, someone on Twitter like linked to it on YouTube. It's since been taken down, but like right after ah. he died, it was like on YouTube and it's only, it's just about 10 minutes long. And I, um, watched that and it's not on your list. Um, I don't know. Well, it is that. now. Okay. Um, I mean, this is what I mean. Like his career is very hard to really account for. Yeah. Um, and I won't have much to, to say about it, but, um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm probably going to be, um, r- relying on you for most of the, uh, uh, saying things anyway, this episode, <laughs> <laughs> but what I wanted to say, you've put together a spreadsheet for us to go through. Um, and it's very, uh, uh, thorough, thorough as, uh, Julian Moore would say in the big Lebowski. <laughs> um, uh, even though, because we normally go by release year, and you've got—I see good, right from the second film—you've got it like production year, I guess. Well, there are a couple that I had to reorder. I didn't completely go through this list, so I'll probably jump slightly out of order from what you're seeing. Um, I've got it on my own list. I think pretty well in order. Um, there are just a couple of instances where uh, the production year is more informative in terms of talking about his career than the release okay. year. Um, because he worked so quickly is really what it comes down to. I mean, you know, he was working for what's about 60 years, but 131 works within there. Uh, that's a very quick rate. I mean, I, th- I think his longest break until 2000 was three years and most years he released more than one film. So, Okay. Um, well, let's just jump in and go through the list uh, as you have it. Yeah, I mean, he made a number of short films that I think are well worth watching um, before he made Breathless. But to me, it really does start with Breathless. And it's it's one of those films that like is so incredible on so many levels and which um, has so few comparisons throughout cinema. I mean, the closest you could come is Citizen Kane um, in terms of somebody completely figuring themselves out from the jump and finding a way to express that, that is challenging the audience, but still very ingratiating to them. Um, And I mean, it was a massive, massive hit. It made the the exact figures on its box office are hard to determine, but Brody's biography said it made something to the tune of like 50 times its budget. (laughs) I mean, its budget was very small as you can suspect while watching it, but at the same time, like, it, the depth of its success is sometimes overlooked as a popular film, considering it's like a great art house classic. The big thing I definitely want to highlight at the start of it is that I think Godard identified himself and his purpose right from his opening line better than almost any director who's ever lived, which the first line of the film is, after all, I'm an asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you could not find a better way to start 
uh, a 60 year career that turned out the way Godard's did than that. Um, but it's immediate appeal. I mean, I, I had it on earlier just to kind of like get a little bit of the juice again. And it's immediate appeal is so evident. I mean, Belmondo is so charismatic. Um, him just rolling down the street, like singing to himself, talking to himself, cursing out other drivers, ogling girls by the road and talking to the audience. It's like you couldn't find a better way to start the film. Um, Godard did have quite a hard time getting it produced. Um, initially, he was actually one of the last kind of Kaye directors to start in the medium. Um, by then, Chabrol had already made two films, which were very popular. Truffaut had just debuted 400 Blows at Cannes. Um, Romero hadn't yet made his first film, but he had made several that were in like the 50 minute range and Rivette had shot, but not yet released, um, Paris belongs to us. And so Brody tells this great story of Godard, like walking around Paris at the time 400 blows is premiering. And he's like, damn it. Truffaut's debuting his hot film. I'm still here in Paris. I got to get something done. So he stole some money from Kaye and took the train down to Cannes and uh, tried to get something financed. Fortunately, uh, Jose de Beauregard, who um, became his uh, consistent producer for a number of years, uh, was there and ready to make a deal. And Truffaut and Godard had been cooking up this kind of outline of a screenplay where their small town hood uh, shoots a cop and then goes out hiding in Paris, hooking up with his sometimes lover, Patricia, played by Gene Seberg. Um, and so they had something they could sell pretty quickly that seemed commercially appealing and which they could build off Truffaut's name and the popularity and the huge success that 400 Blows had already had at Cannes. Um, Gene Seberg was kind of Godard's first choice for the role. He, unlike most of the world, recognized that Bonjour Tristesse is a fantastic film and really wanted to work with her. Um, and fortunately, she was living in Paris. She just married a Frenchman and um, knew French and was kind of not because Bonjour Tristesse wasn't very successful and something just broke outside. Um, and uh, her first film, uh, St. Joan, which she like got through a high school audition process, basically like auto permitted did like this nationwide casting search and she auditioned for it and somehow got chosen, but neither films were particularly successful. So she wasn't really in demand as a Hollywood actress, um, but she was living in France and Godard loved her and really wanted her in the film. She was very put off by Godard when they met and instantly recognized him as a misogynist. No. Um, <laughs> but her husband encouraged her to do it. Columbia was reluctant to lend her out for this unknown production, but her husband actually flew to Los Angeles and told them she'd retire if she they didn't let her make it. Um, so Godard offered them half of the film's non-French revenue or $15,000 in cash. They took the cash much, I'm sure, to their eventual regret based on <laughs> the money it made. Uh, Belmondo was already kind of getting work in French movies, but um, wanted to take this role because he'd done some of the Godard shorts and Godard was like, when I make a feature, you're going to be at the star, I promise. And he'd been doing like kind of supporting roles in vaguely popular movies. At the time, he was weighing an offer between this and a new movie by Julian uh, Devouvier, who was a very popular French director. And his agent was like, you have to take the Devouvier job and told him you're making the biggest mistake of your life by taking the Godard job, which paid like almost nothing. Um he made the equivalent of like $800 today, but <laughs> Truffaut for just writing the story got $2,000. So Belmondo for like acting in the film got this like fraction of the price. Um, but it ended up working out, you know, I mean, if you had to pick kind of like a single film to represent the new waves, this might be it. 
I mean, it certainly in my like, uh, you know, intro to film history uh, or early like film school, it, it, this and shoot the piano player were the yeah. like two movies they showed us uh, for the French new wave. And this was certainly this. So this certainly would have been the first Godard that I saw when I was probably mm. 19, 18 or 19, uh, 19, maybe uh sophomore in college, first year uh, in Chicago at film school. Um, and I really enjoyed it, but it, um, uh, it was also my introduction to, uh, uh, I think it would become a, cur- or, you know, is, is recurring, uh, reaction to, um, Goddard's films that I've come to like about them, but it, but took some, uh, adjustment where I was like, Oh, this guy isn't like a cool anti-hero. This guy is just an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, there's, he tells you right away. Yeah. But there are so many characters in Goddard's films that are like, uh, you know, we're, we're so used to like the, especially like at that time, me like having become a film buff at the time of like nineties, neo-noir, like I was used to like, yeah, like I said, cool anti-heroes. Like, yeah, I know this guy's like not a good guy, but he's cool. And like Babondo is cool, but he's also like kind of an idiot. Yeah. Um, and that's, great... that's another thing that's going to come up a lot in Godard's films. Oh, yeah. That um, uh, there, there are times that he seems to be looking down at his characters, maybe like highlighting their their idiocy. But I don't think that's again, having watched a bunch in a row, I think, I think less, I don't think he's looking down at them as much as I maybe used to think. I think um, he's identifying with them. I mean, there's a film we'll get to much later that Godard plays a character literally introduced as the idiot. Um, I think, yeah. I think he sees it in himself a lot of the side. Um, and well, I have, uh, there's still such an instinctive feeling of that Belmondo plays in the film where it's just pure id. And I think Goudard yeah, is just yeah. working out that side of himself a lot of the times. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, it's also like a much more purposeful film than you might expect, considering how loose it feels. The idea very much for Goudard was to make like a, a film that felt like a Jackson Pollock painting. And I, I don't know the extent to which Jack, that exact comparison holds. I don't know the history of Jackson Pollock's career or his visibility in France <laughs> at the time or whatever else. But like that idea of the act of making a film being part of the texture of the experience of watching it was very much on his mind. Um, he even shot with a film stock that um, was experimental. He essentially told Raul Cotard and this, like, he wasn't expecting what with Raul Cotard at all. He had picked another cinematographer and then his producer was like, no, I think you should go with Cotard. And he liked the tests he did. And so that worked out. And so he asked Cotard like what his favorite uh, film stock was for like shooting under like poor conditions, low lighting, that kind of stuff. Cause he knew he wouldn't have many resources. And so he picked something of those produced solely for still cameras. And so they bought out like an entire photography hobby stores stock of still camera uh, stock and use that. And so they had to like thread it together manually into the camera um, and like paste all these reels together that are made for like holding in like a handheld camera. Um, and hoping that they would get the result they want, but ultimately like kind of leaving it, leaving it to chance to a certain extent. And there's a lot in the film. I mean, a lot of his working methods were established right away. The idea of rewriting on the day and feeding his actors dialogue that they barely memorized. Um, 
so that they would not be able to have a preconception of their characters. They would be inventing it kind of on the spot and whatever they would gather would be um, the best they could do. He, there are periods where he would shoot for an hour a day, maybe. There's a great story where he, his producer found him just sitting in a cafe in the middle of the day. He said, why are you shooting? And they like, got into a fist fight. Um, <laughs> and this is something he would continue throughout his career. And the idea was that whenever he's shooting, like he should be inspired and there should be something he actively wants to do with that. And he graduated throughout his career. He found a better way to make that work financially. And he became a better producer as he went along, but that essential approach never, uh, never wavered. And that was always his way of tackling things. Um, so yeah, uh, I was trying to remember where I was building to with that, but essentially like, oh yeah, he told Belmondo, don't think about the film tonight. We'll lose two hours tomorrow, making you forget whatever you were off imagining by yourself. The idea was always whatever they could get on the day was going to be the best thing. Oh yeah. And that means feeds into the editing. Like the big th famous thing was breathless is that invented like the idea of the jump cut, which was this kind of like amateurish sign that people didn't know what they're doing. If suddenly the scene cuts to people doing something else, but within the same space. But, mm -hmm. um, his first edit of the film was something like two and a half hours. And so he asked uh, John Pierre Melville, who's in the film, like, how do I get this thing down? And Melville told him what most people were doing at the time, which is like, take out all the scenes that don't add to the plot. And Godard was like, okay, I'll take out all the moments I don't like. And so he just like starts <laughs> snipping out all the moments that weren't exciting or invigorating or whatever else and invented the jump cut. And that kind of thing is, is like immediately what I'm saying in terms of like him bending the form towards his means he wasn't interested in what he was supposed to be doing even from his first film where he had the most on the line he was interested in what he found exciting and it it really i mean it established his whole career and we'll come across many instances throughout his career where people kept trying to get him to kind of redo breathless in a way or kind of re recapture the magic it was by far his most successful film mm -hmm. but um he kept embracing that insofar as it would get him money to make a film but rejecting it as soon as he started to make the next film and that even starts with the film right after this unless you have something else to say on breathless no let's move on to the film right after this again you have this in production order because this didn't come out till later because it was for political reasons right yeah the petite soldat um the little soldier is one a fantastic film um and two it's important to talk about it a little before the rest because uh it's where he met anna karina um karina had been on his radar at the time of breathless he had seen her in an ad for soap um which is funny because that's actually how igmar bergman first noticed bb anderson as well was in an ad for soap so i often think of the two together um and he was like, well, you're naked in the ad. Surely you'll want to get topless for my film. And she told him like, no, what you're not seeing is that underneath the soap suds, I have a bikini on. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> um, so she was supposed to play the role in Breathless where uh, Belmondo early in the film that like, goes to visit that girl. He's like been kind of seeing and steal some money from her while she's like changing. The idea was that she would be changing in a more active way, let's say, with Karina in the role. The woman he ended up casting there was actually Truffaut's mistress, which I think is probably why he didn't have her undressed on camera, but it's just a guess there. Um, so yeah, he was already pretty taken with her and then reached out to her again for Le Petit Soldat because she had such a bad experience with him uh, during the audition process or Breathless. She was just like, whatever. But some actor friends of hers were like, had already heard that Breathless was going to be a big deal and were like, no, you should really consider taking the meeting. And fortunately, well, 
I guess it depends on how you think about it. Fortunately, in many respects, she did. Unfortunately, I would say for her personal life, maybe not the best, but we'll get into that as the episode goes on. Um, Le Petit Soldat is a really, really great film, and I'm glad that Criterion finally put it out so that more people have access to it because it was very hard to see for a long time. Um, Certainly starting from its inception, France did ban it because it was sympathetic to a deserter at the time of the Algerian War. Um, It depicted torture, and and some point in the film, it's even suggested that France will lose the war because they don't really believe in it. That ended up being right as well. Um, It's also just a much, like, colder film than breathless it's more in keeping with the tone of like kind of the lonely noir films that godard was inspired by you really feel the nicholas ray influence in this and by the same same token i think it's one of the films that if you're not that into godard i think this is a more accessible film even though it does have stretches where um there's just a lot of people saying seemingly contradictory things and positing about the nature of humanity and saying things like uh photography is true his film is true 24 times per second and all this kind of like famous godardisms um mm-hmm. it has a more central narrative than i think a lot of those films and a more accessible uh protagonist yeah again um it feels like a lot of we'll, we'll get to a couple more examples a lot of early godard is him being a fan of american genre movies and then filtering that through his uh <laughs> his own view of of what cinema could and should do um so if breathless is his crime noir this is his like spy movie yeah um and it and it it does feel like that i could i see what you're saying because this is one of the ones that i would just watch for the first time recently um <clears throat> uh, i definitely see what you're saying this feels like uh if you don't like Godard, this would be one you might like because it does hang together and it does feel like a uh, a spy movie and not a like intentionally uh challenging deconstruction of a spy movie really yeah and it's it's a political film without and i think this is actually is pretty important to regarding godard's ideas of politics it's it doesn't have necessarily a political perspective i think maybe the most overt example of this is that there is a torture scene but it's actually the uh, French organization that was kind of advocating for Algerian freedom that tortures Bruno, the protagonist. It's not like the French government that's after him. Um, but it also kind of is damning of the idea of neutrality that like, if you're neutral, you are in a sense taking the perspective of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, I don't, I think in retrospect, it's like, oh, of course, Godard made this political film early in his career, but it's tough to really reconcile how bold the choice it was for him right after Breathless came out for a film that popular and that like uh, humorous and fun and romantic and sweet for him to take such a turn into hardcore politics that attack the French government's uh mission as it were in algeria which was you know essentially the french equivalent of the vietnam war this like doomed effort at colonialism that uh greatly divided the country um for him to really tackle this was a huge step and i think indicates a lot of what we'll see as the decade progresses in terms of his feeling torn between whether he should take a political position um or commit himself to cinema because cinema was of course his first love, but he was becoming more and more politically active as the decade went on. And I mean, on that subject it is worth noting that 
it's very evident through Godard's film that he was incredibly intelligent. I think sometimes that suggestion that his films are more intellectual suggests a degree of wisdom that I don't think he always possessed. There's no question to me that he was making connections between things that a lot of people weren't and was thinking about things in a far grander and deeper way than a lot of people were. But that didn't always mean he had the best perspective on them. It meant that he could see things, but he didn't know what to do with them. And this is a good example. And I, I think we're really honest example of depicting someone who's very lost in um, the world they're living in and the way that post-war, the post-war world order was expanding in a way that people were having difficulty reconciling. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's not one, like I said, that's been as kind of commended because it hasn't been as widely available, but one I hope more people kind of are taking in. Um, um, speaking of uh, feeling bad for Anna Karina, you were talking about her real life, but there is something kind of like upsetting and maybe a little misogynistic about spoilers. The fact that she, her character in this movie dies a horrible death off screen that is just like mentioned in, in passing. <laughs> like, oh yeah, they tortured her to death and like <laughs> you never see her again. Yeah, uh, I think that's kind of in keeping with Godard's love of literature. I think the thing, it, the reason I say that is it most reminds me of the ending of, I think it's Farewell to Arms. Um, okay. The, uh, why can't I think of the freaking famous author? Hemingway. Um, Hemingway novel, which, spoiler alert, ends pretty much the same way of someone very briefly mentioning that their great love had died. But it it has to me the same gutting effect of like, yeah. Oh, it's all just ended and life just sucks. Um, yeah. And so I guess th that points to what you were saying early on in terms of Godard's films being more emotional than they may initially appear is that he could very quickly dash off these incredibly effective emotional beats very quickly um, without feeling like he needs to dwell on them for them to sink in. Um, but yeah, at the end of right after they finished uh, filming the, uh, he and Godard, or he and Godard, he and Anna Karina married, and his next film is very much about how awesome it is to be married to Anna Karina, <laughs> um, which is why I wanted to talk about these slightly out of order. Because, okay, so, okay, go ahead. Uh, because a woman is a woman is like completely like what people want out of the French New Wave, I think. It's breezy, it's fun, it's got a lot of jokes, it's got a lot of music, it's got a lot of inter. Uh, references to the new wave in general. Um, it's very self-aware and it's just a blast to watch. Um, it's kind of his take on a musical, but yeah, that's what I was going to say before about like the Petit Soldat is an, an honest to God spy thriller. Um, and, it, but a woman is a woman is a movie that if you sat down saying, Oh, this is a musical. I'm going to watch a musical. You probably wouldn't be satisfied You're in the pretty way. Pretty disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be, I mean, I think most overtly because the music drops out whenever someone starts singing. So they'll have like these stretches of music and this great Michelle Legrand score. And then as soon as Anna Karina starts singing, um, that'll drop out completely. Um, I think the thing that's interesting about a lot of her collaborations with Godard early on, and which I think she was aware of, is that Godard was only going to feed her desires for movies so much. Um, what she really wanted, and which the film kind of plainly states, is to be in a big Hollywood musical and kind of a very mainstream kind of comedy kind of thing. 
and Godard kept feeding her things that were anything but. And even this film, which, like I said, is a lot of fun. There's like great little special effects where she'll just like walk through a doorway and be in a new costume or yeah, no less, you know, less artificial, but no less magical of her just like making the bed where she just like takes the sheet and just like plummets on the bed, which is like such a joy to watch. Yeah. Um, but it's very much like actively deconstructing. And there's still a lot of like genuinely harsh emotional stuff i mean the film story is about a woman who decides to get pregnant when her boyfriend refuses to help her out in that regard she recruits um his more than willing best friend played by jean paul mondo um to do the job and uh so it's got kind of this lubitian setup in terms of there's a trio that's all kind of vaguely in love with one another but which um Godard invests with a lot of genuine feeling. You know, it, it's got a lot of the touches that I, I mentioned Lubitsch because I think of Trouble in Paradise in the same regard um, of people being all drawn together, but the film taking seriously the romantic entanglements that come from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still a terrific film. I, Godard would regard it as his first um, proper film. I kind of regarded his last amateur film. It's still got a lot of random instinctual touches in terms of the handheld camera work in terms of the way scenes kind of build and fade um i think by the time he makes his next film that's where we really see him lock in as a filmmaker as it were um and i still love the film's last line which is not translatable exactly to english because the wordplay doesn't work where um one of the characters says like oh you are um I, I don't know how to translate to English, but he uses the word unfam, and she says, non, je suis unfam, which is, of course, no, I am a woman. Whereas he's trying to say, like, oh, no, you're terrible or whatever. Um, there's no, like, English wordplay that uh, works right. quite as well, but uh, points to Godard's constant fascination with language. Uh, yeah, I don't have much more to say about this, because this is this would have been probably the second Godard film I mm. saw, because the... Uh, Criterion DVD came out, I'm guessing, like 2002, 2003. Uh, and that was when I saw it, and I haven't seen it since. So it's been almost 20 years. It's one of only two films of his I've actually seen on 35mm. The Academy played it several years ago. Um, and I've seen it a bunch of times. But yeah, it is interesting that when I was first getting into Godard, there were only like four of his movies available on Criterion. And I think now they have like 12 or so. And time marches on um his next film is definitely an indication of the kind of films i mean in terms of feeding anna karina stuff that she was building her star persona in a huge way but which wasn't the kind of thing she wanted to necessarily make um and she was uh very upset with the way viva Savi turned out ultimately it's a film about a woman who kind of through necessity descends into prostitution and prostitution is something that Godard will explore a ton throughout his career, especially in these initial 10 years. Um, But was, I think, and this is why I kind of made the separation. It was the first film where he seemed to be really trying to distinguish himself as a filmmaker and trying to be a little less fly by the seat of his pants. Um, He even said before making the film, basically I would like to try to reveal what modern philosophy calls existence in opposition to essence but at the same time thanks to cinema to show that there is no real opposition between the two that existence supposes essence and vice versa and that it is beautiful that it be so um and he even told his assistant he's like 
give me some books on cinematography. I have to learn some technique. And you can see right from the opening scene where it's like all these shots of the back of Anna Karina's head and the person she's talking to, who we find out is kind of her estranged husband, um, that he's more pointedly trying to establish a sense of technique. Some of this was actually a reaction to a common Truffaut made in the press where he separated out like intellectual directors from um, more like spectacular directors. And he put Godard in the spectacular camp and Godard was like, I'll show you intellectualism. I'll show you shots of the back of people's heads and disassociated bodies and stuff. And so he made Viva Sauvy, but it is, uh, it, it is a distancing film in some ways, but at the same time, I know it's one that a lot of people who don't normally like Godard really like um, Julie adores it. Um, and she's not, doesn't tend to be a huge Godard person. Um so it has kind of an interesting push and pull in that regard in that it's really about a central character who goes through a definitive emotional arc, but because it has these different like chapter titles and it's very sectioned off and the cinematography can be a little distancing. It's definitely the first film where you see Godard's Brechtian influence. Um, it, I can see how someone maybe feel it's a bit distancing and including Corinna herself. Um, this is another one that I watched recently in, in preparation for this. Um, what I, what I didn't do when I watched a bunch of movies uh, in short uh, order was I didn't watch them chronologically. So vis-a-vis sure. uh, stood out. It's interesting. You talk about him, like just learning cinematography techniques. Cause I'd realized like, yeah, that makes sense because I feel like there is a look that I associate with sixties Godard and vis doesn't really look like that. Um, you mentioned the back of people's heads, but there's also like, there's a, uh, a scene. Um, there's a, a diner that has a pinball machine by the window, you know, and then yeah. there's like a shootout outside and the characters as they're standing by the pinball machine, even Anna Karina is like, they're almost in silhouette, mm-hmm. um, which is not something I associate with what he looks like. He, he, the, the look I associate with Godard tend to be very well lit and you can see the people in, in, in his frames. And I, I thought that that, um, those, uh, uh, uh obscure darker, uh, uh, shots didn't, uh, um, didn't feel like him. So it's interesting for you to point out that he was like learning cinematography. So maybe he hadn't established the look that I associate with him yet. Yeah. And it's still got some bits where you're like, oh, that's definitely Godard. Like there's a part where she's in a cafe that seems to overlook a city, but it's clearly like a wallpaper of a city. Yeah. And it's very much like that kind of like artificial thing. Um, It's also, I don't know, there's something funny to me about the way that there's just like suddenly nudity in the film for like three minutes or not even three minutes. It's probably like a minute and a half. Um, And I think of like, you mentioned Shoot the Piano Player earlier, which is another film that seems like kind of where you could show your parents. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, this woman just like pulls the sheets down over her boobs. (laughs) And it's like, there's always (laughs) these kind of like odd corners where nudity is tucked into um, French New Wave movies. And part of that was probably commercial. I know that section was lopped off of a lot of releases of the film. And so they oh. figured they could tuck it in for certain releases, but not have it in for all of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really great film. It does start to point to, you mentioned uh, Anna Karina's son death off screen in um, uh, Le Petit Soldat. Her death here is depicted and a lot of critics, Adrian Martin comments on this in his commentary um, that 
Godard will increasingly be showing Anna Karina what happens when she cheats on him, which she was doing. I mean, he was doing too, but she was doing plenty and um, was like, see, this is what happens with a fallen woman who becomes, uh, uh, what's the word? I don't know, uh, starts cheating on uh, her man or starts falling astray mm-hmm. of the contemporary order. Um, I've talked about this in the past episodes, but Godard for all his leftist uh, creds as he'll gain later in his career, uh, was more of a conservative right-leaning guy uh, early in life. And you'll see plenty of evidence of that conservatism in terms of what, how he treats women's role in the world as uh, as this goes on. Um, but his continuing insistence that a, a woman who goes astray will eventually meet her end crops up in a lot of movies over the next couple of years. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is an, another unceremonious death, but... Uh, um... Yeah, this time depicted a little more sympathetic. Yeah, slightly more, not that much. No, and like I said, Karina was not a fan of this film and thought that Godard made her look ugly and kept wanting to make like these kind of big broad comedies. And she made a few at the time that are really good. I mean, if people can, I think it's actually on YouTube. Tonight or Never is a fantastic uh, comedy from the early '60s that she was in that I really recommend people check out. Um, but his next film didn't feature Anna Karina at all. And I have very little to say about this because I saw it once five. I haven't seen this. So yeah, years ago or so, um, Le Cabrin, uh, my French pronunciation will get the best of me. Le Carabineuse. Um, it's definitely the least known, least available. And I would say by far worst film of this period for Godard <laughs> of his new wave period. Um, it's essentially about two soldiers, who commit a series of grotesque atrocities and then get their comeuppance for it. Um, so you can see in, in the context of the Algerian war, France, how this would be something someone would want to make and how an audience might be there for it. Uh, it's just really miserable to sit through. The first hour is essentially just very repetitive in terms of these guys just like fucking around and, killing people randomly and raping and pillaging and all the terrible things that you've have heard soldiers do in war capacity. Um, the last like 20 minutes is pretty cool cinematically and they get their competence, which is very satisfying. I don't know that it's necessarily worth sitting through the rest of it. <laughs> and like I said, fortunately there's not a lot of companies really urging you to do so because uh, fascinatingly, there's not a lot of market for bad movies about uh horrible men behaving horribly so uh one that i'm uh, kind of happy to skip past for the most part especially in a dense episode such as this okay um but his next film is one of his most acclaimed and famous and rightly so wait you're uh, skipping over one on your list you're skipping over a... oh yes um thank uh, you for I, pointing... I, yeah it's one did you say you've seen so i just didn't want you to no thanks for pointing that out uh his sh- contribution to the world's most beautiful swindlers which was one of i think seven anthology films he contributed to and this was a very popular form in the 60s the sense of like well we have all these you know the director as an auteur isn't a famous new thing so let's gather auteurs together and make short films under a vague subject combine them together into a feature and release that um so he contributed the last segment to the world's most beautiful swindlers um, what's most notable about this is this is the only other time he collaborated with Gene Seberg. Um, she plays uh, a journalist, also actually named Patricia, which is her character's name in Breathless. And there's a sense actually in Breathless even that she's playing the same character as she is in 
um bonjour tristesse that was godard's idea and kind of formulating her character anyway and in a lot of the films she's making in this period many of which were made in france you can kind of view them as a trajectory of a single character if you were so inclined um and here she's interviewing a um man and i think now i can't remember um somewhere i want to say in africa and um he is has been handing out fake currency to homeless people that they can essentially just spend wherever fake currency might be accepted um and so she's interviewing him about that and he gets around to pointing out like well you know we're stealing from the government maybe but is that as bad as you stealing from us and just depicting us um and this idea that like goodard ends up using the Shakespeare dialogue in terms of like all the world's a stage and all of us players, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that we're all kind of capitalizing on something. Um, it's an interesting little film. It's the only film Godard made that's in widescreen black and white, which is a format I like a lot. Um, but because of like the omnibus nature, you just have to adhere to whatever that's going to be released as. So he and Raoul Cotard shot in that. And so it looks great. Um, Gene Seberg is always is very, a very involving character. Um, I haven't seen the rest of the film. I only watched Godard's segment, but it's pretty cool. Okay, so now we're on to yes, contempt, uh, which is how I've always known it. Uh, to the point where, when I was looking at the sight and sound list this morning, yeah, I almost missed that it was on there because it was listed under its French name. Yeah, um, which actually I think is the name it's been released as in uh the uk which is why the british publication sight and sound ah. would have it that way right. i have um a small box set of like five godard films that were re- released in the uk and they have it listed as lady priest there as well um so yeah this was kind of godard's first foray into purposefully commercial cinema um his idea initially was to cast frank sinatra and kim novak in the lead roles um, it was kind of initiated by Carlo Ponti, who had handled a lot of new wave films like Lola, Woman is a Woman, Cleo from Five to Seven, but it also produced like King Vidor's War and Peace, was, which was this massive, like huge, incredible epic. And so it was really Godard's chance to break into the mainstream. Um, it's based on a novel by Alberto Morivia, I'm going to say, an Italian writer. And actually, from what I can tell from the synopsis, sticks pretty close to that novel. Um, I just don't think the novel includes what is now the most famous scene of the film, which is this large section in the middle where uh, Michelle Piccoli and um, Brigitte Bardot are kind of trapped in their apartment working through their issues or rather not working through their issues. Um, And now that's like the most famous scene in the film, both because it goes on for so long and is nevertheless like so involving and so interesting, but also because um, like Brigitte Bardot wears this kind of like short brunette wig and is very much seemingly playing Anna Karina. And you can see mm-hmm. if you know anything about Godard's personal life. And I tried to address it at this point where uh, Godard is very much taking out his issues with Anna Karina on screen, but I think doing so in a really honest way, I think Michelle Piccoli comes across as just as unreasonable, if not more so a character than Brigitte Bardot's character um she's playing kind of a kind of against type it's interesting um kind of a dutiful uh traditional housewife who um paul the character pickley plays is kind of like disregarding and almost like using as a token as he tries to get a screenwriting assignment on a major motion picture uh, adaptation of the odyssey to be directed by fritz lang he's kind of like just using her to show off to the producer 
um, played by, why didn't I take down his name? Surely you can tell me. Uh, Jack Palance? Jack Palance um, in a yeah. in fantastic form. Yeah. Um, just entering the film as the, the last god of cinema almost. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, the way that Piccoli kind of disregards um, Camille Brigibardo's character's consideration and just kind of like passes her off to uh, this very dangerous and very lecherous producer into a car. You can instantly tell why she would be furious with him, but he seems oblivious to it and seems and takes it out on her in uh, very um, emotionally violent and, and at one point actually physically violent ways. And so, you know, for all the misogyny that's kind of baked into the film, um, including, of course, Camille's eventual death, which is in the novel, in fairness. I think it's, uh, cons- from what I can tell, even from the synopsis, it's considered a bit more than the film is. It's very kind of like, well, what do you, do you expect in the film? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it still has a, a sense of sympathy towards her and uh, towards the position that Paul put himself in by being so disregarding of her. Um, it was also part of a wider sense in cinema at the time of the sense that the whole industry was cracking, was crumbling. Um, they wandered this great film studio that seems like completely desolate. Um, yeah. The famous uh, Chinachita. Yeah. Uh, studio, which was yeah. like still at the time, like very active. They had just shot freaking like eight and a half there, <laughs> but um, there seemed to be a tenor in the air that it, the golden age was crumbling and the things were starting to fall down. Um, a great pairing for this film would be Vincent Minnelli's Two Weeks in Another Town, which tackles kind of similar themes. But I've I've been rambling already. Your thoughts? Uh, I don't have much uh, more to say, except, um, uh, yeah, it does feel um, conventional for Godard. <laughs> uh, but it still has... We haven't talked about... Um, and I'm not sure because I watched the movies out of chronology how often when this starts but um music suddenly swelling and then suddenly cutting Mm. off uh within a shot or within a scene um uh which is something i find very jarring uh, in a positive way when i when i watch his movies um uh so that's just worth mentioning here this is also um a bright bright color movie um uh uh color the color blue um comes in later when when jack palance screens some of some of what fritz lang is supposed to have shot obviously fritz lang didn't direct contempt so obviously godard shot this but yeah um, it's very like clearly a godard kind of format of it's like you can't imagine fritz lang doing such kind of things yeah but it's it's like these um classical statues like greek statues but like painted blue um I feel like you probably you I mean you definitely know Godard better than I do so maybe you have thoughts on the color blue but it um seems to come up a lot I don't know if it's just like blue white and red being the french flag it seemed those those three colors mm. seem to come up a lot in in his movies I don't know if that's intentional but I often think of the french flag when I watch his, his movies cuz often like the JLG or like the the text right. that appears will will be in in blue white and red um I I, I don't know so uh what else do I have to say about this movie? You mentioned earlier um, with the uh, new wave films having uh, uh, incongruous or sudden nudity as a 
as a um, selling point. Uh, that's literally, literally the case. Apparently, the story as the story goes with the opening scene, or I guess not the opening shot, but the opening full scene, I guess, of contempt um, with Bridget Bardot laying naked on the bed is that the whoever was financing the movie was like, "You've got to get more." of Bridget Bardot's yeah. skin in this movie. And so we hired Brigitte Bardot famous for appearing at least mostly nude on film and you didn't yeah. give us anything. Come now. Um, I actually think that was the right call because I think we get a greater sense of the bond that the two characters have before it mm-hmm. kind of falls apart yeah. um, because it's very much just like a scene of them, like adoring each other. And it's, it is, I think it is helpful to have that kind of sunk in at the beginning of the film. Um. Yeah, and the last thing I want to mention is I just uh, I'm a big Michelle Piccoli fan. I've always liked his mm. his his movies, uh, probably because I um, early like in film school. I was watching you know stuff that they were showing us in film school, but I was also in Chicago for the first time that had all these great like rep theaters and stuff, including the Gene Siskel Film Center, and um, so I um, also was in like falling in love with the films of Louise Bunuel, which they weren't showing us in. Uh, uh, yeah. They weren't really showing us Bunuel outside of, um, you know, Unchi and Andalou uh, <laughs> um, uh, in, in film school. And so like discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, which is no longer in my top 10 films of all time, but was for many, many, many years, uh, one of my favorite films. And so I've always loved Michelle Piccoli. Um, uh, and then also I think like early pandemic there was a restoration that was like released digitally of like three um romy schneider films uh and one of them is called the things of love it's like a one of those things where like i'm sure it's a more <laughs> elegant title in french and then they right. just translated it literally and it's the things of love but it's him and, and romy schneider and that's great and then there's another romy schneider one called caesar and rosalie and he's the narrator uh, in that, but um, I, I just always like Michelle Pickley's kind of like uh, mix of like his his stature is small but tough. He looks like he's in mm. good shape and he looks like manly, but he's also neurotic at the same time. Yeah. Um, and is that and what I, you're trying to emulate in life, David? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be a, a macho head case. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I, the last thing I just want to mention is just crediting the music. You mentioned it earlier, but George Delarue's main theme for the film is so great. Um, and it's one Scorsese would repurpose in Casino, I think, to really good effect. But oh. here, it's kind of recurring use is uh, really, really cool. So I feel like at a certain point, maybe I'm wrong, uh, he largely abandons having composers and is just using classical music. Yeah, I'm... As things go on. One of my big kind of like weaknesses as, I don't know, a cinephile or whatever is not paying close enough attention to the score for the most part. I know at a certain point that shifts, I I would be hard pressed to tell you exactly when. Okay. Um, But yeah, it is definitely, uh, definitely a factor. Um, So his next film is another contribution to an anthology um, the very inventively named Rogo Pagog, which is essentially just like the first letters of the directors who contributed to it. Um, offhand, I remember certainly Rossellini, Godard, Pasolini, and I can't remember who the last G is. Um, Godard's contribution is called The New World, and it's actually a helpful 
uh, or con- uh, companion to contempt in that it's about a nuclear device going off. The effect of which seems to be that the protagonist's world has changed, including that his girlfriend doesn't love him anymore, which is like the central thing in contempt, right? Michelle Piccoli like feels like he wakes up one day and says his wife doesn't love him anymore. And he doesn't understand why. Um, here it's attributed to more of a kind of science fiction element. Um, and it's it's interesting to watch because it's very, you can tell it's shot in Paris and set there, but the rest of the directors and the thing were Italian. And so it was just all dubbed into Italian. So it's the rare Godard movie that's in Italian kind of. Um, and it more closely resembles like an Antonioni kind of feel. Uh, it has the same kind of distancing devices that Antonioni was doing and which Godard was interested in, but wasn't necessarily his bread and butter. Um, but I think it's most interesting as both a reflective thing thematically on contempt and then a forerunner to his more overt science fiction endeavor in Alphaville, which we'll get to shortly. Um, his next film proper was Band of Outsiders um, in 1964. And this is another Godard film that is easy to show to people who haven't seen Godard. It was the first Godard film that, film that I ever saw. And I was very instantly taken with it. Um, and at the time, there was a sense in Godard's life that he had to win Anacrina back. And you can tell it through contempt, um, not only in the arguments that the characters are having, which are very reflective of what he and Anacrina were going through and going through is maybe too generous a phrase. He was being a real ass to her. She tells stories about the fact that he would just be like, uh, I'm going to go around the corner for a drink and then like not show up for another three weeks. Um, he was verbally abusive, physically abusive. He was really in all regards, a pretty terrible husband to her. Um, the relationship is also interesting at this point, because I think around the time a woman is a woman wrapped, um, she was pregnant and later had a miscarriage and was the only time that Godard almost had a child. He went childless throughout the rest of his life. Um, and so their relationship is very much falling apart by the time Band of Outsiders hit. Uh, she's talked about the, the fact that she had attempted suicide certainly shortly before the film started. And so the feeling I, I got from reading about it and from re, kind of revisiting parts of the film after reading about it is that um, it was kind of Godard's last shot at redemption and kind of winning her over once again. It didn't stick for long, but she said that the experience of making it kind of saved her life. Um And I think more so than the films, aside from maybe a woman is a woman, you can feel her influence on it in both kind of like rejuvenating and melancholy ways. Um, She does seem to be a little more distraught throughout the film, which aids its kind of premise. It's about these two guys who want to steal from her family because she offhandedly mentioned that they had a lot of cash stashed away and they're very much taking advantage of her mm. and competing with one another to win over her affections, but only because they find her sexy. They don't really seem to have a great investment in her personal life or her as a person. They just kind of like the way she looks like her legs, et cetera. Um, and so you can kind of feel throughout the film that she feels trapped in a little, in a sense. Um, and so that kind of hopelessness that Corinna was showing on screen and feeling in her personal life um, kind of comes across in the film in a productive way. And then it hits the cafe scene and you get like the minute of silence and especially the Madison, which was entirely like her deal. Like she arranged that and choreographed that and rehearsed it for a month with the two guys. Um, 
and that's one of those moments that like is so singular and so iconic in Godard's filmography and it's immense effect on popular culture and was the first thing that came to mind when Godard died and the first thing I pulled up to rewatch because it's so joyful and so fun and just a little bit melancholy and the way you get the voiceover peppered in with it and what all the characters are thinking as they're doing this kind of like awesome dance. Um, there's so much that, you know, famously it would influence the dance scene in Pulp Fiction. Um, but it, it's just a, a blast of fun. But as um, I, th- I think I pulled this from the essay that accompanies the Criterion release is that alongside this kind of like blast of a surface where like they're running through the Louvre and trying to break the record for the shortest time they can go through it. There's kind of the sense of melancholy that pervades it. You get a sense of like suburban dradness and boredom. These people who are just kind of like unemployed and disaffected and disillusioned and trying to like regain a sense of self, both through their attraction to Anacrina and through this big score that they're cooking up. Um, but that those kind of two things mixed together, I, th- I think really is why it has uh, lasted so long and has remained so effective for even people who aren't that into Godard. Um, <clears throat> obviously, uh, yeah, this was definitely one that I, even as a teenager, was aware of. I didn't see it till till later, but um, I was aware of it because of Tarantino uh, and mm-hmm. his, his production company being called a, ba- a Band Apart, which is, a, yeah. I guess, a english phonetic like um play on the french translation title of the french title yeah um uh yeah i thought of this earlier i can't remember which film you were talking about or maybe it was just in like the sort of intro when you were talking about the idea of the 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 jackson pollock idea of like the the making of the the construction of the film being yeah. a part of the film um i definitely think about that and i feel like we haven't talked as much as we probably should or will about sound and i guess see this is an example of what i was saying before about the way that his movies resist the analytic framework that you tend to apply to movies i almost said sound design and i think maybe <laughs> later films there is sound design but I, one of the things that's so striking about uh, band of outsiders is how much sound there is that seems incidental like how often the outdoor scenes seem to be shot near construction sites. Yeah, There's often, right? you often hear like hammering and jackhammering going off just somewhere <laughs> um, uh, uh, off screen. I just, and that doesn't feel like it's, uh, you know, when you watch a um, Pedro Costa, Costa movie, you're often seeing one or two people on screen, but you're hearing a whole neighborhood out, outside, you know, but that is sound design. Yeah. Whereas this just feels like Godard was like, yeah, I don't give a fuck if there's a construction site <laughs> over there. We're shooting this scene. That's here. what's happening. Uh, yeah. Um, there's also a, uh, it probably happens other times in the movie, but there's one early on in the classroom uh, where there's a cut and the sound is, it's like he was recording live, live sound for each shot. So the sound changes drastically from one it's in this in the same scene but like you've got a shot of the teacher and then it cuts to the student and suddenly the whole room sounds different um uh that stuff uh, you, you know I, I sometimes 
and that sometimes in doing this episode and in watching these movies, you used, you said something about band of outsiders being like, you could watch it if you don't um, know or, or love uh guitar. But I, but I wonder if we're too in it to see how to, to the average casual film watcher band of outsiders would still seem uh, very experimental. <laughs> Oh, for sure. It's got some stuff in that. And it's got some of the tedium that you get with Godard. I mean, he, the kind of production background of this is that he wrote to a few American studios asking them for $100,000. Only Columbia responded saying, well, that's a lot to pay a director. And he's like, no, that's actually all I need to make the film, period. And they're like, okay. And so they didn't even have like ask to see a script, but they did say it had to be at least 90 minutes. And so you'll get scenes of like someone just like reading a newspaper out loud. And literally because Godard had to like put in enough material to get to 90 minutes. Um, so yeah, yeah his I, movies are often very short. Yeah, I think the longest is like 105 minutes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you, I, I do recognize that. I guess I mean like, insofar as if you're going to get into this kind of thing at all or have any kind of taste for like films of this period this is a fairly accessible film and it's got enough kind of like personality and vigor and it, it has a real sense of youth um both in terms of like the excitement of like random people you meet and how they could become like really important people in your life or they could just like kind of pass by very quickly but also has like the sense of like the just hopelessness of being young and having no direction um and it's just like got great scenes on the subway um it has like random things like they have to take this boat across like this small river to like get just get across town it's got a lot of like small details and of course like the madison running through the louvre and stuff it's got enough small details that you can latch on to um i think a lot about this film you mentioned tarantino and him naming his production company after it but he has talked about acknowledged that Godard was a big influence and saying that like he never really got into later Godard because Godard stopped giving people the candy what he referred to as like these little bits that were like romantic or funny or hopeful or just got like little hooks um and this film hasn't plenty of candy to go around and kind of keep you keep the average viewer insofar as an average viewer is going to watch a film from 1964 to begin with if you're you know inclined to do so I, I, th I think most people would dig it okay um yeah getting so yeah by the end of this film he had successfully won back anna Karina for a period of time only to start kind of blaming her again um with Unfem marie which by and large is a fairly sympathetic portrait of uh married women and i think women's position in society in general the thing that a lot of critics have pointed out about it, i found this in a few different um writings and commentary on the film is that it does send give a sense that uh women feel the way they do because advertising is feel telling them to feel that way i think the experience of watching the film i get a stronger sense that um i can't remember now that the actress who plays the main character charlotte but i, I like her a lot in the movie uh, um hold on it's have it right, have it right in front of me uh masha Merrill. yeah i i get a stronger sense i think mainly through her performance that there's just all these things that women are told that they should want or want to do and the film is pretty deft in exploring um, how difficult it is to reconcile all these things where like women's liberation is really starting to take hold and starting to be a thing people talk about, but isn't really a thing women can and enact without greatly disregarding society's norms. Um, and they're being told what to wear and how big their bust should be and all these various factors and they're still meant to like put uh, up a happy front. 
there's a uh well I, I i took a note that there's like a part where they're uh the ideal number of inches from the nipples to the base of the neck that's yeah. uh <laughs> that's one of the things that 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 she's that she's told uh uh but yeah i think um this you, you mentioned uh with bridget uh brigitte uh bardo in in contempt like this mix of like misogyny and sympathy um and i get here there's the movie is definitely sympathetic but i feel like this won't be the last time you mentioned earlier before we even started any movies started talking individual movies like some things might come up like racism um i feel like this won't be the last time that he is sympathetic to a person or group of people in a way that is also condescending you know and so i think like um as much as this movie is about all the things you talk about, there's so much like uh, the, the advertising is oppressive and, and the way that, that ads are the way that he shoots ads. is like uh, these tight close-ups of like them being sort of in this woman's face all the time. But it also, I feel like the movie kind of infantilizes her or takes away some of her agency where she's just like at a loss to just like be buffeted about by all of these things. And she had these things that she can't have any, like she doesn't have much agency of, of her own. So I, uh, I still think his, his misogyny comes through even when he's making his attempt at a more feminist picture. Yeah. And again, I, the line to which it is more feminist is debatable. I think to me, and maybe this is just more about me, but I, I, I feel it is more sympathetic. And I, I think a lot of that is because of uh, Masha Muriel's performance, um, but the, the, definitely the line I picked out is that it's a critique of a world in which it is plausible for Anna Karina to live, leave him, um, which <laughs> it does kind of inform the general tenor of his life at the time. Um, the film was actually nearly banned in France, um, because it appears as sort of an insult to all women who find themselves in marriage and in kind of engaged in the state, uh, kind of the big compromise weirdly was changing the title from the married woman to a married woman. Mm. Um, and because of the publicity all that generated, um, there were also some the scene where they discussed like a topless bathing suit, the shot of, um, or not the shot really, but the suggestion that Charlotte is trimming her pubic hair was trimmed from the popular release, but it ended up being like a huge financial success at the time too, because of all this publicity and, and there weren't, you know, as far as financial success will dwindle as, as the time is on, but there weren't even many at this time where he was really making money off of them. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a really great film. I, it, one I saw many, many years ago and have continually revisited since because it kind of, to me, stands out in this period, mostly because it features female protagonists, which he didn't have many of. All right. All right. Let's, let's uh, keep moving. We're uh, barely, we've barely made a dent. <laughs> I know. I'm loving it. I told you I'd drive is, you crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't need to agree. But no, I guess, uh, speaking of, um, I don't know if driving me crazy, but, uh, Alphaville, uh, Alphaville is next and it's not one of my faves. Really interesting. I was kind of struck when I first saw, which was fairly recently. It, it had a restoration about five years ago or so, um, that I saw the new Beverly that, well, I thought this was longer ago because it was back in the new bev was still occasionally showing digital, but um, I, I was instantly t- pretty taken with it. It's this kind of vaguely futuristic film um, that was shot very cheaply. It was just shot around Paris, but through the cinematography, they make it look like the future. Uh, the plot is kind and of also diffi- the, 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 um, cause it's like uh, 
shot on location at like new buildings. Do you that know what I mean? You, yeah. So, so yeah, like the the architecture makes it look sort of futuristic, even though it's they're all existing buildings. Yeah. Or they're um, existing at the time. I meant to write down a plot synopsis because I've kind of forgotten what the movie's like about, but it's kind of got the sense of like a futuristic society that this character Lemmy Caution, who Eddie Constantine played in a series of French films um, in the fifties and sixties. Uh, Dar was able to get to him because I, they actually did a short in one of the omnibus films that I didn't see prior, but um, he Godard kind of came up with the idea. He pawned off the script writing to assistant director who wrote up a 30 page treatment that Godard just kind of like sent to his foreign backers and then didn't do anything with. So the final product, like <laughs> the producers ended up asking for their money back over it. Um, but I don't know. It, aesthetically, it's a blast. It's got like this voiceover from a man with a mechanical box voice that just sounds insane. Yes, I um, like that. And we, yeah, we should have mentioned narration when we talked about Band of Outsiders. Oh um, yeah, because that's one Godard actually narrated. Uh, and not yeah, not the last one. Obviously, when we get into the more much more recent yeah. to today work, but that that narration is um, uh, yeah, his narration is a big part of his his movies and and uh. Uh, you know, you talked about the going back to Band of Outsiders. Sorry, uh, you talked about the dance scene being so uh, influential. But I feel like when I think of something like Itamama Tembien and 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 that um, like third person narr- narration, I uh, uh, I feel like Godard is probably an influence on that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, sorry, here, so back to Alphaville. Here it's much colder and much more ominous and. Uh, seemingly threatening but that coupled with like the way the film is seems to be barely lit i mean almost not at all i, I know they had to t- do tons of takes even to ensure enough would be exposed and they discarded a lot of footage simply because they couldn't see literally anything on it it was like not even the hint of light um but that whole aesthetic experience of it is so involving to me i'm, I'm kind of surprised you aren't into it because it, because you're just a cinematography nerd really yeah, I guess I, I think, um, unlike his other genre pastiches, this one feels like it gets a little bit closer, almost to parody, um, and, mm. and, and and that didn't feel as honest to him to to his view of the world as as I thought. I liked it early on, um, mm-hmm. just when when Lemmy Caution is getting to is this the city's called alphaville right yeah yeah um, it's like it yeah. could be a city it could be a planet who's yeah saying? yeah he's getting to this this foreign place and i think the uh you know emphasis in the word foreign and and the the um the uh what's what i'm looking for uh well i guess i'm looking for a synonym for foreignness um, <laughs> uh, the otherworldliness of of this place juxtaposed with lemmy caution's like being an archetype from an existing type of film and he's not going to change who he is even in this in this weird place like i kind of liked that it uh reminded me or i guess i because i watched it recently um i should say the other way around um i know you're not uh, we've talked before you're not a bojack horseman fan and i think that's fine you've got perfectly valid uh (laughs) reasons but there's an entire um episode of bojack horseman that has almost except for at the beginning of the end no dialogue at all because he's promoting a film in an underwater city where he has to wear like it's a, one of the a, few episodes i've seen yeah 
um yeah it's a great episode i've watched it multiple times uh and i thought of that when watching alphaville um uh, uh, sure. another you know i mean you you talked at, at the beginning about goddard's influence and i do want to, i'm hoping that i'm hoping that our listeners who are movie buffs who aren't into goddard and there are i, I definitely found out from twitter after he died there are a lot of movie buffs who are not in to goddard um yeah I'm I'm hoping they listen to this episode anyway because um it's it, it it like cinema as we know it and I guess in the case of Bojack Horseman television <laughs> as we know it like doesn't look the way it does or feel the way it does w- without Godard the new wave in general but Godard in in particular and so the fact that I'm referencing this sort of like uh uh challenging what some people see as like a a a a, a challenging overly esoteric uh filmmaker uh in regards to something like bojack horseman i think is um a a, a testament to how long-lasting his and and pervasive and ever-present to this day his influence on visual media is yeah for sure i mean bojack horseman is also a good reference point because it's very much and so much of media, I think almost to a fault, and this is partially why I'm not too big on Bojack Horseman. Um, so much of media today assumes the idea of having digested a fair amount of popular culture. And Godard's films are very much influenced by a guy who digested a lot of film and had think, been thinking about it pretty seriously and was regurgitating it in a very personal way. Um and Alpha Bill's as good example as any, partially through the use of Lemmy Caution, but also just the greater idea of a science fiction film and what that looks like and what that and challenging what that could look like and expecting that the audience would have kind of the same reference points as he will. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a sense, he didn't certainly didn't invent postmodernism as it's understood, mm-hmm. but in terms of having the emotional involvement with it, I can't fi- think of a lot of people before him in cinema who were as engaged as he was um in this period but i am um, certainly fine to move on to pure lefou yeah and this is um uh i saw this one somewhat recently meaning a little over a year ago when we did when when tyler and i and and josh did a uh one of these episodes about belmondo yeah uh and i think at the time i called it my new favorite godard i think i might have another new favorite Godard Ooh. now, which we'll um, be talking about. Uh, well, I say soon because it's only a few years after this, but we're we're really taking our time. Uh, um, but uh, uh, yeah, so he, he, you've got Belmondo and Anna Karina, so um, uh, un unparalleled, uh, undeniable star power um, in a movie that feels. Uh, unlike Alphaville, not to rag on Alphaville, there's a lot that uh, is, is 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 good about it. But this doesn't feel like a uh, parody of the like lovers on the run genre. It it is that movie, but it's also uh, I and I guess the, what I was saying with Alphaville being like parody is that it's the the form of the genre because that's really what genre is is you know of a, a form a format um doesn't really get broken whereas Perot Le Fou is so much of it is just pure anarchy um it's it's uh 
certainly I, I don't know uh, you know your mileage may vary depending on what you like but i feel like perlevue Lefou is one of the most uh ener- energizing uh <laughs> movies that i've ever watched like a movie that makes me want to like if I'm watching when I was watching my living room, I want to like stand up while watching it because <laughs> I just find it so exciting and it pays off. You know, it's got huge fucking explosions and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's very cool. Uh, and it's also, it's Belmondo and Anna Carino, two of the coolest people ever to grace the silver screen. Yeah. That all certainly helps. It's still my favorite Godard movie and has been probably since I first saw it. Um, gosh, almost 15 years ago at this point, probably around the time Criterion put it out. Um, it's beyond the sense of cool it has, which I think it embraces. I think it's also for me anyway, like the best film about divorce. And it's like this sense of two people who have this connection and who are gradually throughout this course, of the film pushing themselves apart from one another. Um, it has this very like Eve of destruction kind of feel where the um travelogue aspect of it because they you know are very much on the run they're driving various cars all over the place escaping from humanity trying to be on their own until they eventually are truly on their own um it it has a sense that people just feel when a relationship is breaking down of just feeling cast out from the world entirely where it's not just like me and this other person it's like their entire sense of self has been completely divested and destroyed and by this point godard and karina were separated they'd be formally divorced by the end of shooting um and that bitter emotion really comes across in kind of a subtextual way it's not overtly what the film is about but that sense of mounting hopelessness and emptiness and just kind of like the world's on fire and we're all going to hell. I, I think it's really pervasive of it. It feels most akin to me. And this is an artist to whom Godard would get compared many times and he would compare himself, but Bob Dylan, um, his song idiot wind, which is like the other great, like relationship breakdown piece of art to me. Um, it has that same, just this like swirling sense of complete chaos and complete destruction that can't be contained and which can't be stopped and which just seems to keep going and going and going. And this is definitely a area where Godard's working methods, where he was just creating things on the day really paid off. And I think he had a lot of money behind this, which helped. It also helped that he was willing to just dive his own car into the ocean in order to get the (laughs) scene he wanted, which is like both a laugh and also like, well, these people really don't care about anything because it's a super nice car. Um, And it was Godard's own car. And he was like, fuck it, drive it into the ocean. Um, and yeah, so Belmondo becomes this great kind of outlet for Godard's soul in a sense. It's more than he could put down on paper or more than he could ask an actor to express, but it's something that they were just innately on the same page about and which Belmondo was well-suited to um, put to screen Uh it's also, of course, worth noting that Sam Fuller has a brief cameo in it. Um, and it kind of lays out, you know, something that gets quoted a lot, saying film is like a battleground. Um, it, it, I think it says in a word emotion or whatever. And that's like, that's the template of the film. It's like, there's all these huge elements of great love and great destruction and all that, that is entirely a personal expression for, for Godard. And I, I think when I first saw it, yeah, I latched onto like, 
Domano's got this super cool suit on and and Karina's <laughs> got these adorable outfits and they look great driving in this gorgeous car and they like have all these great schemes to steal cars from people and to smart people out of money and stuff. But the more I see it and the more I kind of understand of Godard, it really is this like cry of devastation and I, I feel it on a much more emotional level and this kind of points to what you talked about at the top in terms of like the more Godard you experience the more emotion you see on screen um and rather than kind of like have people just like act it out he wanted to find a way to like signify the emotion and arouse it in the viewer so that um it wouldn't be this like direct line but would be this kind of larger artistic expression this is what i meant in terms of like bending the form to his will um so like the rejection of ordinary drama in favor of these like shards of images and voiceover recitations insert shots that seem to come out of nowhere musical numbers that just kind of pop up it's all kind of this larger swirling subtextual thing um that's really 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 effective and was even at the time um Andrew Saris noted that it was the only Godard film they had to actually stand in line to see. Um, hmm. And it was the reason that Chantal Ackerman started making movies, even though it's like the most distinct from, like, you can't imagine <laughs> Chantal Ackerman making this kind of movie, but like, she's the one who uh, wants to see, or what, she's the one who got like hugely inspired by. Yeah. Um, Godard also pointed out that it was uh, apparently banned to children under 18. He said, reason, intellectual and moral anarchy, which is pretty great. Um, uh, that's a good and that's a good description of, of the movie in many ways. Yeah. Um, also, uh, to my point earlier, Belmondo paints his face blue, much like the uh, statues yeah. in Contempt. I still don't know what it means, but there's a lot of blue in Godard's movies. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, do you think this is a very broad uh, thing that just occurred to me? Um, Love it. Do you prefer this period, the new wave period of Godard? Do you prefer the color or the black and white films? Uh, or, hmm. or do you have a preference? Because I think I, I tend to prefer the color ones. I don't know that I strictly, if I were to like answer that instinctively, have a preference um but my two favorite films from the period are color films one of which we'll be getting to shortly so maybe that indicates that i prefer the color and you know i mean it also helps that godard kind of had an edict in this period where all his color films would be widescreen two three five or whatever the cinescope ratio was in france um and the black and white films would be full frame and I just like a widescreen film. Part of it is just that. And I, I think yeah. this and contempt are good examples of that, where it's like, no matter how wide the screen gets one, you can't escape from yourself. And two, it seems to still only barely contain like the uh, degree of destruction you're willing to engage on. Uh, but yeah, this is, like I said, it's still my favorite Godard. It's the first one I watched after he passed away. Um, mm. And which just keeps hitting me more and more deeply each time. Uh, now we get to move on to the rare one that I've seen, but you haven't. It's true. According to your, according Another to your, omnibus your, film. Yeah, there's a... Um, the, the film is called Six in Paris. Um, I had the, the thing up a second ago with all of the uh, all of the directors, but um, it, so, so it's... Uh, yeah, I don't know who... I don't know Jean Duchet. Should I know him? Um, uh, I don't either. Okay, so Jean Jean Duchet, a bunch of Jeans. Jean Duchet, <laughs> Jean Rouche, whom I know from Chronicles of the Summer, right? Yeah. Uh, Jean Daniel Pollet, I don't know him. Uh, Eric Romare, uh, Jean Luc Godard, and Claude Chabrol all do 
um, films that are all kind of, I guess kind of this is a precursor to uh, Parisia Tem or whatever that movie is called, because they're all sort of based on different neighborhoods or, or at least like landmarks. Um, uh, uh, Jean Rousse is, is based on, is the Gare du Nord, which is the North uh, train station, which I've been to. Uh, um, I took a train uh, out of there. I get it. Yeah. Uh, there's one that's based on the, I can't remember which one it is, is, is takes place in the, uh, the six streets that converge, converge at the Arc de Triomphe. Oh, um, cool. But, uh, we're not here to talk about all of those. We're here to talk about, um, Godard's, which is called Mon- Montparnasse Levelois. So uh, I know Montparnasse, that's where the cemetery is, where, um, Gene Seberg, among other people, uh, mentioned, I think Alain Rene might be buried there too. I know Gene Seberg he is, is. Yeah. Um, and obviously, uh, Varda and Demi are both there and a lot of other people. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, I, like, like I said, it's been so long since I've seen a woman is a woman that I don't remember this, but I guess there's a part in a woman is a woman where Belmondo, um, uh, reads a newspaper story to, mm-hmm. uh, Anna Karina. And so this is just a sort of like interpretation or dramatization of that story except i guess in the story it's a the story that in in a woman is a woman it's about a man who sends a letter to his two lovers but accidentally sends them to the wrong right uh this is the opposite it's a woman who like posts two letters then immediately is like oh shit what did i do and goes to her two boyfriends to try and like explain herself before they right open the mail and she gets like uh her stripped bare and thrown into the street by both of them i'm laughing but uh it's not really funny although the movie is funny it's gonna be like played for for comedy the thing that's most godard um, playing a horrific situation for comedy yeah unthinkable Uh, the the, the thing that's most notable about this segment um is the fact that godard didn't shoot any of it albert Mm. mazels shot all the footage and godard i guess assembled uh Mm. assembled it i think like IMDb and stuff credits to Godard as the director, but I think in the credits, it is it's not directed by Godard. It is I think it is the French word for like assembled by uh, Jean Luc. Right. Um, uh, and that's yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely not um, coming off of something like um, Piero Le Fou that's so bright and so larger than life. Um, you can tell that this segment from Six in Paris is shot by a professional documentarian because it has that very um, street level sort of handheld cinematography and sort of grubby uh, uh, grays. Um, uh, one thing I, one thing that did stand out to me though is feeling Godardian um, is the second boyfriend she goes to is a mechanic who owns his own shop. And like a lot of mechanics, instead of having his uh his his sign up what's most prominent prominent on the 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 outer wall of his building is a huge painting of the chevrolet logo Mm. and so that that segment of this segment uh like sort of starts and ends with this towering chevrolet logo um uh uh, over uh over the street and and like that kind of feels we talked about the advertising and a married woman and and um that kind of feels Godard. It also made me realize for the like I'd never thought about the fact that like Chevrolet, which is like so associated with like quintessentially American, like you know, uh, uh, 
construction and American pride is such an overtly French word. Yeah, it's true. I never thought about that before until I saw a Chevrolet sign in, in Paris. Anyway, so that's six in Paris. I probably talked about it more than I should have. Um, but I did I want to quickly some... mention yeah. um, that the other two directors on that, uh, Jean Duchet, not a major filmmaker, actually mostly worked in TV. His first okay. theatrical feature wasn't until 1996, but he did a lot of documentaries for TV in between. Uh, Jean-Daniel Poulet, however, um, directed a film called Line of Sight in 1960 that is so, 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 so good. And it's very hard to get a hold of, but if you ever get a chance to see it, I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to uh, masculine and fem- feminine. Um, yeah, or I'm, I probably should try and say it the French way, masculine, feminine, uh, or something like that. Obviously. I gotta gotta swallow those last uh, consonants. But um, uh, yeah, I just talked, um, and I, I know I know you've watched masculine and feminine more recently than I have because I think you were watching it when I zoomed with you at some point. Yeah. Um... I it's correct to say that I watched it more recently. It's incorrect to say that I was too attentive to it. Uh, it was mostly something that I put on in the weeks after Godard died. Kind of when I had a free couple of minutes, cause this film I was familiar enough with that. I was like, okay, I want a sense of Godard, but I don't have a ton of time. So I just kind of like put it on from time to time, um, including like while I was falling asleep. Um, but it's a great kind of portrait of we'll get into shortly the effects of May 1968 on Godard's career and French cinema in general. But um, a great portrait of the sense that there was this mounting tension amongst young people in Paris and um, their place in society. The kind of one of the more famous phrases that comes out of it is like that these are the children of Marx and Coca-Cola, that they have very... And I think this sense of culture applies today to an extent that young people still feel a sense of injustice, um, class injustice that pervades society and are aware of it to a greater degree than um, the generation ahead of them. But they still, gosh darn it, love their Coca-Cola and love their popular culture and like you can meet, you know, the most committed leftists today and they'll still have a Netflix account. You know, we're, we're all still invested in Mm -hmm. the very thing that's probably destroying us. And so Goddard was aware of this tendency amongst uh, young people. Um, The film was fairly successful, but um, he was criticized for that, especially by younger critics of feeling a little out of step. They, They felt that he was depicting young people more of his generation than of the current generation. Um, but it's a really good film for the kind of needle drop sense that it gets on culture. It's got a lot in it about contraception, which was, um, just kind of bubbling up in France and really worldwide. Um, it's got these great kind of interview segments. The loose kind of sense of plot is that, uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot plays, um, a young man who's recently taken a job as like kind of a surveyor of the culture. I can't remember exactly how to describe it, okay. but, um, he basically goes around like interviewing people and kind of doing ethnographic studies. And he gets into something that Godard would play with more over the next couple of years in terms of like interviewing his protagonists or rather interviewing his actors and expecting them to answer as their protagonists. And so you get these kind of segments that are kind of funny or awkward, um, where the characters have to answer for themselves. And then it gets these like incredibly romantic sections. It has that great moment where they go to the movies and he talks about um, how it, it wasn't the movie of our dreams. It wasn't the total film we all carried inside of ourselves, the film we would have liked to make, and more secretly, no doubt, the film we wanted to live, which is like the most Godardian thing ever that like he 
clearly wanted to live in the movies and wanted to make the kind of movies that he wanted to live in, but seemed to kept constantly insert himself into it. Most of the films we talked about to this point started out as more, you know, we talked about him kind of doing these genre takes or almost parodies. Most of them started out as him trying to do a straightforward genre picture. And then you, one could view it as undermining himself or fulfilling a better version of that. But at any rate, like he just kept changing the nature of it until it became something more personal purely instinctively. It wasn't a design to do so. He wanted to make the great classical film, but he just didn't have it in him. It wasn't something he was temperamentally suited to. And then there's this Real quick, sorry, some, some, the, the thing you were saying about, about films, uh, I'm trying to remember yeah. what is the, the opening, um, I can't, is it at the beginning of contempt? Is it, I can't remember if it's even narration or if it's a title, but it, the, the opening shot of contempt is at Chinichita and you see like a woman walking toward the camera mm-hmm. while another camera on a dolly is a dolly track is like following her. And in that there is something about like cinema, uh, cinema shows us our desires or like something like that. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. What that opening unfortunately I cannot either. I, I hadn't thought about it until you just said, uh, the, what you said. Yeah. Um, you're probably right though. Uh, it's got also just, just great kind of like, like I said, even destruction stuff where it, there's this feeling that people keep going back to cafes, but the cafes are a little emptier than maybe they used to be. There's not a lot of people hanging out in them. Um, Brigitte Bardot does appear in a brief cameo, which is kind of fun. Um, and then there's just like random violence on the street. Like literally someone will walk out the door and see someone get shot in the middle of the street. Um, yeah. And so you get the sense that society or at least a society that Godard knew was starting to break down, which would become more evident as this films go on in the next couple of years, but which for 1966 was pretty prescient of him. Um, and from what I understand, this was also kind of like Jean-Pierre Léod's reemergence in French cinema. He of course was the star of 400 blows, but when he was like 13 or something like that. Yeah. And so here he kind of becomes a fully fledged actor and you get the sense of a, the persona that he would uh, kind of embody over the next 10 years or so. And which yeah. made him kind of a landmark star um apparently he's in Pirolafu. i don't remember uh him being in Pirolafu, but that's what the internet tells me strangely neither do i the yeah he's well he's no, doesn't even have a name he's like a young man in cinema or something so maybe it's just like a kid oh show. sure yeah it could be um uh all right uh you know you know i had more to say about masculine and feminine because i think um something really fell into place when i was talking to you about Godard when i was off mic um and it's because it's something you brought up again earlier in this episode. I think of him so much as a leftist and you pointed out, uh, maybe that actually this might've been on a different episode that he was more conservative, especially in his younger yeah. years. And um, I'm glad that, or, or I, 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 I had already seen masculine feminine and you said that, but it kind of like um, repositioned the film for me where I realized like, Okay, yeah, masculine feminine is a, feminine is a film that is about leftists or about a leftist, but it is not a leftist film. No, uh, and that will come up again in the film that might be my new favorite Godard. Uh, oh, I already know what you're talking about. I'm intrigued yeah. to hear. <laughs> um, but before that, he made uh, Made in USA, which is not a terribly well-regarded Godard film. Not that it's disliked, but it's viewed very much as minor. And in a sense, I can see why. I mean, one, it was 
incredibly difficult to see, almost impossible until Criterion re-released it or released it in, I think, 2009. And there was a restoration that premiered a year or two before that. Um, but literally, like for the four decades in between those two points, it was almost never screened. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Also, it was like literally like start to finish made in like two months. Um, Godard was working on two or three things. I know about her, which we'll get to in a second. He finished this one first, which is why we're talking about it first, but he had already started filming two or three things. I know about her. Um, and ran into George de Beauregard, who may recall reproduced breathless and a number of his films before then he kind of ran into him on the street and Beauregard was like, God damn it. I'm poor, but I can get, enough money together if i can get a line of credit to make a film and you're the person i know who can make a film the fastest what have you got and godard's like give me a couple hours so he hits up a bookstore wanders across this donald uh westlake novel the jugger um which is in the series of like parker novels that he wrote which later informed like point blank and um a shit ton of other movies um including i think there's a movie literally just called parker um and so he's like, okay, this is enough for me to make the, the, a film. I'll make this film. And Burgard was like, great, you've got it. And so over the course of like, I don't know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks, they got enough of a script together to get financed together and started shooting the film. Um, and which uh, Godard summarized in the press, he described it as a favorite for a friend, Beauregard in this case, a highlight of the Americanization of French life, which has been a continuing theme, the sense that like, cultural and domination and capitalism was inflicting French life. Um, and he said, and to make use of one of the episodes of the Ben Barca affair, uh, the Barca thing uh, and its relationship to the film is way too complex to recount here, but it's basically okay. like there was a guy who the French police secret police like disappeared. He was a Moroccan opposition leader. And then there was like a would be film producer who conspired in that disappearance. It was a huge story in France at the time. And Godard had been interesting in making a movie of it period. And so he kind of folded into that. Um, the way it kind of plays out is that Anna Karina plays the Parker character, which is already kind of like an awesome gender bending twist on the whole idea. Um, looking for her lover, who was a film producer. Um, and the moment she arrives in the film, she's sitting in his apartment and he's already gone. Um, and... What's I think really effective about the film, one is it's the rare like star showcase for Anna Karina, where it's really purely her show. Um, Virus of V kind of treats her as a subject. A woman is a woman gets her its energy from her, but is also still about the two guys. Made in USA is really like her start to finish. Um, so I like I dig that aspect of it. And it's also um where you can start to see the tension of Godard's political interests really coming to bear and really um, being an active struggle for him. And so the film is kind of a cartoonish adaptation of like this crime novel um, in that it's got like these, it's got this part where like Anna Karina goes to a doctor's office and sees a guy wrapped up in bandages and unwraps him. And it's just like, a skull with eyeballs underneath and it's got like all this <laughs> weird like pop imagery but it's also got like characters named uh richard nixon and other like major political figures at the time and you can feel that the influence of politics like starting to chip away at this like routine uh crime novel which is what godard thought he was interested in when he started making movies he thought he just wanted to make like routine crime films. And then as he started to grow on and grow as a person, he started to get more and more interested in politics. 
And you can really feel that he's not sure where he's going to go next, kind of most greatly exemplified in the finale of the film, which is he shot, I think even after he finished two things, things I know about her, I can't remember exactly, but um, he kind of shot these side by side. Um, Anna Karina is like hitchhiking at the end of the film and gets picked up by a journalist playing himself. Um, and they have a long kind of political discussion about the tenor of the times where he says, well, ultimately the left and right are the same. One cannot change them. The right, because it is idiotic and brimming with nastiness and the left, because it is sentimental besides right and left. It's a completely outdated question. That's not the way to pose the problem. And Anna asks, then how, and then the movie ends. And so it's like this great kind of reflection where Godard was at, where society is at. And it really, I think, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is just me like projecting my own shit onto every other cinephile. But I think at a certain point, if you spend, I don't know, if you watch basically a film a day for many years on end, you start to reach a point of like, what's the point of all this? And you start to like question all of that. And the movie is very much like questioning what the point is of, well, A, what the point is of is engaging in so much of your life in movies, which again, by this point, Godard had made like 10 or 12 films within the course of like six years or whatever, plus like numerous shorts. And so he's really questioning that himself, but also questioning, okay, well, if I were to leave cinema and do something else with my keen intellect, which again, he was very smart guy. What would that even mean? Would there be any purpose to it? Would, is there something more than movies and both literally and then like philosophically is anything more important than anything else is anything we endeavor on important to its own ends or um could there be an active purpose into abandoning all of this which he would shortly at least say he was going to do um so i, I think it in its own way in kind of the sideways subtextual way that like pure lefou digs out and is really about divorce and films and relationship breaking apart made in usa gets at some really personal stuff about what it is to put so much of your life into essentially entertainment in a very productive way. And so it, I still absolutely adore the film and cannot recommend it enough. Okay. Well, let's move on to two or three things I know about her, which I, I watched in full for the first time recently. Mm. I've um, seen uh, in film school, I took a film school class called aesthetics of cinema or something like that. Um, this is a lot of aesthetic. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to think because every week was like structured around a thing. I don't know. I can't remember if it was dirty. It was like color. Maybe I can't remember what uh, which which uh, uh, element of the aesthetics of cinema that um, professor used this to illustrate. But he showed us clips from this, mostly the clips of um, the, the parts where the women in the movie uh suddenly uh turn to the camera and start talking about themselves uh that yeah. was the thing i that's the thing i mostly remember about the movie and and when i when i revisited it um or visited it for the first time in full uh also really liked which i've later read was accomplished by you talked about him like interviewing his actors and character um apparently he was asking these women questions through like a an earpiece yeah an earpiece yeah yeah. And that's what they're responding to in those scenes. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I, I think um, Marina Vladi, who plays the main character, Brody writes about Richard Brody writes writer somewhat like dismissively. I think her performance in it is like amazing, considering that she's like learning all her lines on the day because Godard doesn't actually write a script ahead of time, <laughs> reacting to the environment around her because that's what he wants in the film and reacting to things he's just randomly saying in her ear. <laughs> 
and that she's like kind of holding it together and maintaining her composure as this character who is trying to maintain a sense of like upright femininity and like kind of like the housewife persona while engaging in prostitution, which is kind of like the film's subject. Godard had read this article that was a big deal in France at the time that had uncovered that there were many, many women in France who were married, lived perfectly normal lives, but were also on the side engaging in prostitution, sometimes just to make ends meet and sometimes just to afford extra trips to the hairdresser or to go out to movies or um, put enough money away for a car or that kind of like some more capitalist one could call them extravagances or just living a slightly better life. Um, and this was like really lighting France on fire at the time. And so like the way the film engages with consumer products is very much a part of that. Mm-hmm. And it's also very much about like the development of a city. You get, you were talked earlier about like the way Godard will just like bring in sounds of construction here. There's like tons of shots of construction. You get the sense that like Paris is being reinvented around her mm-hmm. and that she's yeah. also representative of a way that, Paris and French culture is evolving. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say except uh, Beethoven. Um, sure, yeah. Uh, Beethoven, I can't say, I'm not, I'm not going to claim that I have enough of an ear that I was watching the movie and going, oh, Beethoven. But yeah, right. I read after the fact, like, oh, that's what he was using. So maybe, maybe this is where the thing I mentioned earlier, this is where he really starts relying on existing classical music. Yeah. Um, this is also an, an interesting fulcrum point in Godard's uh, personal life because he was obviously separated and divorced from Anna Karina um, and had not yet married uh, Anna Vyamemsky, who we'll talk about shortly. Um, he was romancing Marina Vladi, who starred this uh, two or three things, and had even proposed marriage to her. And she like went off on a vacation and thought about it and came back and turned him down. But she was younger than him, but had already had like two or three kids. I didn't mean that for that to be a play on the title. I think it was literally true. Um, uh, and so it was Richard Brody presents it as kind of this point where he could have either established himself as a more married, stable man with a family to take care of or run off with another even younger woman than Anna Corinna and just become kind of a perpetual adolescent. And he ended up doing the latter um, and making the next film, which I'm guessing is the one you've been hinting at. Yeah, um, this one blew me away and is definitely um, exhibit A in my argument of uh, Godard being an emotional filmmaker. Uh, La Chinois is, um, uh, it's, it feels very much of a, of a piece with the movies of this era that we're talking about, you know, coming off of masculine feminism, a movie about leftists. Uh, we'll get into uh, Weekend and the idea of uh, well, we'll get into weekend in a second. Um, but uh, it's also kind of an outline in a couple of ways in that it's an ensemble film, which is not something that um, he'd seem to make a lot, at least at this period. I don't know yeah. if I'm wrong. Uh, no, I mean, as far as I can remember from the ones we've gone through, which we've gone through all of them, I yeah. believe you're right. Um, and it's also um, the exception that proves you proves your rule earlier about his color films being widescreen, because this is a color film that is uh, one, three, three to one. Um and uh, first of all, yeah, it looks great. Uh, fantastic use of, of of color and and of um, I'm not enough of a you you mentioned you called me a cinematography geek earlier, but I don't know that much about like lens choices. But sure. um, there's a um, the uh, the the way that the you know I mentioned this being an ensemble. There's a lot of characters in the movie, but 
uh, a lot of the shots of them are one or two shots and there's a lot of like almost portraiture in the way that um they're uh framed especially early on as we're getting to know them um and uh, yeah i don't know what kind of lens is is used it's like maybe just just slightly wide but not like you know not like terry gilliam wide lens um (laughs) but uh so yeah but i here i talked about the emotionality and i'm just talking about the technique what uh really spoke to me is that this is a movie that is i think on its surface a critique of the type of characters that these are these are like especially we learn i guess spoilers by the end we learn that these are just like mostly a bunch of rich kids like playing yeah. being revolutionaries but the whole move the whole thing the whole idea is they were like existing in this like paris flat as if they're like a terrorist like a left-wing radical terrorist cell preparing preparing for some sort of coming action or or war or preparing for coming violence and and they're hardliners and they like kick guys out of the they kick a guy out of the group for um not being hardline enough and the movie is in many ways very funny i think um especially in those group scenes there's um uh group scenes uh especially with it like they each um take turns like researching a topic and then giving like a speech on it to the other members but like the members aren't just like sitting quietly and learning they're like (laughs) yelling back at them but like the um i mentioned the ensemble thing because there's these like wide shots are in one particularly memorable scene there's a i guess a tracking horizontal tracking shot from outside the window like from out on the balcony and you're seeing first the uh, whichever one of them is giving the instruction sort of framed on his own in the window and then the camera tracks and you see the other four however many there are sitting there and you could look like i could watch i could go back and watch that scene over and over again and watch every one of their faces and and how they react differently it's it's fantastic it's very, it's very funny uh, uh to get back to my original point like the movie does seem like it's kind of poking fun at the idea or or satirizing the idea of these um like like you talked about like uh uh revolutionary wannabes who come from a, a, a world of luxury and creature comforts but there is so much sympathy mm-hmm. not necessarily with their politics but with them as as people i i found the movie uh to be both one of the funniest and one of the saddest of of the Godard films that I watched, especially of this, of this era. Um, there's an amazing scene where uh, I can't remember who plays uh, the uh, Leod's girlfriend, but she like tells him at the breakfast table like she doesn't love him anymore and convinces him that it's true. But then we realize this was just like some psychological exercise to make a point, but. <laughs> Like and this, some of the credit obviously goes to Jean Pierre Leod here too. But like, you're heartbroken. I, I, I was heartbroken yeah. for this guy. Um, but it's also this like funny, like they're being ridiculous, like hardliner revolutionaries. Uh, when it really turns out they're just like staying in one of the girls' like aunt's apartment yeah. while she's like on vacation or something. It's like stalking uh, it with mal books. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I guess I I, I found this movie uh like i said i found it very funny i found it very emotional it also feels um concept like, conceptually or it feels most like it feels more fully conceived than this is another thing where i think of it as an as as an outlier uh, outlier in that so many good art films 
not just the new wave, his whole career do feel like that thing where you were talking about the, like the films are making themselves on on the spot. La Chinois feels more mapped out, um, but in a way that doesn't feel, you know, programmatic um, or, or, you know, like that hacky thing of like it's setting out to make a point, but it does feel like it's um, it's ebbs and flows maybe follow a um more traditional emotional and narrative arc so maybe this is one that you could start with if you're not a godard fan that's fascinating that you have that perspective because one i've never like had that experience with the movie which i like a lot um but i've always had like a somewhat hard time tracking it and which i found out today could be partially because godard literally shot it with no idea how he's going to assemble it he shot really? a series yeah a series <laughs> of scenes that he knew he wanted in the movie and when he thought he had enough to make a movie out of he stopped filming and then went to the editing room and was like wow. okay what order do these go in i love that yeah it's <laughs> crazy uh, um yeah my favorite part of it is probably the ending or t- not quite the ending but like towards the end where she's on the train with that other guy oh my god with her like former professor yeah and she's it's talking about her so plan <laughs> to blow up a college yeah. campus and that's what i'm talking about with that sympathy like this woman is like ridiculous to the point of being like a danger but this professor isn't like you're crazy i'm gonna yeah. have you arrested he's like talking not but he's also he's just like talking her through her crazy idea like well what happens and what like what do you imagine is 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 gonna happen and and there's a uh why didn't i write it down <laughs> um but there's there's a great line that he has about how you can't like force a revolution or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in that scene um, that again, goes back to what I was saying with this and masculine feminine of like Godard, maybe not being a full on leftist, uh, you know, like these characters, but clearly having some sympathy for them. Big time. Um, the, the actual, the other thing that's super interesting about that scene is Godard was feeding Anna Vyazemsky, Vyazemsky her lines via the earpiece again and essentially that was him debating with that professor who is actually like a professor of philosophy. Um, oh. And so he, he was making all these points in the moment. Uh, he later, at least from what I understand, um, came to see that the professor was right about the entire scene. And so a lot of the tension you get from that scene is that like the professor has the better perspective on things, but Godard is really feeling what he's projecting through his character. Um which is, I think, what gives the scene a lot of its juice. Yeah. Um, okay, are we moving on to Far From Vietnam? Um, I think we're actually moving on to... Uh, no, you're, oh, you're right. right. Far... Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think... No, oh, Far From Vietnam is first. Um, oh, okay. Well, I was going <laughs> to... I don't know. I, I, I watched this one, um, again, for one of these profiles, but for... Varda. Mm, yeah, because um, this was another omnibus film. Yeah, but the difference, <laughs> the thing I found really funny about this is that this is an omnibus where the uh, individual segments don't have credits. The directors are just listed alphabetically at the end of the movie. Oh, sure. Except <laughs> Godard went ahead and gave himself a credit within <laughs> the <laughs> within Perfect. his own short. Uh, which is the main thing I remember about it, to be honest. I was kind of like, okay. uh, I was kind of like, maybe, maybe Scott will talk about weekend and I can like refresh my memory of, uh, of 
of what actually happens in camera eye, which is what it's, uh, uh, what his short is, is called. But I, uh, I don't really remember. I think, um, I remember my overall thoughts on far from Vietnam is that it's, uh, fascinating to see, you know, you've, you've talked about, I can't remember what we were, this is when we were doing our James Khan um, uh, uh, profile. And you talked about how, like how boomers making movies about how they were right about Vietnam, like the former yeah. 50s were right about Vietnam, but far from Vietnam is a movie made by leftists that is in some, it, it's the part that the boomers and the hippies don't like the former boom and former hippies don't like to talk about is the stuff that they were wrong about because mm. they're, there tends to be, and you see it in politics now, there tends to be um, uh, uh, a black and white way of seeing things where it's like, well, I'm against this, so therefore I'm for this. And so there was a lot in, especially in the early years of the Vietnam War, I think a lot of leftists sort of non, you know, people who, especially white Western le- leftists who were kind of like in a kind of, maybe a kind of racist way, uh, um, uh, reducing the Vietnamese in a kind of like, you know, Orientalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, and there among leftists, it was kind of a romanticization of the Viet Cong. Like, Oh, these, this is an agrarian communist society. This is what we want. And kind of like ignoring the South Vietnamese people who were like, no, they're fucking killing us. Yeah. Um, but it it became this thing of like, well, we're against American imperialism and invention in this war, and therefore we must be on the side of the Viet Cong. And this is like Hanoi Jane, you know, Jane Fonda is a like a perfect example of 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 that in some ways. That's that's the part that the the hippies don't crow about so much. And I right. feel like there's a lot of that in Far From Vietnam. Yeah, and it, I mean it's true of um, to an extent La Chinois as well, where like there's a sympathy for these Maoist leftists, but like Mao was a sh- super shitty dictator who made life yeah. horrible and killed like thousands of people. And <laughs> but so, again, I like, think well, La Chinois, it's the characters doing that, not the movie. Whereas a lot, I think in Far From Vietnam, it's it's the sure. it's this team of, of filmmakers doing it. Uh, I guess I'm conflating some of Godard's interviews where he professed a a degree of sympathy with Mao that maybe the film wasn't as invested in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But certainly blowing up the sense of anything cultural, intellectual, societal uh, Vietnam or Vietnam weekend, the final film of his new wave period is I rewatched it again a couple of days ago and it is still so invigorating in just how thoroughly it's eviscerating everything, including Godard's own career. It, you know, ends famously with the Findu cinema thing where Godard was like, that's it. I'm out. And like, it wasn't true, but like, what a way to theoretically go out. Um, And this was for years until I saw Pure Le Food. This was my favorite Godard because I saw it in my early 20s. And I was like, I was like, this is fucking punk. (laughs) Because it is. It's like (laughs) it is hardcore. Um, The Criterion essay by the improbably named Gary Indiana, um, a real film critic who I'd never believe has that actual name. um, (laughs) He he posits it correctly in saying that there's a lot of films of this period kind of tearing into middle class consumerism and like the growing political unrest. But he notes what sets Godard's film apart is its sheer velocity, its outrageousness and its exuberant disdain for almost everything, (laughs) Um, which is such a perfect encapsulation of the experience of 
of watching the film. Um, you know, it starts out simply enough. There's a married couple plotting to kill each other, steal the family fortune and run away with their respective lovers. Um, but almost immediately, there's a sense that like everyone's just out to tear each other apart. Um, and it just keeps mounting from there. You know, there's the famous tracking shot through a traffic jam where they seem to be going through unending series of chaos and people just distracting themselves until they get to the result of the traffic, which is like people laying dead on the road, just covered in blood um, there. But there's also like a scene where a guy's in a field and magically makes sheep appear out of nowhere. It's like the most insane expression of that growing political unrest, but in a way that's not like a political film. It's just an expression of how it all felt, how Godard felt being exhausted of making films and the entire middle-class culture that he was kind of playing into. Um, there's repeated references to them being characters in a movie, the suggestion that they have no real inner lives. But then at the same time, like there's the much reference scene where the wife is agonizing over a car crash because her handbag is yeah. burning up. But the actress plays that with so much intensity that you're like that you kind of feel it you kind of feel like the terror and things as piercing at like i the closest thing i liken it to is like something like bergman was doing at the time like it feels just like as guttural as like shame or something but it's over a handbag which like points to how godard could take something ridiculous but infuse it with just as much emotion as it needed both to be completely ridiculous and to just heighten the nightmarishness of it all um the film also starts with this woman kind of recounting this like ridiculous sexual fantasy and her husband asking well was that real or was that a nightmare and that's like that's the film from there it's like is this really happening or is this just a nightmare wow uh shades of uh eyes wide shut yeah um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't have much more to say about it. Just that, yeah, it's there's it's a movie that's full of fire and blood and um, uh, a really impressive uh, tracking shot of that that uh, that traffic jam you mentioned. That um, yeah, sort of like Pierrot Le Fou, like something that feels so uh, anarchic and and uh, uh, experimental and, and run and gun, but also clearly was like funded. <laughs> Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, I uh, referenced Jackson Pollock kind of at the top, and this is the one that like aesthetically feels like a Jackson Pollock painting of just like the pure chaos being yeah, unveiled. Yeah. And you like can't believe that like, I mean, insofar as like Godard had a shoot schedule and a day plan, you can't believe that like anyone could plan to make this movie. It yeah. feels like it just erupted from someone's pure id. And yeah, it's yeah. just incredible. All right. Now, my question for you here is we are about to get to 13 years of movies that I haven't seen. Uh, um, sure. So what uh, uh, what I'm what I'm hinting at is that I might uh, take a bathroom break while you talk. But um, that's all right. Uh, but you talked about it being the last new wave film. Before we move into the next segment, can you give an overview of what this next section of his career is? Yeah. So Weekend wrapped in 1967 and was released, I think, in even December of 67. In early 68, there were a series of events in France that are way too complex to recap here. But essentially, there was a massive series of protests and civic breakdown that erupted and was now kind of referred to as May 68. Um, and again, like we somebody much smarter than me could dedicate an entire podcast to recapping what went down in May 68. But suffice to say, there were like 
uh, separate initiatives undertaken by political figures, students, and workers, which led to a period in which students occupied every university in Paris and around a third of the workforce was on strike. The economy literally came to a complete halt as a result of this. Um, Charles de Gaulle, who was the president at the time, fled from France, not just Paris, but fled from France entirely because there was a sense that it was going to be another French revolution, that there was going to be complete upheaval of society. Um, and again, they didn't succeed insofar as they like shut down society for a period of time. And it was just an unusual period of alliance at a time when most of society was pretty, uh, you know, you think of like American protests at the time that it really represented how split America was in its conservative and uh, left wing wings. Whereas France was like, no, this is entirely fucked up. It started as like a student protest, but workers joined in and it really represented an alliance that was unexpected for everybody. And so this next period of time, Godard had declared that he was done with movies, but he quickly became involved in what was known as the Ziga Vertov group, um, where he and a loose series of collaborators made a series of films that were um, trying to make sense of where France was at and trying to form a new idea of what cinema could be, both in terms of how it's produced. Um, there's no credits on any of these films and much is kind of debated as far as who contributed what to any given film. Um, and also in terms of how they get released. A lot of these films were financed by TV stations, zero of which aired the projects <laughs> that they contracted because they were so off-putting in so many multiple ways that I'll get into um, in, in fairly short order. I don't want to spend a ton of time on these films because okay. um, you have enough time for a bathroom break. Don't worry. Okay. Um, but for the listener's sake, they're not like the most watchable movies. Um, they're very uh, alienating to an audience and very militant in a way that I think points to Godard's lack of wisdom in a certain degree. Um, but which have their interesting points. If you're really, if you're really invested in Godard, I think they're really well worth watching. Um, so he starts with a film like any other, which is, gosh, how do you even summarize it? It's got this documentary style sections of students kind of chatting outside, uh, the Renault factory, which is a big factory where strikes have recently taken place. Um, and the way I kind of summarized it is that uh, in he'd been trying to kind of encapsulate what was going on with uh, French society. And the students talk a lot about what this is the next stage. OK, May 68 has happened. So what do we do next? And they talk about really uniting the workers, bringing a sense of the culture that they were learning in university into the working class. This is around a time where university culture around the world was really building and so kids reading advantages that the parents never had a lot of their parents had never gone to college and so the working class background they came up in they were like okay how do we take what we're learning now and infuse them into the background that we had it's not like the most cinematically accomplished the portraits of the students are very like far away and purely done in voiceover um the soundtrack is very hard to parse as an english speaker or at least someone who doesn't speak french um because there's all these layers of dialogue which guitar would continue to build on throughout his career and it represents like the confusion of many arguments which is really interesting but it only kind of gives us a partial understanding of their conclusions these are methods that he kind of refined as the years went on and so it's an interesting uh place in Godard's career and a great key portrait of post may 68 culture 
as a film, it's tough to sit through. Uh, the initial audience, when it premiered, not only booed it, but started to literally tear up their seats. So that gives an indication of kind of what uh, they were going through. The one interruption Godard gets in this period in terms of the political cinema is that he was contracted to make a film about the Rolling Stones. Uh, he had uh, taken this assignment before he started to make political films um, and wanted to get out of it. But the producers were like, no, we're going to take you to court if you don't literally make this film about the Rolling Stones. And so he made this film one plus one that was released at the time as Sympathy for the devil and is ostensibly about um, the writing and well, not even writing, but the assembling of that song. And it's, it's as a music documentary, it's like super key. And if you're into the Rolling Stones, if you're into Sympathy for the devil, it's really well worth watching even on that level because it's got these great long tracking shots of the stones just like gradually assembling the song from kind of an initial rock ballad to the final kind of wacky form that it ends up taking um without much commentary in that way uh it is also intercut with Anne and Vyavemsky uh playing Eve Democracy who wanders through forests answering uh, elaborate political questions with simple yes or no's because she did not speak any English. Um, so it's a uh, interesting film in a lot of ways, but I, I think it really does play really well. It's got both the Godardian post 68 political sense while also being this super cool uh, music documentary. And of course the stones are like just great performers and they make great subjects on camera. So it's really cool. It's also interesting. It was shot by Tony Richmond who ended up becoming a pretty notable director um, because it was an English like an English film produced in London. He had to hire a London cinematographer and he came up with this kind of like figure eight tracking formation for the camera that has like the camera just wandering through uh, the stones uh, process of recording a song. And the shot lengths are very lengthy. They go on for a while, but it's cool to watch the stones kind of, kind of build their jam. Um, then we get back into the kind of political films, uh, British sounds, is a series of kind of portraits of British life contracted for UK television. They didn't air it. Um, he, at first, the it's most notable for its opening sequence, which is just a long series of tracking shots through a British car manufacturer. And there's these grinding, terrible mechanical sounds that are really off-putting to most audiences, but which I find kind of like uh, hypnotic. Um, to the audience responses, Godard said, the workers have to listen to that sound all day, every day for weeks, months, years on end but bourgeois audiences couldn't stand to listen to it for more than a few seconds um which is very confrontational and very pointed to where Godard was at at the time um there's then a section where just a nude woman walking around her apartment discussing the limitations of women and the need for liberation there's a part where he parodies the the covert racism of mainstream tv and makes it overt which watching it now is kind of like Reflective of a lot of clips you see from Fox News, um, where unfortunately what Godard was parroting at the time has now become our active culture and is a little less funny in that regard. The film kind of deteriorates from there. The back half is the series of kind of freeform conversations between workers and students and so forth. Um, it does have a final image where uh, like an arm kind of like punches through the British flag that has some blood on it that allegedly Godard like cut his own arm to get the blood for the final sequence, which is you know like i said the dude punk. was self-destructive yeah <laughs> sure punk let's go with that uh next is a film called pravda uh as one might expect from a godard film from this era called pravda is a very dense intelligent and sometimes captivating film that i'm probably under equipped to fully dissect um 
but it does kind of explore the fragility of communism. It was shot in Czechoslovakia in 1969, which if you know the history of Czechoslovakia in 1969, they'd recently been overtaken by Soviet occupation. Um, And so there's a sense in which Godard is trying to recognize or trying to advocate for the finer points of communism, but it's cut with this just aging machinery, weary workers, underserviced roads um, that just feel like a decaying society. And, you know, it, it kind of ironic border and tragedy that Godard was trying to make an uh, advocacy for communism in a society that was being currently devastated by communism. Uh, he said very shortly thereafter, the film is 99% a failure, but I think that it's going 1% in the right direction. <laughs> um, so he was even trying to talk himself into it uh, at the time. Uh, Le Gassoir was a TV movie he made that did actually air. Um, it's largely a series of meetings between Jean-Pierre Léaud and Juliette Berto, who uh, her first film was two or three things I know about her. And she would in a couple of years become a major collaborator with Jacques Rivette. Um, this film I found fairly dull. Um, the idea is they come, these two come up with a three-year program of study and action their first year to make basic images and sounds. And then the second to analyze those images and sounds. And then the third year to begin to, to recompose those into something more complex. Um, this was something that Godard was working through a lot in terms of like how to make a new kind of cinema. Um, and a lot of the films that I've just discussed post weekend are just like, trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing. Um, and I think this is kind of part of that. It's mostly just cinematically very dull. It's the two of them sitting in a room that's completely dark. Um, so you really only get the sense of the two of them, no sense of space, no sense of the larger society they're interacting with, none of the kind of incidental details that we've talked about that Godard was so open to, um, but which this film is really devoid of. Uh, all of this kind of starts to hit a breaking point with Wind from the East, which is far more interesting in uh, in its production than it is to actually watch. Um, it originated with one of the student leaders of the May 68 events who proposed the idea of a left-wing spaghetti Western. Um, and that basic premise sounded so promising that they were able to raise like $200,000. Remember in uh, contrast, Band of Outsiders, which was like shot six years before, was made for $100,000. And so there were, because it was Godard, because it was a student leader of the May 68 events, there were a lot of people who were kind of fashioning themselves as filmmakers, trying to gain control of this project and trying to like assert their prominence. Um, Godard controlled the money and decided to just pay everyone equally. But then like the technicians banded together and bought a Ferrari. Um, some of the money for the film was ferried back to France to support militant activity. And some people just used the money to open a nightclub at the time. And so Godard was like completely out of control of this. He and Viazemsky were fighting uncontrollably. And Godard wrote to a guy he'd been collaborating with kind of off and on more loosely than formally named Jean-Pierre Gorin, um, who became a filmmaker in his own right, but at the time was more of a political writer and who was interested in get, breaking into films. And Godard, in retrospect, talked about how their collaboration worked because he wanted out of films and Gorin wanted in, and that kind of tension proved very productive. Um, so he called Gorin and was like, 
look, man, I've got this film, but I'm going to bolt unless you come. Gorin had recently been in a motorcycle accident and was still in hospital, but was like, I'll be there and got on the train to join wherever they were shooting the film. Um, they ended up calling together the crew and revolutionaries to discuss the project. And they filmed that and put that in the movie too. Um, the film kind of came together with extensive discussions in the editing room and um, Godard was very enlivened by that process, by how they kind of put together the film. Uh, it, it kind of goes through like the history of revolutionary filmmaking and contemporary practices, including a section on bomb making. Um, and it, again, is more interesting in theory than in, at least to me in practice. Uh, the next film is the best film in this movement to me and which Godard largely cr uh, credits to Gorin. It's called Struggles in Italy. And it is um, it's essentially looking at the class struggle in Italy through the perspective of a single woman who's kind of finding her political commitment. It really isn't all that revolutionary kind of shades of the larger attitude of La Chinois, but as if one of those characters had realized it themselves. What's I think most interesting about it is it uses a layered uh, soundtrack that's in Italian and French that's kind of recapping her inner monologue uh, kind of side by side. And, but it, it, so there's something in the way that that's put out that kind of feels like it's a better way to express these kind of conflicting complex thoughts that are kind of bouncing around in her head. Um, how her sense of self is formed by media or politics or school or family. Um, and it feels like appropriately chaotic for the kind of sense they're kind of trying to uh, capture weirdly, although it was essentially set in Italy, it was mostly shot in Godard's apartment. Um, <laughs> and the film kind of feels like it's gradually taking shape the more she takes ownership of her life and begins to understand the role that the political environment plays in it and kind of grows, uh, kind of takes hold of it herself while the film is taking hold of itself. Again, apparently mostly Gorin's doing according to Godard and Godard was not one to uh, shirk authorship where he could, you noted that uh, <laughs> yeah. far from Vietnam, he went ahead and just made sure you knew what he was doing in it. <laughs> um, so the, the extent to which you can credit to Godard, I'm not sure, but maybe the fact that it, it to me, at least it's the best one um, might speak to uh, his disinterest in filmmaking at the time. Um, the next one, Vladimir and Rosa is uh the one that i think most people latch onto from this period is thinking it's the best to me it, it kind of goes on a bit it's largely a reflection of the trial of the chicago eight but with a lot of like slapstick uh a tone that the group's admirers thought was a little too glib and which i think is apart from maybe being a little too glib for the subject is also just kind of like a little wearying um there's kind of the popular belief that the French really aren't that good at comedy that I don't entirely agree with. And Godard made some good comedies, made plenty of good jokes along the way, but I don't know. I, I just, I found this whole, um, haven't those people heard of a little movie called the artist? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I, I just find this one a little tough to sit through and it's one of the longer ones. It's 106 minutes. So, you know, it's, uh, can be Ooh. a little much. <laughs> um, the final film that, Godard and Gorin made together was um, their biggest budgeted and still probably their most famous uh, to Vabian, um, mostly for the fact that it stars Jane Fonda as an American reporter. Um, and then her husband is played by Yves Montan, who's kind of a big French entertainer. Um, and right from the opening of the film, they're like sabotaging the very notion of that because it, there's a series of shots of someone like writing checks and Godard and Grin talking on the soundtrack and being like, this is how essentially like, this is how we get the money is we get the stars. Um, and so 
there's a lot of the film that seems to sabotage and look down on the nature of Jane Fonda and Yves Montand participating in it and is probably a big reason. In addition, apparently, to her experience making the film, why Jane Fonda uh, speaks very disparagingly of the entire experience. Um, to cut Godard, I guess, some slack. He got in a motorcycle accident right before this film was due to uh, start up and much worse condition than uh, Gorin was in. It actually nearly killed him. He was in a coma for a month. Um, he there, somebody said that he had so much skin grafts, mostly taken from his butt that you could like see the bone underneath. He lost a testicle during the course of this. Um, it was like hugely devastating. And so Gorin ended up directing most of this film himself, but trying to use like Godard's notes on it and influence the way he was making it. Um, and ultimately the way Gorin got Jane Fonda involved is she was like, teetering on the edge of dropping out because she'd like not been getting along with Godard because like who could. And she was obviously like on her own political trajectory, but he was like, look, if you want to come here and tell Godard to his face, barely awake in a hospital bed, that you're not going to do this film fine. And she was like, fine, I'll do the freaking movie. And so it didn't get off to a great start. Um, It does like have a lot of cool shit in it though. It uses these like elaborate sets with cutaways and these big tracking shots which is kind of like reminiscent of the Jerry Lewis film, uh, The Ladies' Man, or later like Wes Anderson's um, Life Aquatic or that kind of thing. Um, so it's got like would a you, lot of would cool- Would you call like, it candy? Would you call this stuff candy? I would, I would say it's got a little bit of candy in it. It's got a little bit of juice. And so it's got like these big set pieces and like they built this whole uh, supermarket that they film in. Um, and so it's got some cool stuff in it, uh, but and it holds together well enough. But um I can see why Jane Fonda would feel a bit slighted by it because it definitely like it kind of involves her covering this like strike at a sausage factory. And mostly she's there to be the semi clueless American about the whole ordeal. Um, Mm. She probably also soured on it because of the film that Godard and Grin made immediately after this called Letter to Jane, which is an essay film on a photograph of Jane Fonda in Vietnam. Not that photograph of Jane Fonda in Vietnam, (laughs) notably. Um, so there's an, another photograph of her where she's kind of like just having a casual, what seems like a very casual discussion with um, one of uh, the Viet Cong, but which they read like all this shit into about like the role an intellectual should play in the revolution, which like, look at yourself, Godard, come on. Um, and then there's like a lot of them just dissecting the gaze that she's giving and they like fold in all these other images from like past films and stuff of like people giving kind of similar looks of like they decide it's like condescending or like asserting herself within it. They even like blame her for the composition of the photograph that she didn't take. Um, it's like completely unfair in every regard. It's a pretty good movie though. And it is like, it kind of points to like what I said at the top of like Godard was like super smart and like the connections he's making in this are like insane but it's like to the service of what, man? It's like the least useful insight that anyone could have. Um, but uh, is usually accompanied to Vabien's various releases on home video because of the Jane Fonda connection and is very much evidence of like Godard's self-destructive uh, tendency <laughs> where like he went several years of making a series of films nobody cared about or was even willing to show. He finally gets a star on board and immediately like severs that connection to like a far greater extent than even like having a rough like film shoot. He's like, no, I'll make a separate (laughs) film to like piss off this huge movie star even more. And like, again, to what end, like the film accomplishes almost nothing, but um, as a piece of cinema, it's kind of interesting. Um, So then 
the Ziga Viratov group kind of falls apart because like none of their films were getting shown. And then Godard got in this like devastating motorcycle accident that took him out of commission for three years. This three year break is the longest break that he uh, would take until 2010. I made a note of here. Um, Mm. For the most part, he wouldn't go more than a few months between projects for the entirety of 1960 to 2010. And that's how he gets, you know, 130 films of varying lengths under his belt. Uh, The next feature he makes is called uh, Numero Du, which began as a remake of Breathless. Uh, The idea that Georges de Bergard came with him was like, okay, let's remake Breathless. Let's use the exact same budget, though. The problem with that is that whatever budget they had at the time was worth much less by 1975 than it was in 1960, not only because of the passage of time, but like that was a huge period of like economic upheaval in France. And like, so inflation was really skyrocketing. And so Godard was like, well, that sounds great. And then almost (laughs) immediately said in the press, but I'm not doing it as a remake at all. Uh, It's more going to be a reflection on the basis of Breathless, the basis being that how much less you can do with money in that period in 1975 than you could in 1960, which like doesn't come across in the film at all. It's interesting in theory because um, most of it plays on TV screens where that he films. So sometimes you'll get two side by side, sometimes you get one by itself. And so it's kind of a reflection on the rising uh tide of television which is a big will be a big theme for him over the next 15 years um there's is a loose story thing if he's shooting is he shooting 24 frames per second of tv which is 30 frames per second and therefore you get those like weird bars that travel up the tv yeah i'm not sure about? i'm not sure technologically how they did it but you don't okay. get that effect as much as you might expect from that setup okay. um what plays out on the tv is loosely this kind of like marital struggles um the of uh, the, the woman like kind of struggling at her role at home, the man being too devoted to work. It does have this kind of neat moment where like the guy's going off to work and the, his wife is resentfully like, go ahead, your boss is waiting for you. And he's like, no, I'm going to join my coworkers on strike. My, my comrades are waiting for me. And she's like, it's the same. Um, basically like aligning that men will find some allegiance outside the home, no matter what. Um, but then like, so now we're going to be getting interest to a period of Godard stuff that's real uncomfortable. Um, one, I know this is not a favorite topic of yours, but Numero Du also refers to bodily functions and the right, wife's yeah. inability to produce said bodily functions. And so there's like all these discussions about how she like can't take a shit. Um, and so uh, it gets a little tiring. And then there's some real uncomfortable family sex stuff where the... Uh, the their like son is like what do you and daddy do in the bedroom and she like describes it and then they like invite their children in at one point to like observe them naked and like this is what our body parts do and like the kids are like sitting there watching them describe this and being naked and stuff and like it's it's all on screen um so we'll talk about this over the next in a few films moreover but godard was taking an active and i would say somewhat too keen interest in uh incest more largely um and which informs a lot of his films in the 80s um sometimes i think in interesting in uh, interrogative and insightful ways and sometimes in ways that are just like real uncomfortable so numero do fairly uncomfortable stuff okay um 
Here and Elsewhere is a film that he, so the big thing I forgot to mention at the start of this period is that um, this is where he starts to both work and live with Anne-Marie Mielville, who would be his uh, partner in life and partner in work um, for the rest of his life. Um, pretty much soon after he like got released from the hospital, he just started staying with her and then they like just stay together the rest of the time. Not that like that points to like a period of stability as we'll see, he like kept trying to sabotage that relationship too. But mm-hmm. I don't, I unfortunately, it's hard to access her perspective as much, partially because she's still alive and seems like not as prone to divulging this kind of stuff the way that Godard is. Um, But maybe I just haven't done enough reading on it, but she just kind of like stuck by him nevertheless. Um, So Here and Elsewhere is assembling and reassessing some footage that Godard and Guren shot of Palestinian resistance fighters in 1970. Uh, The Arab League actually commissioned this film, um, but the translators... Uh, who were Palestinians living in Paris um, refused to translate them literally, I think because they were, uh, I forgot to write down exactly why, but they were like painting a portrait of Palestinian resistance fighters that they didn't want out in the world. Um, so, right, yes, I did actually make it out of this. Godard and Mielville hired a UN translator who revealed that the fighters were exhausted and blaming the officers for sending them to their deaths. Um, so mm-hmm. Godard and Gurin got into it because they were very much on the Palestinian side and wanted to title it victory in 1975, they retitle it here and elsewhere. And they talk about that title change and kind of the evolution of it within the sense, within the film itself. Mm-hmm. There's other components of it involving a French fa- family watching coverage of the Israel Palestine conflict in the comfort of their own home. Um, very much, you know, pointing the title here and elsewhere that there's a sense that like, okay, the conflict's over there. It's not affecting our lives, but we're still like having opinions on it and having a debate about who's right and who's wrong. Um, Most of the debate is between Godard and Mielville over the progress of history and the responsibility of images and kind of a media saturated world. Um, The film's more interesting kind of as a whole than any discrete parts, as opposed to the Ziggur Vertov stuff, which is sometimes more interesting as parts than a whole. Um, and is generally is more interesting to discuss and actually watch the self-reflection is the best component. And I'm glad that they didn't kind of make the film that they set out to make and kind of had the period of reflection on it. Um, and it, cause it gets into like the idea of the Western impulse to kind of com- conquer conflicts in other parts of the world, either by like solving them outright through troops or by just like saying like, this is what's going on in this part of the world. They're like they're providing the definitive reading of how it is. Um, good artists, at least aware of like how events build on each other and prove his reactions to one another. Um, he talks about, you know, how Hitler came to power as a reactionary force, which begat the Holocaust, which begat Israel, which then begat, you know, s- some Zionist circles that in turn led to Palestinian suffering, but he's not able to kind of get out of his own way. And reading of history is definitely from a very Eurocentric perspective. Um on the film's commercial release, a militant Zionist group planted a bomb at one of the theaters showing it. The bomb didn't go off, but the theater canceled its booking. There was another theater showing it that was run by Godard's former assistant who retained the showtimes despite the threats. Um, the same group left a gas canister there, broke a window, and released mice in the theater. Um, <laughs> so lots going on in uh, Godard's exhibition. Um, not quite the final film of this cycle, but probably the most... Uh, the last one that's kind of overtly in this milieu is called Coma Sava, which is a really interesting and solid film. It's a more overt and forthright reflection on the television industry and how it kind of digests current events um, and has some great kind of stuff about relationships in there. There's 
uh, cool kind of cab ride at the beginning where this cabbie's kind of talking to a woman in the back and offers this sentence or this thought rather that I think informs a lot of Godard's work. He says, you see in your gestures, there are words, but in the form of silence. And I really like that silence. Um, the sense that like people give away more of themselves through how they behave and how they speak than actually in, in what they say. Um, I didn't make a ton of other notes about it, but just to say that um, it is available. It's on, you can buy it on Blu-ray from all of films and um as kind of the last film that, at least that i've seen from this period of experimentation from the ziga vertov group on through the early stuff in Anne marie mealville it's probably the most interesting and most involving the big there are a few projects they made in this period that i didn't get around to seeing because they're very long they made some tv series yeah. um one called six times two over and under communication and one called uh, France Tour Detour de Enfant, um, both of which are quite lengthy and which you can find on illicit uh, download sites, which is how I found most of the films in this period, um, but <laughs> which uh, I just didn't have time to get to. Um, but then that gets back into where David can jump back in and where most people probably should jump back in, unless unless you're really into Godard, like the, basically the stuff he made between this next film and after Weekend, Aside from probably one plus one, which is really good, um, is largely for auteurists only kind of stuff. Um, Every Man for Himself was very much Godard trying to get back into the industry and which came about due to the enthusiasm of a young producer named Alain Sard, who uh, became like this huge producer in French cinema and produced most of Godard's films throughout the rest of his career. He just loved Godard's work and um knew a way to get the movie made he knew that french television had a mandate to produce films for the cinema and sought out that line of credit and it seemed like kind of helped urge godard along even when he was trying to um sabotage the production at various stages as he tended to do but since i've been talking for a while david could you please encapsulate a little bit of whatever man for himself is about well, it's funny that you describe it as his like attempt to get back into something because he makes something that's like yeah. so unpleasant and uncommercial in so many ways. Um, the, I mean, the main ingredient of the unpleasantness is the male lead. It's a, it's a. There are three leads, and and the movie's kind of like a triptych, right? Where like each section, yeah, follows a different one of the leads, and the middle section is is the male lead. The uh husband or ex-husband of the first one i can't it's been years um i think x it's been a while since i've seen it too um who's a filmmaker whose name is godard yeah <laughs> played by uh i had it in front of me uh jacques dutronc is the actor's name um he's such an unrepentant piece of shit yeah he's he's got this massive ego and he's also got that self-destructiveness that you're talking about where he intentionally alienates like everyone he comes into contact with there's of course the there's the incest thing you're talking about where he, oh, yeah. he talks he talks about his uh quite uh, i don't know i can't remember i can't remember there's a girl supposed to be like 11 I'm yeah 11 or 12. 12 yeah and he talks about having sex with her he asks her soccer coach if yeah. he's ever considered I don't, I don't... having sex with him. I don't think they there's an implication that they have had sex. He just talks no, he about just, the idea that they could. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I should have made that clear. Cause yeah. he's, cause he does this stuff to, I don't know, to alienate people, um, uh, how to lose friends and alienate people, which is yeah. a movie with Simon Pegg and, uh, 
Megan Fox. Anyway, never saw it. Um, uh, uh, so like that's that's the biggest hurdle is you have to like spend a considerable amount of, amount of time in this movie uh, with a guy who is daring you to find any reason to uh, give him any sort of uh, of your time or benefit of the doubt at all. Uh, on top of that, there uh, the movie um, inexplicably and repeatedly shifts into super slow motion, um, which I think and, is pretty cool. Yeah, I think are you not into it? I'm, uh, I'm just describing. I'm just describing why the movie is like uncommercial. Like, sure, yeah, you were, yeah. You were talking about him like this is my comeback and and makes this uh, this movie. It, it is actually very cool. The the slow motion and also very cool is now I, I've talked before about his unconventional use of music, like just suddenly starting and stopping. Um, but there are, is at least one entire scene where the music's so loud that you can't hear the two female yep. leads talking. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I'm just describing what, how the movie is is so uh, um, uncommercial. But uh, the best part of the movie for me is the third segment, um, not least because the the character named Isabel is played by Isabel Huppert. Mm-hmm. Um, she plays a prostitute. We talked before about Visavi and uh, two or three things I know about her. Like uh, he seems to have a preoccupation with with prostitutes um, uh, and. The story for what it's worth, I guess, is that uh, of her, she's trying to buy an apartment and it turns out the woman she's trying to buy a, an apartment from is the the wife, the ex-wife who's in the first segment and the ex-husband, Godard, is a client of hers as a prostitute. And so right. Like, coincidental, I think. Um, but then she and this guy's ex-wife like become friends. <laughs> um that's about all I, I remember is uh, finding it to be like um, compelling and repulsive at the same time. Yeah, uh, distasteful but involving. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it, it points to a lot of what I've been saying about Godard, where it's extremely off-putting, um, but very honest. And so if you're keyed into movies for honesty, for first, first, yeah. First most, then um, that is very key to it. Uh, the suggestion, not like, again, not the suggestion that there's been incest conducted, but the suggestion of interest in incest, I think it is very much comes from Godard looking around and seeing all these guys with children and having so little sense of empathy for what it means to be a father because he had never become one himself, that he his mind automatically goes to sex. Um I don't have any strong evidence that Godard ever like embarked on this himself. Who the hell knows? But his keen interest in it is very disquieting. Uh, and I think also in terms of how he got the film produced, um, the daughter is played by uh, a daughter of his, one of his colleagues and friends um, he had, who he'd met by chance. Um, I, I'm assuming he knew her from knowing the guy. They're about to board the same flight and he accompanied her to save her the hassle of like flight attendants and so forth. They talked about soccer. He asked her if she wanted to be in a film about soccer and she agreed. And that's how he got her involved in this movie. And then he like sent her a soccer ball, which is like kind of weird. And like, if you know Godard's history, especially of like romancing female stars, it's kind of has the similar tenor to that. Um, and most kind of like uncomfortable to me is that he invited this young girl to the screening for the crew, but she had no idea about the entire scene where they like discuss uh, quite 
literally they say fucking her in the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was just like watching the scene, like completely mortified at the age of 12 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely points to Goddard's complete lack of sympathy for um, anyone else's perspective on things other than just to see his work. Uh, the film was actually booed at Cannes and there were cries of degeneracy, but its producer was like, I think I got a way out of this. And so he was like, don't worry, guys. It was a work print. Goddard's still working on it. We're going to go back to it and we'll release it in like six months. Six months pass. Uh, they show the film again unchanged and everyone's like, <laughs> it's a masterpiece. And it really was like a huge uh, reclamation of Goddard's reputation and really brought him back into the fore um in terms of the cinema and became key to kicking off this next phase of his career um the next film in that phase called passion which i would have liked to have revisited because it's been a while since i've seen it um but what i remember of it it, there's kind of the story involves a film director overseeing a vast super production a factory worker trying to organize a strike and a romantic relationship that develops between the two of them and others in their orbit. The factory worker is played by Isabel Huppert, who's always a welcome presence. And the film director is played by Michelle Piccoli, who again, always a welcome presence. Um, Godard around this time had visited the set of one from the heart and was like in awe of this film studio that Franz Ford Coppola had set up and was soon to shut down, but which at the time was like, totally captivating to him and you can see in kind of the film within a film that they're making which i don't remember too much of but is kind of like looser restaging classical works of art and like looks absolutely gorgeous this brought back raul Cotard uh with godard for the first time since weekend and looks just like astonishing um and much of the directors the characters uh practices recall godard's own there's a lot of indecision stasis chaos um and Cotard said that, like, as much as he and Godard would fight during the 60s, and I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Masculine and Feminine, because I think the only film in that period that wasn't shot by Raul Cotard, but Godard was so unpleasant to the cinematographer that he never worked with him again. And he was just, like, used to, like, shitting on Cotard all the time, but Cotard would just, like, throw it back at him, whereas this guy was, like, constantly just in terror of showing up to set. Um, and so Cotard was like, yeah, I'm used to Godard being like this, but it's clearly gotten worse over the years. And he's clearly trying to instigate conflict more actively than he used to. Um, all of which sounded like it was very productive for Godard, but um, would continue to alienate collaborators over the next several years. Um, and it's kind of reflected on the film. It's definitely worth watching for the cinematography. Um, and it, I mean, as with most of Godard's films, the short is under 90 minutes. So it's not much to get through. I don't, again, I don't remember the rest of it. So the rest of it could be super involving and interesting, but definitely purely on the cinematography. It's really, really cool. Um, the next film is more widely available. Um, so this gets into a really interesting period of French cinema in general. Um, if you know a bit about the Cahiers de Cinema crowd and kind of the trajectory they went on, not all of them were as extreme as Godard, but most of them had trouble producing films in the seventies. Um, Rivette like barely scraped together the, the funds to make out one. Um, Romare made like two movies. Um, Chabrol and Truffaut worked at a decent clip, but mostly because they were able to keep in the mainstream. Um, but largely they weren't 
but very few of them were doing the kind of major personal work they were doing before. And then all of a sudden the 80s, like it clicked in and they just like went off with a gunshot and started making like tons of movies at a very fast clip. That was because there was a new socialist government that was elected and its incoming cultural minister. Um, this is like, actually, this totally ties in with what we were saying earlier about like dorm room poster movies of like, once you get the taste of the younger generation coming in. So this incoming cultural minister, Jack Lang was born in like 1940. And so he was in his twenties when the new wave was going on and he loved the new wave. And so he had all this influence into what was getting made in France, because actually a lot of French cinema uh, is, if not directly government funded, definitely assisted in terms of production and tax credits Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so he was like, Hey guys, what do you want to make? Let's do it. And so all those guys like started making tons of movies really fast, including Godard, who got off and running with um, first name Carmen, which I'm not sure your thoughts on it, but I think it's a super cool movie, even if it is definitely uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, you've got um, it's uncomfortable because you've got a male lead who um, you wouldn't want around any women, that you know, uh, or women that you don't know. Um uh <laughs> even though he's introduced as almost like a bumbling like comic uh character i'm dancing all around the yeah the 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 plot but um yeah so that i don't know if that's what you're referring to when you were talking about it being uncomfortable is is, is that character but um i don't know a lot of it's very funny um yeah. uh especially early on um and especially the stuff with godard as a version of himself um uh so the movie the he, yeah Go ahead. i was just gonna say he plays the uncle of the main woman uh whose name is carmen or not uh, the movie's kind of like right. interesting dances around that um there is a suggestion that he has molested her in the past and she is a young woman who's like i think the actress was like 20 it was actually supposed to be made with isabel angiani who immediately clashed with the Godard and quit the film and so they had like two weeks to, out. yeah yeah and they had like two weeks to cast it and so they were like, okay, there's this woman who like just arrived in France and she's working as an all pair. And her rehearsal was just like completely volatile. And Godard was like, I like her. And she was down with uh, the rampant nudity he was asking for. And I think yeah. a lot of the sexual situations are more than a experienced actress would accommodate, but which um, are definitely uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, uh, that's, and that's, uh, um, not when you think of when you think of a movie that is uh, kind of a heist comedy. <laughs> yeah, right. Because um, so yeah, Carmen goes to her uncle, her predatory, lecherous uncle, um, who is a filmmaker played by Jean-Luc Godard, um, to try and get him to like help her make a film. But it turns out it's kind of like an Argo type situation where the film production is a front for a uh, an assassination. Is that right? Yeah. But at the beginning, they rob a bank to pay for the film. It's, I can't remember. Yeah. It's um, the, the, I know. I always think about like these disparate elements. I'm like, I know the connect. But I yeah. can't remember how exactly. So there's early. So she goes to her uncle, and then there's this uh, insane, hilarious, like almost like screwball, surreal, absurdist bank robbery that um, turns into a massive shootout. Um, but there's like one. <laughs> character who's just sitting in the bank lobby reading a newspaper and he seems just yeah. like only mildly like kind of annoyed that the shootout is going <laughs> on but then 
you cut back and he's been shot and killed. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, sad, but, but, uh, funny. Uh, and so our main guy is the, the security guard, I, I guess, who is, like I said, introduced as a comic character. Cause he's like terrible at his job and like, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Bumbling. Um, and then they meet and just sort of, uh, immediately fall in love. And that sort of, um, again, you've got, uh, Godard uh, returning to um, genres that he knows because it feels like a screwball uh, comedy, but like again filtered through through his his point of view. But the uh, the idea that they, I mean, they almost immediately are just like making out, and there's no explanation or courtship or whatever, and that's just funny, and that's just part of the 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 milieu of 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 what he's doing. Uh, but yeah, um, a, a lot of this stuff that I remember uh, laughing at is Godard playing himself as probably a less difficult, cantankerous version of himself than is actually true. Yeah, uh, more kind of bemused and kind of like rough around the edges than like actively angry. Yeah, um, but there's a yeah he he meets with uh, Carmen's like partner at a at a at a cafe and he orders like a bunch of brioches and then he lights a cigarette and immediately starts ashing in the other guy's coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, I feel like we're describing two different movies. You described this very uncomfortable movie with like, uh, morally questionable sex scenes, but I'm describing this like heist comedy. Uh, but yeah, it is both. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I enjoyed it. I, no, I did want to highlight some of the comedy too. He's got this great line where he's like, kids today are scum. They haven't invented cigarettes or blue jeans, nothing. <laughs> and then the other guy says they invented unemployment. And then he says true, but they didn't go looking for it. And then it's got like solid lines. Like nobody needs an atomic bomb and nobody needs a plastic cup, which is like the two ends of like manufacturing. And it's like, it's kind of true. Yeah. Um, and I, I, the, way, the biggest way I kind of encapsulate it is it's like an extension of Godard. It's like the only thing you need for a film is a girl and a gun edict, which he kind of like rattled off in the 60s and which mm-hmm. is kind of the, a film in that mode and a much more like aggressive and expressive and wacky mode than than that. Um, I think this was, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I think this was the last film that Rel Couture shot for him um, and actually had a script by Henry Melville, which is of some interest. Um, but yeah, I kind of found it to be like an extension of La Chinois. You know, they're, they're trying to kill a Soviet diplomat here. It's a big manufacturer. And there's kind of like a sense of like the way that revolutions have shifted since then. And yeah, tons of wacky, weird comedy throughout. Um, the next film was one that he and Millville were contracted to make for television called Soft and Hard. Um, oh, that's next. Oh, yes, it is. OK, sorry. Uh, I'm a little mixed on the chronology here. I may be slightly wrong, but I, I no, know I think you're right. I, they sorry. invested the mo- some of the money in uh, Hail Marriage, which we'll be discussing next, um, but threw an extra 60K in there for them to produce this television program. Uh, the producer, Colin McCabe, who went on to write the first kind of major biography of Godard, um, he was a programming associate at Channel 4 at the time. He proposed calling it British Images and being followed to British Sounds. As usual, Godard was like, great suggestion. I'll take your money and then made something completely different. Um, and so it's mostly a discussion between he and Millville about their different approaches to film and she kind of, her kind of having less reverence for the medium, incorporating less 
her personal work, whereas he, for him, like making personal work involves making things about the cinema. Um, there's this really great line where he says, so I'm making pictures instead of making children. Does that stop me from being a human being? Um, which is kind of like really vulnerable of him. Um, a lot of their conversation is very much like him trying to dominate her as you might expect and like trying to like be the smarter person in the room than really like unveil the subject they're talking about. Um, but it's got some solid moments in it. It does have him amusingly like miming playing tennis in the background of one shot. He was apparently like, I didn't realize now an avid tennis player. Um, one thing I didn't mention is I think in the seventies, he and Melville were, or maybe it wasn't to the nineties. I can't remember, but he and Melville were like hired to work at this like film school. And they're like, we'll do it, but you have to build a tennis court in there. <laughs> and cause he just like, couldn't stop playing tennis. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting little side project, but one, which he, usually mostly used to get the financing for hail mary um which i think is like far and away the best film he made in the 80s and one of his best in general i'm not sure how you found it i would agree i um also no um no disrespect to raul cotard but uh of all the movies that i watched in preparation for this hail mary might be the flat just most beautiful of, it's quite good looking uh, it, it's yeah it, it's it's great um uh on top of that, it's it belongs in the category with movies like Last Temptation of Christ or like uh, the Gospel According to Saint Matthew yeah. that were massively protest protested by Catholics, but like actually aren't like they're not anti like he's not making a movie that is like so it's a it's a I should we we probably should have said it's a modern day or you know then nineteen mid eighties retelling of the story of the virgin birth where uh instead of you know in the year i don't know zero ad <laughs> or, or zero bc i guess is the same uh it's 95 but a young woman is visited by an angel or in this case two angels i think um who tell her what the deal is and she's a perfectly like chaste virgin and she's got this fiance and she gets pregnant and um it's not like I don't actually think the movie is sacrilegious, but uh, uh, Catholics just get so bent out of shape out of uh, about um, anyone interpreting their stories, I guess, in any way other than what they learned in in Sunday school uh, or, or something. Um, I don't know. Do you disagree? I, I, I don't feel like the movie is anti-Christian. Well, no, as, as always goes with these things, they seize on a superficial detail. In this case, the fact that Miriam Rousseau, who plays Mary, uh, appears naked quite a bit in the film. And so they yeah. were against the idea of portraying Mary in any kind of sexual light. Um, that was their big objection to the okay. film. Okay, well... Uh... Nudity is not necessarily sexual. Um, the there actual... are some shots that are pretty, let's say, lascivious. Uh, all right. Uh, I see you're on the uh, side of the New Puritans. No, I'm just <laughs> saying that uh, Godard's interest in young women was right. yeah, profound and inescapable. Um, and I mean, there's even like sections where she's like writhing in bed naked. And so it's like, maybe it's not overtly sexual, but you can see why someone would yeah. feel that way again. Not that I'm saying like they're right in having this objection. I think it's mostly like a superficial thing of like the idea of Mary being sexual at all being objectionable. Even if you interpret the film that way, it's like, is that really grounds for, you know, right. Apparently flooding, uh, 
Lincoln Square, where the film premiered in New York, um, apparently Broadway was filled with around like 8,000 protesters trying to prevent people from entering the theater. Um, wow. There were people like uh, in various premieres, they threw stink bombs, they stole sections of the film. Um, you know, this all got up to Pope John Paul denouncing it. Um, Godard, to his credit, I suppose, pulled the film from Rome out of respect for the general um, tenor of the thing. But um, yeah, even beyond like the religious angle of it, which I think is pretty well considered overall and which apparently like really flummoxed Godard in terms of how to approach it and really instigated a lot of his own like self-doubt. And so there'd like be periods where they didn't shoot film stuff at all. They'd shoot for like a couple minutes a day and they'd be like, I, I, well, I can't do it. And even like great debates over the camera's placement within like millimeters would be like a great subject of hours of debate. Um, and as per usual, he was alienating uh, the lead actress, Miriam Roussel, who had a minor part in uh, First Name Carmen. She was one of, we didn't discuss that there's like this kind of side thing of like this string quartet playing and she was one oh, of the yeah, members which, of the quartet. Yeah. Um, More Beethoven, by the way. Of course. Um, and he liked so, Beethoven, or he liked Beethoven. I guess. Yeah. She was really trying to get like an acting career started. He wanted to really like strip any sense of like theatrical expression, trying to do like what Brisson would have done with his casts. Um, and she kind of summarized it by saying, I, on the contrary, wanted to act. He doesn't ask, he steals. Just saying that like he was just trying to steal a, a sense of her performance, not really collaborating with her on the performance. While of course also like constantly lusting after her and wanting to like start a relationship sure. with her. And she was made uncomfortable by the sense that she was like made to feel like a third member of the couple between he and Melville. Um, but I think the film also gets into like a sense of not only like a religious sense, but a woman coming into herself and feeling like she has some ownership of her life and the way the last section uh, develops her past the point where she's given birth and is now just has to live a life on her own. And she stops being like a figure and with a role to play within a religion, which is essentially giving birth to Jesus and now has to become her own person. And that sense, I think is really, uh, really well expressed. Um, like defining herself outside of a sense of male desire. This is also like a side version of Godard's interest in incest of like, well, God is all of our fathers. And if he impregnates Mary, that uh, is that as well. Um, but I, ultimately I think, yeah, the expression of it is really beautiful. It took me a couple of viewings because I saw it some years ago and then rewatched it a month or so ago and really got a lot out of it. Um, this was also one of the first films that Juliette Binoche was in. Um, she had like six yeah. films out this year, but this film before most of them. Um, and I think he like discovered her just through like random casting and talked about her being the main role, but ultimately settled on Russell, I think because they'd already worked together and possibly because he was sexually interested in her. Um, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, cause like speaking of not mentioning an entire other story, there is an entire other storyline with Julia Pinoche. Yeah. Um, um, having an affair with her professor is that right yeah i think so <clears throat> yeah um uh, and that, yeah. i guess it's supposed to be a um a foil in some ways to to the very chaste uh mary and then this promiscuous young, young woman i guess yeah and i think the idea of like setting it in the modern day also like kind of pissed people off um and it's like the, the extent to which it ultimately works is debatable because it's like so much of modern society is 
was constructed from Christianity. So like, could you even like conceptualize that? But um, there's uh, all the like overly supernatural stuff. You mentioned the angels kind of entering the scene. They're really well accomplished without doing like a ton of like effects work. Um, Mm. It just has this air of the supernatural that pervades it. I think that somehow he invests the film with. Um, And the angels are funny too. Gabriel is like a cranky asshole. (laughs) You love to see it. Um, the film's theatrical showings was also paired with a short film by Anne-Marie Mielville called The Book of Mary, which I didn't revisit as part of this. Uh, uh, I, I watched if- it because if you if you hit play on Hail Mary yeah. on Canopy, it plays The Book of Mary first, whether you yeah. want to or not. So I would have had to go out of my way and fast forward through it not to watch it. So, uh, yeah, I watched it. Um, and it's also um, uh very beautiful it opens with uh um a shot in a living room of a house that's on the sea and and you've got the the ocean outside while you've got these disembodied voices i was like i was almost it felt the opening scene of the book of mary with like the voices off screen and then the initial argument between the couple the audio is like intentionally out of sync Hmm. um it i I don't want to sound like i'm discounting the talents of Henry Melville, but like it felt so Godardian that I was like, wait, is is this a short or is this, am I, somehow I remember having that or? doubt too. Yeah. 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 Anyway, but uh, yeah, I liked it. Cool. Um, you will hopefully have slightly more to say about this than I will. Cause I only saw detective once many years ago and barely remember it. Um, it was another film where the investor was like, cool. So we'll make a film like breathless. Right. And Godard was like <laughs> tight. Yeah, for sure. And then made like this weird ass movie. That's like, it's set in this like gorgeous hotel. And so it's got a lot of great imagery that I remember for sure. Um, but I, I don't remember a ton else about it. Uh, yeah, the, I guess the, premise if you will is that um uh there's a hotel a a former hotel detective which is a real job that used to exist anyone who isn't that fascinating yeah i i I guess i should imagine the battleship retention audience especially the one who is still with us (laughs) um, right now has probably seen enough old noir movies to know that hotel detective was a real uh yeah uh, uh job um so uh it's a hotel detective who was fired because of of someone, some prominent person was murdered under his watch at the hotel. And now years later, he has moved into the hotel full time, uh, paid for by his financially successful son. Um, and is still like, uh, years later trying to solve this, this murder. Um, but in the meantime, there's also a storyline about a uh, a boxer who is um, uh, who is staying, also staying in the in the hotel. Uh, I guess I don't like um, uh, for a movie called Detective. It's not like a real like crackerjack mystery story. No, <laughs> um, that's what I mean. Uh, yeah, uh, so I get. I, I feel like I can't uh, tell you that much about the 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 plot but there's definitely um you know uh naked young women uh, of course in, in 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 the movie um including if i remember correctly a part where the boxer is like kind of boxing this woman's breasts that's right like- yes that's um uh emmanuel senier oh yeah who uh, became like a huge actress in france yeah um also a young 
uh julie delpy is is in is in the right movie. um uh what i should have I, I i was kicking myself i've been ever since last week we did our musicians who be like musicians turned actors there's so many that i've thought of or other people that remind me of that we haven't totally but i'm bummed i didn't mention johnny halliday the um oh yeah sort of uh i don't know i've heard him described as like the French Elvis, but also like the French Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I, I don't know what, I, I don't know French listeners who is Johnny Halliday, who is the American counterpart to Johnny Halliday, <laughs> but uh, he plays the boxers like promoter. Um, and I, I've definitely seen Johnny Halliday in films, but never like from this long ago. I, I know him from like, uh, what's it called? The man on the train, which is the comp film with him. And, uh, mm. uh, uh, John Rochefort is that who's in that sure uh and then like um the last film I saw him in maybe the last film he made before he died was uh uh going all the way back to fucking four hours ago when we started this thing or three hours ago um a, Cla- a Claude Lelouch film called uh everyone's life uh in which Johnny Halliday plays both himself and a professional Johnny Halliday uh impersonator anyway I'm off on a tangent about Johnny Halliday I'm just like bummed that I didn't mention it last week and I also don't have that much to say about detective I guess um uh yeah perfect uh uh, Uh, yeah but i'm looking at the um wikipedia entry and apparently yeah emmanuel senye was not happy with uh her nudity in the movie and no shocking uh yeah she uh he tried to he tried to make her appear fully nude and she protested uh that she wanted to keep her underwear on if not her bra yeah, and the uh, Wikipedia does note that she was 17 at the time, which right. um, when I was talking about like all this Godard stuff in terms of like uh, lusting after young nubile women um, and noting that like it was at least like ebophilia, if not bordering on now pedophilia, um, she was like, well, what was the age of consent in France to this day? <laughs> 15 so you know you can chalk some of it up to cultural differences but still you know a little uncomfortable yeah um the next film is one human for television called the yeah, now we've uh, i had a 13 year gap before now i have a 16 year gap holy so cow next. so you do um well let's see i have a few gaps in here too um the rise and fall of a small film company is a film he made for television as part of a program called siri noir each episode was supposed to be an adaptation of a crime novel released by the french publishing company of the same name so Godard was like great i'll adapt uh this movie the soft center and the company was like great you're john the Godard making a crime thing this will be perfect and he instead made a movie about the pre-production of a television adaptation of that novel in which uh jean-pierre leod stars a, a director frustrated with having to make it at all um leod as often portrays kind of the Godard's uh surrogate um and for that matter he would portray a Godard sub surrogate as well for olivier sayas in irma vep um very pointedly uh taking shots at Godard there um and here he's kind of like a manic, passionate, unfocused director um, who the industry has kind of forced to become a businessman. Um, intertitles like the omnipotence of cinema, uh, or sorry, the omnipotence of television became uh, certainly more true as the years went on. But it's a really good use of uh, just tape. I'm not sure what, exactly what format of tape, but it's like videotape. It could be even beta or VHS, but probably beta. Um, in terms of the way Godard uses like cross dissolves and superpositions that form like a composite single image, running the tape backward and forward and pausing on it. 
um, sort of like a natural extension of what he was doing with every man for himself, but with tools that were a little better suited to it. Um, a lot of it involves like the casting of this thing and Hitchcock's note, the actors are like cattle is especially pertinent to this because like the film mm-hmm. opens with an image of there's these people like lined up and like desperately trying to get into the door. And there's a, a really mesmerizing section later on where the actors are each given like a small section of what I later read to be William Faulkner's short story, uh, Sepulchre South Gaslight. Um, and so they're given like these small sections and they like read a line and then walk forward and the next person reads a line. They keep going like in a circle. So you keep seeing the same actors like pop up again and again, reading different sections of this text or they're being like kind of shuffled on for the next person to read um, very much cattle-like, but it gets like, it goes on for like a significant period of time and gets like super mesmerizing as it goes. Um, it's difficult to ascribe necessarily the actors, that quality of the actors themselves, but certainly for the characters they're playing. Um one critic I read on it noted that the assembly line comparison kind of recalls what I mentioned earlier with British sounds of like the car assembly line um, in the same token. Like if you think it's grueling and uh, kind of boring to watch actors fuddle in and out, imagine having to do that for a living, which is kind of darts point. It has uh, some other really cool like uh, notes in it where um Jean-Pierre Lyod's on the phone with one of his producers and the producer saying, the cinema is a dream factory used to say, you keep the dreams and leave me with a factory. Um, it's not kind of a strictly portrait of Godard because he was as much a producer by this point as he was a director. It's But it's him kind of reflecting on needing to fulfill both ends. Um, and yeah, the largest impression is kind of the sense of how many things have to come together to form a motion picture. It also has this, like some songs by Leonard Cohen and Janis Joplin that are kind of like dropped mm. out of nowhere, but are super cool to just like hear like me and Bobby McGee all of a sudden in the middle of this. Um, so yeah, uh, this is another one. I, that, I don't imagine that Guitar was a fan of that music, but am I am I wrong? I, I couldn't tell you. Um, okay. As things will go on, I'm kind of perpetually amused at what Godard was tuned into for popular culture. Um, like in the image book, his last film, there's a brief clip from the Michael Bay film, 13 hours. Um, <laughs> so it's like, why did Godard take the time to watch 13 hours? Okay. Um, so his, his taste was always a little unpredictable. Um, sadly, it's very hard to see this. It might pop up on YouTube from time to time. I had to illegally download it um more available you can get on blu-ray from olive uh keep your right up um this is the film where godard plays a character literally introduced as the idiot um who has to um invent a story film it and deliver a print that very afternoon um and it's a, a very funny film it's very much him like working through his jerry lewis instincts his jata t instincts um, it has these great like comic set pieces where people are like scrambling to find seats on a plane. Um, and like, so Godard plays the main character and does all these weird stunts himself in his fifties. Like he literally leaps through a car through the passenger window. Um, and it's kind of like, Oh, I think I saw that clip. I, I did post it on okay, my Twitter yes. feed. You might've seen it there. Cause it's yes. like, did not expect 
Godard to just do that just now. <laughs> um, but again, maybe the tennis was paying off. Um, the thing that's kind of amusing about it is Godard had gotten so good at managing finances at this point that he spent like most of the budget filming these airplane scenes because he was like, we have to film it while the airplane's in the air. And so they like blew the budget just flying this airplane up and down and back and forth so that he could film the scenes with like the clouds passing by or whatever and like the sounds of the airline. Um and then it just has like these like occasional beautiful arresting images. There is apparently a French film critic who devoted his entire column to a single image of the film, these swinging doors um, from an apartment looking out into the ocean. Um, and it was actually the number one film at the Paris box office when it came out. Uh, it didn't get released in the U.S. Uh, for several decades. But um, of all the films of this period, I, I mean, it's not as good as Hail Mary and maybe not even as good as Rise and Fall of a Small Film Company. And probably about on this level of like first name Carmen, but it's probably the friendliest to get into um, the famous director stars in it. There's a small role for Jane Birkin, tons of comedy, and also has like this super cool soundtrack by this French uh, band called Les Ritas Mitsuko, um, which like I've tried listening to the music on their own and I'm not as into it just listening to it, but like it really fades into the film in this really cool way um and kind of points to the fact that godard was like keeping up with popular culture and interested in what else was going on so maybe he really was into uh janice joplin as well uh the next film is the much lauded and which i really wish i'd taken the time to revisit king lear um because I, I kind of i had trouble with it the first time but i also had trouble with hail mary the first time um and so i'd probably find more in it the second time um it's very much so ostensibly it's an adaptation of the Shakespeare play of course it's Godard so only kind of um it's mostly a reflection on as one might expect the difficulties of the film industry at the time the attempts to uh raise funding and what you need to do so um he wanted Norman Mailer to play the main role and for his daughter to play Cordelia um and Mailer was at first on board but then he wanted them to use their real names and Mailer was like I don't want these themes of incest to be associated with me and my daughter's real names and so they kind of came to blows over that he uh, he contributed to the screenplay and still has a small role in the film but um the King Lear which is actually like it's like a Don Mafia situation. So he's Don Lero. Um, he's played by Burgess Meredith, who's really good in the film. And Cordelia is played by Molly Ringwald, who's also really good. And like, you recognize Molly Ringwald, but she's shot so much like any other Godard protagonist that she weirdly kind of fits in to a degree that you might not expect given just that. Um, Leos Carax, the film director, shows up as well. Godard plays this like insane character with these like dreadlocks that are made of like RCA cables. Um <laughs> And Woody Allen shows up as a character called Mr. Alien. Um, <laughs> again, I, I wish I had more to say about the film because it is really revered among Godard aficionados. Um, I just don't remember it as well as I'd hoped. Um, it's but... hilarious to me, though, <clears throat> that this is a Golan Globus production. Um, uh -huh. uh, associate with like 80s schlock, like Death Wish movies and like yeah. uh, uh, Chuck Norris stuff and uh, crazy stuff like that yeah a, a lot a lot of directors from what i could read were uh taking money from this company at the time and just going off to make it because they were only like barely paying attention to the production um but the film was so unsuccessful that it um pretty single-handedly ended godard's uh ability to get his films distributed in america for literally the next 13 years 
Um, at this time, though, he starts to embark on a major project for him and which many people regard, understandably, as um, his best work, uh, Histoires du Cinema, which I have on the schedule I sent you kind of later on because he didn't finish it until 1998, but because he started mm-hmm. it now, now's a good time as any. I've got my, I'm on my notes here anyway. Um, so Histoires du Cinema was something that he'd been trying to make in various forms since about the mid-70s when he was looking around after he'd completely jettisoned his mainstream directorial career, looking around for ways to make money. He was like, well, I know a shit ton about the history of movies because I was there for a lot of it and watching all of it. Um, so there's got to be some way to do that. The main thing that was holding him up in the 70s was that he couldn't get the studios to release like videotape versions of their films because at the time they weren't being, that wasn't really like a popular format. They weren't just being distributed and he couldn't just get them to lay them off for him, let alone mm-hmm. to repurpose them for the purpose of a film essay, which skirted the edges of copyright law at the time. Um, but by 1988, a lot of these films were just available on VHS. So he just started buying them up and capturing themselves, capturing them himself. And um, which even by the time they premiered, everyone was like, is this legal? And mostly (laughs) it was just like too weird for anyone to care about. And it's commercial prospects um, pretty limited. Cause I mean, what he does with the images for anyone who's seen the image book later on, it will seem very familiar. It's just like blown out and distorted and washed out Mm -hmm. and like small snippets of images are like greatly slowed down to almost comedic extent. Um, But it's a really mesmerizing thing to watch and it's actually pretty easily digestible the first two segments are like 50 minutes or 45 minutes but after that they're only about a half hour so you can throw one on and kind of take it in and then just kind of revisit as you like which is pretty much what i did um he expected to be able to rattle this off pretty quickly but did those first two episodes in 1988 and then didn't do anything else with it again until 1996 and when he kept kind of making it um it's really hard to digest on a single viewing it's one that i'll definitely be revisiting over the years but there's a lot of interconnected thoughts that um, he was starting to digest in terms of feeling like the um, to him in any way, the cinema really ended with the war um, partially because it started to become a period where not only literally American films, but the American idea of how to approach films dominated the entirety of cinema culture. And um just gutted the European film industry. But what becomes really interesting about it is that Godard kind of um, uses that to kind of blame himself um, that he was one of the driving forces to insist in his critical days that American films were greater than French cinema, that the French cinema was dead and desolate and that he and his friends could do it better, but they did it so cheaply and so far on the margins that it was enough to undermine the mainstream French cinema, but not really replace it as a major commercial force. So it just gave more room for America to dominate and kind of, uh, in a way, colonize the sense of culture and what what cinematic culture gets expressed as. The way in which that starts to get problematic um, is that he essentially equates this as being the successful version of what Germany attempted to do by force in the second world war now for someone like Godard, 
for whom movies are everything, you can understand where he's coming from with this. Nevertheless, the American cinema has not yet killed six million people. And so for the average, this is what I'm saying in terms of like, Godard was super smart, but not very wise um, for the person with a bit more perspective on things might not find the same equation that he did between the two. Mm-hmm. It nonetheless is an interesting thought in terms of how thoroughly America had taken over the cinema, you know, pre-war any number of countries could have said to have the preeminent cinema, but by the end of the second world war, um, really it was America's ball game and they, they were off and running with it. Um, and that just points to a larger sense of culture in general, you know, by the eighties, there were McDonald's on every corner in every major mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Um, capitalism had taken over basically everything and Godard kind of used the cinema as a forerunner to all of that, that they were, that America was exporting its culture and providing a basis on which it could export everything else. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting thoughts in there. Um, the other thing that's worth noting in terms of like that fulcrum of the war is that one of the reasons he felt that cinema dies, that it failed to kind of capture the Holocaust and didn't do a good job of digesting it. He had, you know, recently show had come out and he was apparently really affected by that because it was first major attempt to really take it all in and recapture it for um, an audience on a a greater scale than it it had to that point. Um, But yeah, his part of cinema, thankfully more widely available recently got re-cemented on the sight and sound list. And I think it's rightly regarded as a pretty major Godard work. Um, His next actual feature um, should be regarded as a major Godard work, but sadly has never been distributed in America and which is only scarcely available overseas as well. Um, Nouvelle Vogue, um, once again, title announcement, uh, had many hoping to be a nostalgia piece about his days in the French New Wave. Uh, it's sort of that, but it's <laughs> it takes place in the modern day. It's about a wealthy woman who picks up a hitchhiker, takes him in to live with her, only to effectively drown him. But then an identical man shows up, claiming he would be the first man's brother. He takes over all her businesses, By the end, they discover he is the same man and the two of them go off together. Uh, What is not evident at all in watching the film and what you would only get from reading about it is that Godard said, well, okay, so the hitchhiker she picks up is the cinema before uh, the war. It was kind of the old wave of French cinema before the new wave. Um, But the industry represented by the woman destroyed it. But then the other man comes in who's really the cinema all along. That's representative of the new wave. And it takes over the business and finds a better way to produce things that the industry can get along with and that they find more harmonious. Sure. Um, But it is like a insanely beautiful film. It's mesmerizing to watch. Alain Delon plays the men at the center and is a great use of kind of his, uh, you know, I like him as actor, but his kind of bland handsomeness and his kind of like model-esque vision. Godard pretty much got him involved because Alain Delon had been making just a series of routine crime films. And he was like, I'd like to go back to Cannes. What's Jean-Luc Godard up to? And Godard's like, well, we could do this. Um, it has maybe one of my favorite and most telling Godard production stories where um, his assistant recognized that like the basic synopsis to come up with had like some literary heft. And so he's like, well, Godard likes doing references. So I'll just compile a bunch of li- uh, lines from novels that he can pull from to used throughout the film. So he photocopied hundreds of pages and just like digested them all together for Godard. And Godard was like, 
Ah, great. I'll, I'll get to it later. Then he meets with Delon. Delon's like, okay, I'll do it, but there has to be a screenplay. I know you don't usually write screenplays, but I need a screenplay with dialogue. And Guard was like, no problem. And so he pulled that document that was just like a series of literary references. And that's the screenplay. Apparently almost all the dialogue comes from that file. And it's just like pulled from literature. It forms a pretty coherent story, all things considered, given that it's Godard. Um, but it's all like lines from novels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the first collaboration uh, between Godard and the record manufacturer ECM, who publishes a ton of classical music, who was like, Godard, you like classical music? Listen to our shit. And he was like, okay, cool. And he just like dug it and started incorporating that into all his films from there. And even released a soundtrack of the film that was just its dialogue. Um, the film's premiere at Cannes screening of the New York Film Festival both went over hugely well. And it was viewed as kind of a comeback after King Lear until Vincent Canby completely tore it apart in the New York Times and buried its commercial prospects. And again, sadly, it's just not been available since then. Um, I hope at some point someone finds a way to restore it and get it back out because even on the like shitty DVD rip that I was watching, like it just has these unbelievable tracking shots through these gorgeous estates and through nature and stuff like that. And um, there's a shot of like Alain Delon reaching for the hand of uh, the woman who rescues him. That's just like so abstract and strange, but so beautiful to look at. Um, so really one of my favorite Godard films. Uh, next up is not one of my favorite Godard films, but it has a great title. Germany year 990, um, which is obviously a play on Roberto Rossellini's uh, Germany year zero, which he made shortly after the war and which was supposed to be like a reflection on Germany having to start completely from scratch. Um, similarly, by the way, I lost audio for like a minute and a half there. <laughs> oh. I don't know if you were talking to me at all. <laughs> I was, yeah. uh, podcast if you didn't hear all that um no i think i no i i don't think i think it recorded fine i think i just lost audio but i'm back uh, with my tweaked audio.com here uh, (laughs) okay sounds good and i think they're working now all right sorry to interrupt germany year you're good yeah um so if you know about germany in the year 1990 or so um it had of course the berlin wall had recently fallen and so similar to the post-war environs under which Rossellini made his film, Germany was in a sense starting over. Um, so this was instigated by a television producer who suggested a project to Godard, Wim Wenders, Stanley Kubrick, and Ingmar Bergman that they should each make an hour-long film about the subject of loneliness. Only Godard took the bait and uh, used it to explore kind of like post-Berlin Wall Germany. Um the kind of interesting thing is that it uh, brings back the Lemmy Caution character for the first time since Alphaville mm-hmm. and gets um, Eddie Constantine to play him just a year or two before he died. Um, the weird thing about Constantine, of course, is that he looked like 100 years old in 1965 and so pretty much <laughs> looks the same in 1991 as well. Um, but, you know, it's it's a tough film to kind of track with for the most part. It's largely most interesting as a document of what um, Germany looked like at this time, though not as good as like Chantal Ackerman's From the East, which is a much, much, much better film. Um, and apparently the shooting was even chaotic by Godard's standards. And that kind of comes across. There's a real lack of focus in it that comes through. And even for an hour, it's it's a little trying. Um, another film next up that I would be interested to revisit down the road because I had trouble kind of clocking what it was really doing is Hila Pour Moi, um, which 
after Jeremy, you're 90, um, he was kind of like out, out of ideas, but had the opportunity to work with Gerard Depardieu, which meant easy money. And if there's one thing Godard loves to run to for production, it's easy, quick money. So uh, he kind of conceived this idea of God coming down to earth in the form of a man um, taking the place of a man who has recently left his wife and kind of like classic Godard. What does God want to come down and do? Well, he wants to come down and have sex. Of course he would. Um, so he comes down and starts sleeping with and starts like wooing this man's wife and like winning her over and giving her all the things that the real man couldn't do. Um, and I mean, people often make fun of the French taste in terms of like the movie they like or whatever else. Most of the time I can get with them. I've never understood why Gerard Depardieu is viewed as like a sex symbol. There's almost nothing charismatic about him to me at all. Um, oh, really? I, I think I've said the opposite on this podcast. Yeah. When you watch, when you watch his like seventies and eighties stuff, if you watch, um, I've watched you Lulu, seen? Lulu, that's one where he's like raw animal energy, the entire movie. Um, I get the energy. I don't get the appeal of it. I don't know. Hmm. It's too, it's too animal for me. There's no charisma, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. And then what's the other one where he's like a dump truck driver? Jane Birkin's um, in it. Oh, is it? Um, I'll know if you say it. it has like a long title, I think. Yeah. It's the one where that like really uncomfortable yay yay song comes from where it's just like people moaning. Um, that film I do like a lot. Um, anyway, Godard did write a full screenplay for this, apparently. Uh, it, it was supposed to include a segment where Depardieu, as God, rides a train, surveys all the battles in human history. Um, but unsurprisingly, Godard couldn't get up the energy to actually like go through the trouble of shooting that or like plan that out in any way. Um, it does have like some interesting stuff about like sexual love contrasted with spiritual love. Um, there's a solid monologue at the beginning that's kind of reflects on the state of modern society where prayer and sacrifice are now gone, but what have they been replaced with storytelling, I guess. And how much does that give us? Um, there's a voiceover from like a godly perspective. It's kind of reminiscent of the Alphaville, like voice box guy. That's pretty cool. Um, so there's enough, you might call it candy in there that intrigues me and which I, I'd be curious to revisit. But in the course of cramming a series of Godard films for this podcast, I didn't have capacity to give it full consideration. Um, I did listen to most of a really good commentary track on the Kino disc. So I'd recommend picking that up if you're at all keen on it. Um, Sorry, the Jane Birkin movie I'm thinking of does not have Gerard Depardieu in it. It has Joe D'Alessandro in it. So, I kind of um, wondered when you said that. I was like, I don't remember that being Depardieu, but I'll take your Joe word. Joe D'Alessandro was also like a kind of like, I don't know. Lunky big, guy. Yeah, big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> big dumb hunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you see that movie? I can't remember what it was called. Where Depardieu and Isabel Huppert have to like go to Arizona to bury their son who committed suicide. It just came out like a couple of years ago. No, but it's so great because Depardieu, this is like 2015. So Depardieu is already in like the gigantic mode where just like yeah. everything about him seems on the verge of bursting. And so he's just like out in the Arizona sun. I'm just like, it is too hot here. <laughs> it's like gigantic Frenchman trying to exist in summer Arizona. And meanwhile, like married to like Isabel Hooper is like the tiniest woman in the world. Very strange movie, but it has a great kind of like things like that. Um, yeah. Godard's oh, next. There's another. Um... Oh. Sorry, there's a uh, um, an early uh, Depardieu movie called Get Out Your Handkerchiefs. That oh, is, I've never seen um, it. Uh, 
uh dreaded by Bertrand Bleeder definitely uh not uh would fit with some of this uh guitar stuff and in, in being uncomfortable. Tight. Uh, but uh in that one he's kind of a weirdly like a nebbish. Huh. Interesting. Very yeah. hard to picture. Yeah, he's like um uh he's like so upset that his wife isn't happy in his in the relationship that he sets her up, sets her up with another man. Um, and then that briefly works. And, um, uh, then she loses interest with the other man. So then Depardieu and this other guy are like teaming up to like, how do we make this woman happy? (laughs) (laughs) It's a fun movie. Um, the next one is a television feature. That's really, really good called JLG, JLG self-portrait of an artist in December. Um, or maybe just self-portrait in December. I had it noted both ways and I can't remember which is correct. Um, I'm going to crib from Letterboxd user J. Winston Walcott because he had this great summary of the appeal for it. Uh, he said it has the crisp, beautifully framed 1.33 to 1 shots of uh, nature filmed around the director's home in Switzerland, the painterly lit interiors, Godard's cryptic philosophical utterances and poetic quotations delivered in his trademark guttural whisper, shots of him puttering around his home and editing studio like a cigar chomping highbrow Mr. Magoo, and of course, beautiful young actresses lit luminously like Vermeer paintings in various states of undress, immaculately framed reading books. Does Godard insert those trademark seagull cries and dissonant piano chords on the soundtrack? You bet your ass he does. <laughs> um, it's an unusually melancholic film, though, um, or even kind of his cleverness seems tired. Um, there's he kind of goes off on tangents that are a little incomplete. Um, you get the sense of his ambitions being thwarted and really a, a real sense of isolation that he had been living away from Paris for 20 years at this point. And you get the sense that he's starting to feel it. Um, he'd been approach- he was approaching 65 when this was released. He would have been like 63 or 64 when they filmed it. And it could almost be a retirement statement. Um, he says, uh, I'm very solitary. That's all. I can't dismiss it inside. I'm very much in communication with a lot of people and things who absolutely don't know. I'm in communication with them but on the outside. Yes, that's my character. And that's my fact of life, which was too lonely with difficulties with relationships with people. Sometimes I understand people who live like Walden, like Thoreau, but it's maybe too that when I was young, I was part of a huge rich family with lots of cousins and uncles. I had so much in my youth that today I think that is justice that I have less sad um and very tragic and which um is unusually i mean to the i've talked so much about how he just couldn't help but reveal himself constantly in the film i think because it's uh not overtly documentary but it's him literally in his home thinking about all this it's unusually vulnerable i think even for him um and i i wish it was more widely available but if you were able Mm. to see it it's really 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 good um the next film i definitely had trouble kind of clocking the deal here uh forever mozart 1996 um it's there's kind of an allegory in there about passing the cinematic torch to a generation that has nothing ahead of them there's um all these sequences of like young people just being like buried alive um and is apparently like also usually loosely kind of analogy for um some wars in the middle east going on at the time um but which is kind of intermittently involving most of it as per usual is an attempt for him to get into some kind of sexual tristies with uh the young actress uh in this case 
Berenger uh, Allo, I think I'm pronouncing that not at all correctly. Um, this was her first film. Godard was desperately in love with her. Um, and she, of course, didn't really care for working with him and later noted he shows in his films, but he doesn't have it in his life. He likes vulnerable young girls. And so he gets her in various states of undress and screaming and wailing and doing all the usual esoteric uh, stuff that um, kind of feeds into the tenor of the film. There's some interesting stuff going on aesthetically. It's it is, as per usual, beautiful to look at. But um, the there's a sense of desperation here. I, I think that's even more pronounced than in some of his prior work. Um, and as noted, he wasn't getting a great deal of distribution at this time. Um, he was mostly operating in a vacuum to the extent that people in America assumed he was just dead at this point that um, even more so than when he disappeared in the seventies, uh, when people just thought he stopped making films here, they were just like, well, he was up there must be gone by now. <laughs> um, but that set the stage pretty well for what ended up being some kind of a series of comeback films um, starting in 2001. I noted that he didn't have any major breaks in production, uh, but you'll note there's a five-year gap in here. I'm not, of course, addressing that Histoire du Cinema was finished up in this period. He right. made a couple of uh, pieces for museums, uh, including a film called The Old Place that was for MoMA, other than get a chance to watch. Um, but uh, 2001 was his next feature well, film. Can, oh. uh, can I interject um, with the... Oh, uh, right, because you had the kind of short here. Yeah, there's a yeah the anthology, which I haven't seen, is called... 10 minutes older the cello and it's a bunch of 10 minute films um and i uh, but i've i only watched this when it appeared on youtube shortly after he died and has i think since been taken down or at least the link that i had uh, mm-hmm. doesn't work anymore but um uh, we haven't talked about all your categories necessarily on the uh, or the period names on yeah. the spreadsheet you've you, you, when you entered this you entered it under late godard but i actually think it probably better belongs uh at end of the century reflection um, well i entered this at the start of this podcast so yeah. i didn't have time to like, consider its real place and things but um, yeah because it, it definitely seems to have um this uh uh take on things ending but also things continuing on and 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 people like uh that life is full of death and destruction and yet it keeps it keep the world keeps going on it it feels like a very uh cynical uh 10 minutes but it's also uh really uh i, I don't know i'm not going to go all the way back to weekend but it is really uh, mm. uh bold and in your face in in many ways um the, it also does incorporate as he would sometimes do like uh in this period like um th- like uh footage from his earlier films like mm-hmm. uh, Anna Karina's face is is in this as well um the main thing I remember though is uh these shots there's a couple of things I remember I'm going to start with uh, there's these, these, these people throwing away books putting books into garbage bags and then tossing the garbage bags in the alley and every time the garbage bag lands in the alley he adds in this sound of like I don't know if it's like a gunshot or a bomb going off but like this like really uh aggressive abrasive like loud bang every time the Hmm. books the books land in in the alley but then also to go back to the um uh uh 
thing you were saying about histoires du cinéma, he also then visually juxtaposes books being thrown away with uh, victims of the Holocaust bodies being tossed in, on on piles. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, it's it's really compelling stuff. Uh, but another another thing I wanted to point out that I think is a hallmark of a lot of this last segment, at least the ones that I've seen, is him just fully embracing a really digital look. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, mean, I feel like most of his, uh, I mean, from here on out, you would know better than I do. Was everything here uh, digital and, and no, the, the next two films are predominantly still shot in 35. Oh, okay. Well, uh, in the darkness of time uh, feels very video. Yeah. Um, he had been interested in video. I mean, clearly in the seventies used a lot, but he, apparently right up until like two weeks before production on every man for himself, he wasn't sure if he was going to shoot on 35 or on video. Um, and it's weird that it took him as long as it did to shoot a full feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, that was meant to be exhibited commercially. Not that it was like for television on video. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't be until film socialism. Although his next feature in praise of love, he does start to play with it. So in praise of love is really, really, really good. Um, it's, the first like hour of it is in this very like stark black and white as the first time I believe that he'd worked in black and white since like the sixties, mm-hmm. if I'm, unless I'm forgetting something that we've talked about along the way, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, and so it has a, a sense of like nostalgia to it that I, I think made it uh, appealing to people. This was the first film of his to get American distribution since King Lear. Um, and it's got all these great shots of Paris in the nighttime and uh really a sense of loneliness that recalls kind of those old french new wave films um which of course like as i've said many times like people were constantly trying to get him to make anything that actively recalled the french new wave for people um and here he like does kind of take the bait um but then at like an hour into the film it explodes into this like really uh super saturated color and i'm pretty sure that was shot on mini dv um mm. and it, it's just like shocking to see I, I was like loosely aware that it was coming because a lot of the images you see now are from that section and i think even like the dvd cover kind of like is just like this big colorful thing so i was like there's no way this act you know intellectually like there's no way this whole movie's in black and white but of course the experience of watching an entire movie in very like kind of stark monochrome for an hour and then suddenly there's this massive explosion of color is like pretty jarring and and really exciting um it's kind of about a guy seeking actors for a project that explores the four stages of love encounter physical passion separation and reunion um but which of course largely becomes like a way for Godard to reflect about life and everything else um it has this great line where uh he and this woman are kind of just walking by a river and he says when i think about something i'm really thinking of something else you can only think about something if you think of something else and a lot of Godard's work throughout his career but i think will increasingly be the case uh as we reach towards the end is very much about like holding together disparate ideas in your head and that um we're constantly being instigated to think about various different things um and those things are actively informing other thoughts along the way. One of the things, the amusing kind of recaps that I found in one of the commentary tracks I listened to on some film, I can't remember which, is that like Godard in all of his films is expecting people to bring 200% of their attention 
expecting that they'll like bringing that much attention, expecting that they've seen and read everything he's ever read and thought about them the same way that he does. Um, and so a lot of his work is like digesting all of this stuff in a, a, a way that uh, people won't always be able to keep up with. But I think his thought processes are familiar, at least to me. So even when I can't track the connections he's making necessarily and increasingly as these films go along, the connections become very hard to keep track of. I mean, that was true of his tours of cinema as well, but um, they're nevertheless invigorating to try to keep up with. Um, there's also a section on an art dealer trying to gain restitution of several pieces stolen from his family by German occupiers. That was apparently actually going on in France at the time. Um, and then there's kind of great dissection of American identity or like the lack thereof. Um, there's once it gets into the color section, they're trying to find screenwriters for this project and they're like, oh, you should look up this great American writer. And again, this dialogue where it's like, well, which American do you mean? And they're like, obviously someone from the United States. And they say, okay, but Brazil's made up of the United States. And they say, okay, of North America. And they say, well, Mexico is also made up of the United States, and North America. Those people are called Mexican, Can Canada too. They're called Canadians. So what is the name of what you call your United States? And they say, you see, you have no name. This agreement has been signed with the representative of the country, the inhabitants of which have no name. There's no surprise then that you need other people's stories, other people's legends. Um, the film also caused a huge stir because it takes very active shots at Steven Spielberg. Um, the representatives aforementioned who are trying to like engage more Americans on this project are said to be from Spielberg studios. Um, they take mm. shots at the film for or shots at Spielberg for not paying Oscar Schindler's widow for the returns on Schindler's list. Um, and the kind of the emissaries representing Spielberg are also representing Washington. There's the flying where they say, do please understand my dear young lady that Washington is the real director of the ship and Hollywood is only the steward indicating not only that American cinema is this kind of like colonialist presence that he talks about in his soir de cinema, but also that um, it's really just another extension of the American government, imperialism, colonialism, et cetera. And that Spielberg is the most prominent associate, associate of that. Um, part of this is you have to get bolstered back in the mind of 2001. So this film premiered in New York about a month after 9-11. Um, so the taste of anti-American sentiment was not uh, at its height necessarily. Um, so many of the people who thought, you know, maybe that it was a return to breathless form were kind of disappointed by that actuality and coupled with the shots at Spielberg, who was kind of nearing a point that I kind of talked about at the top of this episode where he's kind of turning into a more advanced storyteller than people are ready for. But, you know, he's coming off of the nineties when he not only made Schindler's List, but he made Saving Private Ryan and Amistad and these like big, important, uh, very American, you know, historical films that were supposed to like represent, um, not only our identity, but the sense of identity throughout the world and encapsulate Western thought in total um, and was very acclaimed for them and very beloved. And so the idea that Godard with his cheap looking uh, amateurish HD cam, super saturated film would be like able to take Steven Spielberg down a notch was like unthinkable. And Roger Ebert writes a really interesting negative review where he's like, I can, I love this thing, but now I, I find it unwatchable. And he's like, 
super angry with Godard. He's like, well, did you ever send, send money to Schindler's widow? Which is like missing the point that Godard's making entirely. <laughs> but you can see like, you, you can see when people are flailing about that much and making like that kind of argument, how deep a, a cut that is. Um, so to his credit, Godard could still get a rise out of people, yeah. which I, I think is one of the things that I find most interesting, not most interesting, but interesting about him as a director in, to- in large regard is that you can watch a film of his from in this case, 20 years ago or longer 60 years ago and it'll still anger people the same way that it did back then either because of the content of the film or the way in which he's making it um there's something aggressive that people still find unsettling and uh you know kudos to you for that Godard. um but yeah it still managed to get released um it still managed to come out even despite the tenor of post 9-11 american society and it's available on dvd i got it just checked out from the library it's extremely well worth watching it's just really enrapturing and um in spite of the occasional barbs has some really well considered stuff in it as well uh um, moving on to notre musique yeah so notre musique so, let me you you just watched this recently right yeah, I don't okay. have the greatest conception of it, but okay, that's funny you said it because like you shared this spreadsheet where we're able to mark what we hadn't 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 seen, and so there's a time when I had seen Notre Musique and you hadn't. I was like, oh god, I'm gonna have to talk about this <laughs> this movie because hey, it's been over 15 years. It's been long enough that I, like I got the disc from Netflix. That's how I saw Notre Musique. That's yeah, uh, which you can still do to this day. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that's true. Um, and you could probably definitely get Notre Musique. I, uh, I doubt it's. Sure. I doubt that one's checked out right now. Um, and so this is at a time 15 years ago when the most recent Godard film that I uh, would have seen would have been Weekend, and I just didn't know what to expect. And I sure, did, I didn't know what to make of Notre Musique. I enjoyed, like I can describe experiential things about it like um something that i said i was going to talk about sound and sound design more but i, I haven't but we should maybe bring it back in now um the the idea but i guess i kind of mentioned it a little bit with the um i heard if you know what it's called the 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 short i was talking about with the 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 bags of books and, and that expo- like loud sounds to almost to the point where they're like clipping at the top of the yeah of, of of the range uh is something that that is in the last few films a lot a lot in image book we'll get to that yeah um, but that's one of the memories i have of motion music is is the the sound design um but also just not like just not being not only not being familiar at this point in my life where i'm talking mid-20s not only not being familiar with what Godard had been doing for 40 years at that point <laughs> uh but just not being that familiar with uh anything approaching like experimental film essay yeah. but also notion music like has a whole middle section that has like a plot sort of right like yeah so like it's this mix of like narrative and and film essay and i i did not know what to make of it back in in probably 2005 or 6 when i when i saw it but uh, uh certain things definitely stuck with me i'm glad you've seen it more recently yeah i mean i'll barely be able to cohere more uh coherent uh thought than that but uh certainly from the outset it is like okay what's the film about then because the first like 10 minutes are a collage of war footage from other documentaries into this just like mismatch and that's where you get like the aggressive sound design where i mean as you said before like design is almost too strong a word it's just like okay let's crank it up and see what won't destroy the film (laughs) and then just like maybe put a little past that um and so it's just like so 
uh, cacophonous and so aggressive that it's tough to really like get a sense of footing, which I sure is basically the idea. I mean, again, you have to think politically where we were all at in 2004. It was like early days of the Iraq war. Um, there was a, a sense of pervasive violence, much in the same way of like the May 68 time that he was encapsulating so well around the time of weekend. And so him just like plummeting us into pure hell, which like the first section is literally called hell um, through the war documentary footage is really uh, pointedly useful. Um, the second section, like you said, does get into kind of uh, plot ish. There's a, a journalist played by French Israeli actress, Sarah Adler is contributing to kind of a, a peace project between Israel and Palestine. Um, there's an interesting section where she interviews a Palestinian poet and it's an actual Palestinian poet, of course, playing himself, um, who kind of explains from his perspective anyway, that Palestinians are only famous because Israel's their enemy. He says, the interest is in you, not in me. So we have the misfortune of having Israel's our enemy because she has strong allies. So many, we can't even count them. And we have the good fortune of having Israel's our enemy because, uh, Sorry, I just put it this way, but this is how he puts it. Because Jews are the center of the interest in the world. Um, that's why you've brought us defeat and renown. Um, so it's kind of a reflection on the way that uh, war both uh, destroys and brings attention to um, the people it's enacted against. Um, I mean, you can think of that currently with the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine was not a territory or a country most people really thought about until either a Donald Trump was extorting them for uh, political advantage or until Russia invaded them. Um, sometimes it is the oppressors who bring attention to the very people they're trying to dominate. Um, and there's some other stuff in the film that I, I can't remember the specifics of which enough, but it's, and a lot of this is some is also built into how Godard talked about it at the time, but it's kind of more overtly anti-Semitic than um he had even been like kind of slyly so in the past um and which some critics picked up on and was noted i think andrew saris made a note of it in his review because the film was like pretty widely acclaimed at the time and i think in large part because there was so much nationalistic fervor from so many various sides and so um the fact that a film was reflecting on it at all and in some in some ways reflecting that instinct to begin with and in some ways reflecting on that instinct um it was very much a film of the time but saris was kind of like i can't believe you guys aren't noticing like the anti-semitism so much um and so there was some small debate in it, but it did get distribution, did come out. And like I said, they continue for the rest of Godard's career. Um, there's a couple lines that I wanted to pick out. One where someone asks, why aren't revolutions started by humane people? And someone says, because humane people don't start revolutions, they start libraries. And then someone, a third person chimes in and cemeteries, <laughs> um, which is uh, something I think a lot of us think about of like, why can't a decent person ever come to power? Well, decent people tend not to seek power. Yeah. We try to live, I'm lumping myself in as though I'm assuming I'm a decent person. I'm trying here. Uh, we, I tend think to, you're all right. we tend to keep to ourselves and um, try to just do right by those around us and not uh, take over the world as it were. There's another line later on um, that, especially watching it in the current context of Godard having recently ended his own life. Um, she says there will only be total liberty when it's the same to live or die. And then the guy she's talking to says, but then it might turn out no one wants to live, um, which was kind of sad to think about in um, Godard's own ideation, um, which may have even existed at the time and which I've read was kind of like 
he had some suicidal ideation throughout his life, um, but which found its way into this film that is on occasion poetically reflective and is on occasion maybe too aggressive. Um, but then he wouldn't make a feature um, for six years um, with Phil's film socialism, which similar to your experience with watching Notre Zeke was the first like non 60s Godard film I watched at the time it came out. And similarly, I was like, what's going on? <laughs> so uh this was not an easy film to see at the round time it came out. It did get distribution, but it played like one showing in Los Angeles. By the time it had shown, I had like missed it. And so I finally saw it when it came to the early days of Netflix streaming in glorious uh, SD. If you remember yeah. the early days of Netflix streaming, there used to be like an HD marker and you'd be like, okay, that's a good transfer. And the rest would be yeah. like from a VHS that like somebody found in a dumpster seemingly, <laughs> um, you know, film socialism having come out from Kino Lorber did have a proper transfer, but it was like the SD version of that transfer. And for a film that mixes like HD video with like the shittiest hand cam you've ever seen in your life, Probably I could have benefited from seeing it in a better format to actually make those delineations myself, as opposed to like, is this just buffering badly or <laughs> compressed poorly? Um, so watch rewatching it the past couple of weeks in. Yeah. Is he uh, returning to the uh, every man for himself? Super slow-mo or am I, yeah, am I waiting for the picture to load? Yeah, totally. Uh, it's playing with all of that, but seeing it now, I, I own the Blu-ray and so seeing it in that format, I can, make those distinctions it'd be wrong to say like it's an active decision on Godard's part because so much of it is experimentation and a willingness to open the form up to whatever kind of disruptions might get uh introduced um including like there's some active stuff that's like playing with the idea that the video is just going wrong which i, I can't remember exactly the time but i'm sure at the time i was like my streaming is definitely fucking up <laughs> but which watching it now i'm like oh that's part of the film um so it kind of it's a really great like post-recession movie because it's very much about, as the film would suggest, um, the idea that like money has been cordoned off from us. And I think a lot of what we've come to recognize in the past several years is that like there's not a lack of money in the world. It's just that most of it is kept at the top and which is not accessible to us. So when we talk about the uh, dangers of inflation, uh, wage stagnation, et cetera. It's not because there's not enough money going around. It's because the money that is left to us is not sufficient to um, take that on. So most of the film's first section is shot on this kind of luxury cruise, um, which to me anyway, like suggests that um, this is where all the money is being held. And there's like allegedly a plot concerning various agents hunting down gold that was spent from Saint Spain to the Soviet Union in 1936 and it went missing in the Mediterranean where the film is set. I'm going to be honest, I didn't clock that plot, <laughs> but I am told that plot exists. Um, but nevertheless, like the idea of the crews standing in for the money being like held in a certain region, th that much at least I was picking up on. Um, and there's kind of this like pervasive sound of wind throughout the um both that's really invigorating to watch and of course it's just like shot in this like gorgeous sea so like it looks great and there's like casinos on the boat so godard like infiltrates his camera into those and so um for my money anyway it's it's a better cruise movie than like steven soderbergh's let them talk which i found vastly vastly dull um i loved i know i know <laughs> let let them all talk I think. let them all talk not just let them yeah yeah i love that um 
the second section of the film deals with a family running a gas station um, and a woman making a documentary about them. And it's kind of like a weirdly warm portrait of a family where um, it definitely plays into the idea that like the money's cordoned off. There's not enough money for this family to live on, but they're still living a sweet life. They own a llama and a donkey who wander around the gas station would provide some great visuals. I don't think this was like overtly documentary, but um, there's a sense of Godard kind of finding this family he's created. And then the third section is like entirely free associative of like, okay, I lost track of the connective tissue here, but it's very much like freeform essayist Godard. Um, and then it ends with uh, the big kind of classic, like FBI warning that you found on like VHS tapes. And then a title card that says, when the law is unfair, justice precedes the law. And then a title card, this is no comment, um, which is pretty great. Like mic drop on Goddard's part. Um, so yeah, very cool movie. I'm glad that um, I, I revisited. Oh, the other thing I completely forgot to mention here um, is that it was initially released um, and I uh, would have only been able to see it in this form on Netflix streaming service with what Godard termed Navajo subtitles, which was like, he only subtitled like, I don't know, every fifth sentence or so. And the idea being that like, hi, you dumb Americans, you don't know French. You're not going to get the entirety of this movie. Tough shit. Um, he had played with this in the past uh, with Histoires du Cinema. Fortunately, you can now download real subtitles for Histoire, which is how I watched it um, and get the full sense of things. Similarly, the Kino Blu-ray provides full subtitles for film socialism. Um, so it was considerably more digestible in that format as well, being able to actually understand the entire film. Uh, as much as I'm into Godard's occasional provocations or frequent provocations, uh, I, I'm fine with subtitles. Uh, he talked in a past interview about him just disliking subtitles in general. And he was like, I wish I could just have something at the start of a film that has something introducing the film in the local language and kind of talking about it. And then they just watch it without subtitles. And this is the interview he did with Dick Cavett around the time of every man for himself. And Cavett's like, huh? <laughs> what are you about? And Godard's like, it'll be great. Um, but his kind of frequent assail at uh, us dumb Americans who don't know French I get it. And I, I, I'll take the hit, but I still would like to see the film with the full subtitles. Sorry if that makes me a little class. <laughs> um, his next film is one I know we've both seen and one I'm sure many listeners podcast have seen because it was by far the most acclaimed film Godard had probably since the 1960s. Um, it was overwhelmingly well received. This, of course, is 3D film Goodbye to Language. Yeah, I'll take over here because I am. I know you don't like it. I don't. I, the thing is, I don't. I like the stuff that I like about Godard, but like you mentioned, you used the word provocations before. <laughs> and like, there's the the movie, especially because I've seen it in both 3D and 2D. And it Same. is. Yeah, it is less uh, headache inducing in 2D because the 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 3D. Uh, I mean, there's some cool, very cool 3D stuff, but then there's also parts where he's using the stereo image, like instead of like using it to make 3D, he's just got two competing images on the screen yeah. at the same time. Um, to the point where, um, when I watched it in 2D, I saw stuff. I was like, oh, I like I saw stuff that I hadn't seen <laughs> the first time because I've yeah, been looking at one or the other. Um, and on top of that, so it's not just the like intentionally like eye-crossing use of 3d um the movie is also a we'll go back to sound 
it's abrasive in its use of sound. It's like the main couple it's been i mean this is 2014 it's been eight years yeah i don't remember everything but the main couple uh they don't talk they're constantly just yelling at each other and also yelling at each other while one of them is like on the toilet having like (laughs) clearly gastrointestinal like stress. yeah yeah uh in addition to that there is often the sound of a baby crying there's the sound of a dog barking the dog in the movie there's a dog in the movie a lot and he's very it's a very cute dog Godard's Uh, dog uh oh is it um, yep. but I don't, you know, constant dog barking, even as a dog person can, <laughs> can get on your nerves. So I, I think maybe I need to give the movie a third watch to be like, to embrace what it's actually about and not just sit there thinking like, man, I need a Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, loosely, as far as I can grok, the theme is like the persistent thing of the difficulty people have communicating with one another and the way that then 3d can accentuate the separation of people um as i mentioned hours ago he wanted to shoot this with uh vincent cassell and sophie marco both of whom are decent sized stars and but then cassell turned it down and so Godard was like oh, okay i'll just do it with unknowns instead he was shot over the course of like four years uh during which he actually made a short film that contributed to the 3d omnibus um film i've only seen him portion of it and only in 2d uh, but it looks really cool. Speaking of like, I can't believe Godard took the time to watch this. There's segments of it that are uh, taken from the film Piranha 3D. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's. Oh, have you seen I this? Don't, I, um, no, I, I, I read about it. Um, oh, okay. But uh, yeah, I wanted to see that, but um, I didn't like Piranha 3D. <laughs> uh, Piranha 3D, I think is super cool. Um, but he excerpts the part that i think most people object to which is where the woman gets like her hair caught into like the motor and like rips yeah. her face off yeah. um he takes that he takes a section of a movie okay. that i cool. i haven't which actually this might be from piranha 3d as well now that i'm saying this out loud um where someone like plummets and gets impaled by this like spear that like spews his guts up into the camera even in 2d i can tell like where he's taking advantage of the 3d wow. um but that was kind of like his testing ground for a lot of the 3d practices that get employed in goodbye to language including some shots of his dog which are very welcome um but his cinematographer fabrice uh Arogino, um built like his own custom 3d rig um with two cameras that could operate independently he notes like there's no computer effects involved in all these 3d effects it's just like he built this like thing out of wood and nails that two cameras could kind of pivot on and they could play with the, so the way 3d works largely is how far apart the two cameras are when they shoot two camera 3d. So if you're very close together and the images are kind of close together, if you're very far apart, they're very stretched out and goodbye to language plays with a lot of that. And the kind of like two shot thing you're talking about where there's two completely different images mm-hmm. um, is kind of introduced in the film through one of those cameras just swiveling to the right, I think, and taking in what's just off screen. Um, an effect that elicited applause at the Cannes premiere. And both times I saw it with an audience, people like erupted in applause because it was just so unexpected and so unusual. And I, like, I get that it gives people a headache. It probably gave me a headache too, but I found <laughs> completely invigorating and really, really exciting. Um, and uh, which a lot of people did too. Again, like this was huge acclaim. The National Society of Film Critics gave it the Best Picture Award, um, which is great in many ways. One, because it's, I think it's a great movie and it deserves that kind of recognition. Two, because it completely pissed off the Oscar blogger crowd, which was so, so, so great. Um, the first screening I saw it with was a critic screening. It was at like 10 a.m. And I ducked out of work. Like at the time I was working a job that like didn't, 
the things I did day to day didn't affect anyone else. And so I kind of like made my own hours and could come and go as I pleased. It was a pretty sweet setup for where I was at in my life at the time, including I could just duck out for a 10 a.m. screening in Santa Monica and like no one would miss me. And sure enough, I came back and no one had even noticed I was gone. Um, <laughs> and so I, I ran off and saw goodbye to language. Um, but Chris Tapley, who at the time was writing for, I don't know, some Oscar blog and who I, I think is a pretty smart, if ridiculously humorless guy um, was in the audience. I, I saw him tweet afterwards, just like, what the fuck was this? And just like completely <laughs> They pissed off and there's you can still look up the angry tweets at the time of people being outraged that any group would award anything so that wasn't in the act of oscar convention best picture let alone something as aggressively experimental as this um but godard is definitely breaking new ground and, and he did put things with 3d that might have gotten incorporated into the larger cinematic uh, language if 3d had ended up becoming a thing but this was ended up being kind of at the time it felt like very cutting edge but uh mm -hmm. eventually you know we kind of learned that 3d wasn't to last and you know we'll see what james cameron does with the new avatar movie if it brings it back yet again but i, I think audiences larger appetite for 3d is just too exhausted and yeah. it just isn't there but i am kind of bummed because i have the blu-ray uh, but i don't have a way to see to watch it in 3d the blu-ray has like a 3d I know, ability, but I, I don't have a 3d tv a friend of mine used to have a 3d projector but hmm. I don't know if he still has it. That was, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I am even uh, as much as I uh, yeah, left the, uh, the arrow, I think is where I saw it in Santa Monica. As much as I left the arrow with a headache, I would like to look at it again. The well, right way. it is screening at the Academy Museum on December 30th. So if you live in Los Angeles or the greatest Los Angeles area, as our friend David Bax does, uh, you could drive hey, down I, and see it. I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> Just keep telling yourself that. Um, I do. You and I have the same mayor. <laughs> we have the same racist police department. Uh, it's hopefully reforming. We did elect that new sheriff. We'll see how that goes. Well, that's yeah. the sheriff. That's different that's than true. the LAPD. Slightly different. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I do highly recommend seeing it in 3D, whatever chance you can get. Yeah, it's too bad that like when they started rolling out 4K TVs that they didn't make a 3D version of them because I totally would have bought it just to have a way to watch <laughs> Goodbye to Language and like Transformers Dark of the Moon again <laughs> in 3D, which yeah. like it's a real shame that like the only 3D films that get screened anymore when they do these kind of retrospectives are like uh, uh, Gravity or Goodbye to Language or these like very acclaimed ones. Like we're missing out on a way to see like the popular commercial cinema that was playing with 3D um, in an interesting way. Like Dark of the Moon is a super awesome 3D movie. I never got to see Neville Dean Taylor's uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, the sequel to the Ghost Rider movie that they did in 3D. And I would have loved to see what Neville Dean Taylor did in 3D, but it played during this time that I was like just moving to LA and like mm -hmm. couldn't quite make the time or come up with the money to see a 3D movie. Um, so I'm saying there should be some bold uh, retrospective house that plays these 3D movies. Um, but Godard, yeah, very much saw 3D as like a, an, a ground that hadn't yet been broken and likened his attempts at it to like what the Lumieres were or Méliès were doing with early cinema, that there was this room to completely reinvent the language. He notes that in, this is very Godard, in specifically the French speaking section of Switzerland where he lives, a do, which the French title is a dual language, um, could mean hello or goodbye, depending on the time of day or tone in which you say it. Um, so it could all be him leaving behind everything or saying hello to a, a new way of doing something. 
Um, he also likened it to like the invention of perspective and painting that like, there's always this suggestion of something just off camera, which I think is kind of thing you end up coming up against in 3d. It's like the things coming at you, but only so much because there's edges of the frame and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a really invigorating film and one that even in 2d or in 3d, I, I find very exciting and which I'm very excited to revisit in 3d at the Academy. And then at long last, we are final at film, final yeah. film, at least that we know of. I'm still very curious to see if those two films he was working on um, were finished or being held because they were rumored for Cannes this year. And so I don't know if those rumors came from any active place. I haven't heard any suggestion that they are formally finished, but um, perhaps we'll find out that 10 years from now, he demanded it as part of his last will and testament that they'd be held. I'm holding out some degree of hope for that the same way yeah. that Jerry Lewis said, okay, 10 years after I die, you can show the day the cr- clown cried, which I we're all counting down curiously mm-hmm. about how that will be unveiled. But for the time being, yes, the image book is the final Godard film. Um, I thought it might be going out on top. Going, yeah. I mean, it's a great film. I it mean, really top is. 10 this year. Um, I thought it might be useful to kind of tie this back into some stuff from breathless. You know, there's still the sense of him trying to make um, a film that incorporates the Avenue of making it um, through its expression. And so there's this very like free associative way of putting things together. Um, He talks about in this film, and this comes up in his water cinema as well. The idea of like to think with hands to, exert the things you're thinking about the way you're thinking through um what you're constructing and there's all these like technological artifacts that kind of hang over the film it's mostly an essay film mostly kind of a collage film of assembling all these clips of his own work of uh other people's work uh like i said there's a clip from the michael bay film 13 hours in here and throughout it has this like weird like snap resizing effect where like film clips will get introduced and then suddenly they'll be in like a different aspect ratio and apparently that just came from like an unrefined bug in his editing software. It wasn't like this, like purposeful commentary or anything. It's just like the way it ended up. And I think most, especially the thing that really affected me beyond any particular observations that uh, he might have is just hearing his voice and kind of the very raspy quality and these like coughing fits that he lets into the film, including in its like final um, uh, kind of like statement of sorts. Um, which I felt like be appropriate to recap because as I mentioned in his first film, uh, his first line was after all, I'm an asshole. Uh, The last lines, at least for now that he left on film were, and even if nothing else, we would be as we had hoped it would change. uh, It would change nothing of our hopes. There would remain a necessary utopia and the field of expectations would be larger than that of our time. Just as the past was immutable expectations will remain immutable. And the ones who, when we were young fed ardent hope um he says all this amidst like this huge coughing fit and like it almost seems like he's going to die while speaking it um but which is reflective of both his persistent vulnerability and um the sense of wanting to leave a trace of the making of the film on it itself well i uh that was very well put, and I feel uh, like I shouldn't be interjecting any of my own. No, please add to it at this point. But this is, um, I mean, uh, Good Better Language and the Image Book are the only two good art films that I've seen in a theater. Um, uh, I mean, I guess unless you count like the classroom screening room where I saw Breathless, <laughs> sure, 
um, uh, in, in film school, but um, this is a, a, a great film to put a capper on that discussion of, of sound design, um, uh, that, that voice, the, the loudness, there's also parts, uh, and this very much comes across when you're watching it in a theater. Um, there are parts of the movie where the sound just comes out of one side yeah. or the other. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, it's so, yeah, experiential, you know, you mentioned movies like gravity or whatever, you know, or the Transformers, uh, whatever you called it. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen any of the Transformers movies. Uh, going back to me, the beginning discussion yeah. four hours ago about me being pretentious. Um, anyway, uh, but it was like seeing the image book um, was as much a theatrical like experience as as any of those. Even if I was disappointed at the low turnout at the... Uh, it was a press and industry screening at TIFF where I saw it. Mm. Um, and it was also like, it was like a 10 or 11 AM screening. And I'm, I know you and I've had this conversation off mic. You don't get jet lagged, but I do when I go to Toronto, I always spend the first couple of days of every time I've gone, spend the first couple of days, like trying to stay awake during movies, but sure. somehow like that, like already being kind of out of sorts and this movie being so, um, uh, experiential, uh, I'll say it again. Uh, it really was a, a a really powerful viewing experience to say nothing of what the movie was about. And it's, uh, there's so many, there are clips from a lot of movies and some of them I didn't recognize. I s certainly didn't recognize 13 hours cause I've never seen it. And then my, another Michael Bay movie I haven't seen. Um, but, uh, there's like, it's a, so it's like a, it's a cinematic essay, but I didn't feel like I was catching myself playing like, spot the clip you know oh yeah because it's not about that but i like um i did like the clips that i recognized and the clips that i didn't were all part of the same um experience uh to get to like what the movie is about or whatever um we've talked a couple of times about him making uh drawing parallels that are uh, maybe a little uncomfortable yeah you talked about uh what was it something with hands thinking with hands or yeah uh, um there is something to this movie about like action and collective action there are lots of scenes of protest in this movie and there are scenes there are shots of like the september 11th attacks and yeah. he does seem to be equating like hey when we get together and we work on something we can do really powerful stuff sometimes that's good and sometimes that's flying planes into a building but he seems to be equating like wow what the amount of like work and and planning and the uh, uh number of different people who had to cooperate to pull off the september 11th attacks he seems weirdly like impressed um uh, uh that was a that was a takeaway uh, of mine that's a definitely a pr provocative uh thing i also but i also do think the movie is it's it's one of those movies or it's one of those things that going all the way back to what I was saying about far from Vietnam, I think some of what he has to say about European treatment of like the Middle East and the Arab world is meant to be critical of Europe, but does does end up being a little bit like condescending uh of sure of the uh non white people that you that you see, like treating them as just sort of like a homogenous uh blob. Um so yeah, um 
you had this whole like poetic ending and here I am like tossing out uh, political criticisms of, of the movie. Hey, a mix of poetry and tossing out random shit that is half remembered is as key to Godard as anything else. <laughs> um, no, I appreciated that because I had forgotten most of the content of the film. Um, <laughs> I I similarly only seen it once at a press screening. Um, I saw it at a midday press screening at the Egyptian um during which a delivery guy didn't realize that like the film that was on screen was being shown for an audience so he he kicked open the side door at the egyptian which is like in front of the screen it's like right alongside the screen so the light was just streaming in and you're just like wheeling a carton like looking at the screen like oh i guess they're testing something out and like (laughs) and finally like the publicist had to come running down like closing the door so it was a little disruptive as well but also somewhat amusing um um can I, in Battleship Pretension fashion, end with telling a story that has nothing to do with? Uh, Perfect. I have some. I have some wrapping up thoughts, but please. Uh... Uh, the idea of just like a movie as crazy as the Image Book just being like testing something. It reminds me when I did my orientation at the ArcLight. This is back in 2007 when I worked okay. at the ArcLight. I did the orientation, and they show a clip of the movie it's, uh, of a movie just so like they can tell you like here's what you'll be doing when you Mm -hmm. you know when you you're supposed to stay and make sure things are um you know everything's in focus and and sounds right and everything but for some reason the clip that they showed was just the shot from jj abrams mission impossible 3 where tom cruise is running along the bridge a missile hits behind him and the force of the missile like throws him into a car that on a loop while this guy's like just like <laughs> just like this training just this incredibly physically violent thing happening on a loop for like 15 20 minutes it felt like a godard level provocation and experimental that's film. amazing <laughs> uh, anyway so what were your wrapping up thoughts um just to say that uh as was indicated throughout this episode of us like constantly going back or jumping forward to other pieces of Goddard's work um it it's very helpful to see more and more of his work and everything of his as i've seen good bad amazing tiring uh frustratingly offensive area anywhere between has proved revealing to some other facet of it and so um as like from a like cinephile completist perspective as frustrating as it is to like be like i watched all of Goddard's features oh it's only 45 percent of the total output of it 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 is exciting to know that i have a lot else to go with him and as mentioned at the top two there's so much that's been written about him that i have yet to read um but it's been really invigorating over the past few months to dive more fully into guitar than i had even in the past you know i i think i'd seen probably 25 of his movies or so before we started in on this but um nevertheless um to consider them all together like this and kind of start to string together a coherent thought around him was really invigorating and um, just unveiled to me all over again, how massive an artist he was and how deeply I'll miss and uh, regret uh, the loss of his contributions to film and the loss of a sense of cinematic culture that has now been firmly left behind without him. Um, the, the big thing that I think I haven't really touched on too much is like his public persona that he was like, especially in the sixties, the face of like cinematic intellectualism 
And um, he used that, you know, Brody has a line that he knew his fame was a commodity that would enable him to continue to make films, but did not want to continue to make films that would nourish that fame. Um, And so even losing his sense of like Jean-Luc Godard as an icon, almost apart from himself as a person is interesting too. And having lost all that is deeply sad, but I'm so glad that the films live on and continue to piss people off in so many regards and I hope that this episode has uh, correctly addressed his failings as a person, as an artist, as a thinker, um, as well as his innumerable successes, because I don't think the two are inextricable. I, I think having to wrestle with both of those angles is as important as lauding his accomplishments. Um, so I hope we've been able to illuminate those as well. Well, um, looking at the clock, I don't have a counter on this uh, Zoom. Uh, I don't think we broke the record. Well, I, I was I, so I was curious about that. I, I looked it up and the record, at least according to the recording on the website, said it was four hours and 46 minutes. That's the Mariah uh, yeah. Westerns. Oh, the Western... we might have we beat it then. For some, Why did I think we broke five hours on that? I thought you had uh, two. So I looked it up earlier and I was like, I don't know if we'll get to five hours. And I, I then I looked it up. I was like, huh? Maybe we'll uh, get a little. We'll say that. Not that I'm trying to get one up on Mariah Gates, who, in addition to being a brilliant person, is also a, I hope I can say correctly a friend of mine. Um, so not that I'm trying to get one up on her, but I, I suspected that this might run you, to the, yeah. the incredibly lengthy side. Yeah, you might have. We, we might have broken uh, broken the record, but this was uh, uh, a ton of fun to to talk about. It was fun for me to watch uh, a lot of movies I hadn't seen before, and. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I feel like I had before this, I had an appreciation for Jean-Luc Godard. Now I feel like I, I have a connection to his mm. work. Um, so I hope it was fun for the listeners, the handful of you who are left. Um, you, uh, of course can find God, don't please don't look up any of my reviews of <laughs> Godard stuff at Battleship Retention, but you can find uh, Scott's review of the image book. And then I also think, uh at least a brief write-up of goodbye to language on your top 10 list for that year yeah Uh, and i I went to a critic screening and i would have felt compelled to write about it so i'm sure i wrote a review of it somewhere okay comprehensible i know you reviewed the le petit soldat blu-ray when it yeah uh, it came out i think i can stand by that review i'm pretty sure i nailed that one you know i got Uh, it i get it i get (laughs) Godard. So check out um, Scott's uh, Godard reviews at battleshippretension.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, or you can email me first at david at battleshippretension.com. You can email Tyler at tyler at battleshippretension.com. I don't know if he's reading his email right now. I didn't ask him uh, last time I saw him. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Davy Pretension, Davy with an E-Y. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, also check out my other podcast. It's nothing like this. It's called The One Where I Met Your Mother. My wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother uh every week we we just watched a uh really um uh good episode of friends in which uh phoebe uh likes her sexy singing voice when she has a cold and then when she loses her cold she spends the rest of the uh, episode trying to get sick again uh, <laughs> fun episode uh that's uh you can find those at battleshipretention.com as well uh scott where can people find you should you want them to um well i i think last time even yeah i'd plugged my hive and then i stopped checking because it's so hard to use it's only gotten worse like last time i opened my feed i couldn't even get my feed 
or my own posts up. And then I read somewhere that they have some bug in where people can just like edit anyone's post. Um, okay. I don't know if that bug is still active, but uh, yeah, my profile currently says that I have no posts, which is yeah. So I think Hive is just broken. So don't find me on Hive. <laughs> okay. Um, you can still request to follow me and I'll try to go through them and approve them um, on Twitter at rail of tomorrow um, on letterboxd where I've been trying to put some notes in about the Godard films that I've been watching. Um, in addition to everything else I've been watching, um, try to at least jot some thoughts down, which I tried to be disciplined about that because as I was going back through the Godard films that I haven't seen as recently, I was like, Oh sure. They wrote down some letterbox notes and they were really helpful for like, British sounds, but then I had none for like Vladimir and Rosa. And I was like, oh shit, Scott, come on, <laughs> get it together. Um, so I, I try to make a practice of noting that. Um, so follow me there and you can email me rail of tomorrow at gmail.com. I don't think anyone's taking me up on that. Um, but I also am not really the best at checking it. Um, and yeah, if, if you're still listening to this by this point, I deeply, deeply thank you. Um, yeah. because uh again this was a lot of fun to put a lot of work into but it was a lot of work and i i hope that in some way it's helped illuminate or excite people about um godard well um yeah thank you uh oh yeah uh to the listeners who are left uh stay tuned in in another 10 weeks when we do another profile that won't be this long but might be even more pretentious (laughs) but Uh, will be as (laughs) dense (laughs) but uh other than that uh yeah thank you for listening Uh, We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 